Well, welcome, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Taran Rama's uh, True History, Hershey of Nasera and our Galactic Origins on Saturday afternoons at BDF Radio Station 2. Thank you for joining us here today. We're so grateful to have your presence. And I'll have to take a few moments to go into that heart space. Um, oh, I would like to also say that Cheryl, <laughs> a report on Cheryl, as she usually does our meditations on on Saturday afternoon. She's assisting her husband, just had new replacement surgery, and um, yeah, so we hold them both in the circle of support. Um, she does report that he went through the surgery fine, and I haven't heard from her today, so that's a good thing. <laughs> So there you go. That's the update on Cheryl. And, um, yeah, I want to just take a few moments to take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. However you like to do that. Cleansing breath. Slowly and gently. Let go of that dross today. Go into your heart space. Gather with your guides and guardians there, the spirit team, your ancestors, your animal totems. (laughs) Whenever you like to journey with that drumbeat with, we're going to call in those seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition. Uh, So, let's hear that calling drum. As we gather around the council fire, it's in the center. We come in close in that virtual way we know how to do. Make that circle around that council fire. Now let us call it. Thank you. 
how to go within that medicine you want to use for discernment, for healing. Thank you, big cat. The shot. Jaguar. Panther. Eager. Thank you for showing us how to live a two world, that within world. can't hear you. Uh-oh. Um, uh, Commander Don, can you hear me? Maybe you can see how to bring Rainbird back. Maybe I think she's gone. Um, oh dear. Um, okay, I'm going to mute out just for a second, everybody, because I'm going to ask Rama to call Don just to see what's going on. Okay, hold on. Okay. I'm, Rama's coming, everyone. I'm not quite sure what happened here. Um, I think what we'll do is when Rama gets here, we'll have him play some music while we sort this out. What's happening? You have to play some music because we have to call Don while they people get to listen to the music. And then we got to immediately call down and find out what's happening because it's been off for many minutes now. Okay. Rama will find something really good to listen to here. Or maybe... The rainbow disappeared. Yes, it's almost five minutes now. Well, maybe we should just start. You have to call down. 
play let's play a piece of music and then you can go in the other room and call down and find out what's going on. Greetings everyone. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Let's just put it that way. And um we're coming upon a time now where it's becoming more and more apparent that um there is more and more hope in everybody's heart in the world and that it's also becoming more apparent to many that the uh situation is that this old system has been broken um I remember Elizabeth Warren said that many, many years ago. Bernie Sanders has been saying it for a long time. And what we can really know is that there's higher energies that are coming in here now to make all the difference in the world. Um this is Okay, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do the report. Why don't you just out us talk, Rama, and go and call Rainbird or call Don in the other room. Yeah, and then see what's going on. So what we'll do here Don't understand what happened here. Uh, what we'll do here is we'll start with something from uh, the situation in Palestine and Israel. Chris Hayes had a, a good report. Actually, it was on Thursday. And we'll, let me just say about, um, before I do that. Um, uh, We require $520 total in order to complete um, what is owed for January. And what we'll also say is that um, there is $28.01 that we could use in order to complete paying for the third week in January. And then we'll go from there where we'll, um, we'll pay, um, on $260 for the fourth week. And at that point, we'll be complete. So I'm really grateful that I can share this with you. And then um, there's bills. Don't <laughs> um, no, call Don first. Oh, okay. How's it going? He's going to call me. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, then you don't have to do anything else. And I, 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 I'll continue. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I, we're all, we're live. <laughs> Ray, where, I don't know where I was. Where did you go? I didn't know I went anywhere until the phone rang. Oh, you couldn't hear I didn't hear even us. know where we were. You couldn't even hear us? I was calling you on the radio. You didn't hear us? No, I didn't hear you. Okay, something went on your end then. That's what happened. But I'm so glad you're back. So I'm going to pass this talking stick right back to you. And you please continue, Lady Master. I don't know where I was. <laughs> when um, you didn't hear me. Well, it's been about five minutes, so I don't know. Well, you know what? I called in the South, and I toned for the South, and called in the Guy Nation, and we welcomed the Comet, and we called in the Earth, and we welcomed all the planetary, all the all the beings of the planetary Earth blanket, and gave thanks for um, all the the creepy crawlies and the winged ones and. Our friend ones and the four-legged and the six-legged. So lots of gratitude for that diversity of life on the planet and so much gratitude for um, living in equality with each member of the planetary family. And then we were giving thanks for Mother Earth for teaching us how to take care of and honor her and in all those forms... <laughs> life forms and to walk gently upon her with love and respect and then we will invite in the inner direction the within direction and we tone ooh for that 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 tone for carrying and, and we honored those medicine ancestors and the spirit keep, keepers within so those personal ancestors as well as we welcome in our and give gratitude for their wise choices as they made in their lifetimes to sustain and nurture us and to pass down the wisdom and the knowledge so that we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. So we give thanks to those next seven generations for reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect and to pass down the wisdom gained and to create beauty and balance upon the earth. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All you good ones, thank you for joining us here in this circle today. A whole Matakwiyas and all my relations. <laughs> and I want to just take a few moments now to change my hat and um, talk about the housekeeping as we are listening supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And uh, this week we need some help with the uh, radio and uh, the figures are a diff little different from last night. So it, um, we'd like to get $30 just to pay for the last week in uh, the second to the last week in January. Then we owe for the month of January and for this week as well. So all that amounts to $570, and this is how we make a 
contribution to our account at BBS Radio so that we can pay these fees and come back each week and do it some more. <laughs> so much gratitude for all of you who are assisting us and asking for more of you to participate as we get caught up with our radio bill. So you want to go to BB, into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2, and you'll see the menu selections there, um, Radio Station 2 for Saturday at the 1.30 hour, and that's Pacific time. It's uh, the True History Hershey and the Sarah and Galactic Origins with Tara and Rama. That's this program. And as you click on that icon there, that'll take you directly to our account with BBS. And there you can use any bank card to make a donation in any amount. So thank you for taking that action. And thank you for your generosity. We're so grateful for that, participating in this way. <clears throat> and then we also have two other programs on Radio Station 1 at the 6 o'clock hour, one on Thursday, one on Friday. The Thursday show uh, is a night at the round table with the panel. You can click on that icon there. And then the other show is uh, on Fridays. is Hard News on Friday nights with Tara and Lola. You can click on that icon. It's also at the 6 o'clock hour. So there you have it. All the shows, all little different options for where to click. And, and again, much gratitude for taking that action. And we'd love to have new people pitch in and help out. We're, we're needing, <laughs> we're needing participation here, uh, to pick up a little bit. So I invite you to be a new person that clicks in and makes a gift. It doesn't have to be big, but if all of us did a little bit, it wouldn't take much at all. So let's just do our part, see what we can get done that way. So thank you. And uh, also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. And uh, they have a couple of bills. They'll be due at the beginning of the week, next week, and that they need 150 for both of those together. And uh, they also need a couple hundred dollars for living expenses. So as you can assist, that would be wonderful. Um, <laughs> here's how I make a contribution to Tara and Rama. You want to go to the web address to access the PayPal account. So here's the web address, rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on that menu grid, there will be a menu that drops down. You'll see donate link near the bottom of that list. Click on that, and that will link you to Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. So that's how that happens that way. And then the other way to do that is go to directly to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there as who you want to give at the, that email address for Rama, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at Comcast, um, oops, no, hotmail.com. So I'll say it again, Koran, K-O-R-N, Nine 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 four nine at hotmail dot com, and as you enter that address, then that's how you connect with the friends option, and that just eliminates commercial charges. Either way is perfect. We're grateful for your contributions. Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action and paying it forward like that. May you be gifted many, many, many times over for taking that action. I'm sure you will. <laughs> 
And then as we're sending something, let's let Rama know in that email for Rama to let him know that you sent something and when you sent it is Koran, K-O-R-E-N, 999 at comcast.net and then um, as you need it the physical address Ram D. Berkowitz R-A-M-D Berkowitz B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z um, then see what else that's it oh yeah <laughs> to bo- post office box 280 280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip code. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it. All the information, and so much gratitude for assisting Tara and Rama, and and we're grateful for all that Tara and Rama do, and we want to make sure they have all they need so they can have that space to make it happen, and uh, so thank you. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart, long life, no evil, and I'm passing this talking stick. <laughs> oh, I like it. Then a nice little tribute to the green comet, so it's got this, this green comet shape with a, a real fancy trailing tail, and very, very beautiful, emerald green, and then the Quetz assortment is there, and Excalibur is there, that sort of truth, and there's lots of little people and magical beings, like unicorns and dragons, and these little people are the hobbits and the elves and the dwarves and the gnomes and the menahunis and all the other little people. There's fairies and feathers everywhere. Greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Greetings, everyone. Thank you, Rainbird. Wild energies going on. And it's about the sun and what's transforming, transfiguring right now. And I sat in the plasma field today. And it showed me um, Mercury and Pluto doing some kind of intricate dance along with the sun in Leo. And, I mean, the moon, the full moon in Leo. Uh, And it showed me the energies that are happening of the messages between Mercury and Pluto. And Pluto is the underworld of transfiguration, transformation. Um, There is no death. It is just um, shifting realities as we know it. And uh, it happens in an instant the reality shift and I'm seeing that each you know day watching the magnetic waves go across you know space time in this moment as I'm right here 
uh, I have seen the ripples of energy going across a parking lot while I'm sitting in the car, and it looks like somebody just shook a rug, and there ain't no rug, the parking lot's fine, and it ain't me. Something is happening in our reality where space and time are shifting. It, the time I saw that, it reminded me of the movie 2012 with John Cusack, how the earth kind of opened up, and we're not expecting that, but it's a little unnerving when you see that nobody else is kind of noticing it, but I can definitely feel the waves and how this relates to Pluto Mercury is the energies are so high and they're instant. I mean, instant. And And there's this storm. I think that's part of it too. In the Northeast, New York State and all of New England. Yes. And there was a place, what's it called? A new, uh, in New Hampshire. Um, Mount Washington, New Hampshire. And it had some wind chill factor and it was 108 degrees below zero. Oh God. This morning! I mean, that's really wild stuff. And um, New York State had something crazy, too, like, oh, I forgot. Uh, Let me see if I got it written down here. I can't remember. It's just like... Hopefully everybody was able to get to a warm place. That's what I would like to say about all of that. And it's it, that's never happened before ever. Not that low. So we're grateful for all of that. The other thing is that um, we're going to be hearing from Greg Braden on two two programs. One is Teresa Boulard is going to be uh, sharing with Greg Braden, and that's from her new spot. She's got something called Quantum Mind TV, and um. And then Greg Braden himself is going to be sharing something that he's got to say with us. So we're going to be listening very carefully. And it's an hour and 28 minutes and it's called Resilience of the Heart. And... um, That's what's coming in. That's really the new story. Follow your heart wherever it takes you. And, you know, no matter where we are on the spectrum of 
how we perceive life in the world. Uh, I think I can safely say that everybody wants peace. Yes. And that's a very common denominator. And I know, I don't know when, but indeed the guns will stop working. And I think, this is my thought on that, that the energies are going to reach a crescendo where the... uh as as the title of this piece that Greg's going to talk to us about, the resilience of the heart will prevail uh, and take us beyond the shenanigans that have caused so much pain and suffering. Uh, and uh, like uh, like Greg Braden has talked about in other videos, they have actually shown how the heart can regenerate itself and the, with thought form energy, they reduce the tumor in the body. Remember that video? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not magic. It is about what we can do as creator goddesses and gods of the most high. And it sounds ridiculous, but it's not. It's real. Mm-hmm. And I know that a lot of you know about um, things that we call holograms. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! And that was all the way they way back. I don't know. I'm sure there were situations. I'm not aware of where you are, where that was done even before we knew it. But they started this idea in 1949 that they would have characters in the play that are in the political situation. Um, If something became of them, they put something in instead. Yeah. And I can just, the first thing that came to mind, this is a little later, but it was uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, They Uh said he was in the hospital, and then he came back. And what we know is that he died. Yeah, he did. He did not go to the hospital, but what they did is they they bowled the time there, and then they put a, a clone out. And then the clone became a little bit uh, amnesic. Is that what you call that? Uh, mm, yeah. Dementia-like. And uh, hmm. things faded away. So uh, Hillary was removed for... Uh, for those of us who were in contact with the Faction Three White Knights, which is a galactic, and people on the ground that came in here. And that's called intervention. And um, and then they created a clone of more and more and more people. And then they started to 
delete the clone and just put a hologram in there. Mm-hmm. And the difference between a clone and a hologram is that it's uh, the clone has DNA from the original person that they created it with. Um, Rama, the holograms are technological, right? Yeah. There's no human DNA in there. It's a it, technological. It's all AI. Just like Agent Smith in the Matrix. He wasn't real? Well, he was a, gen- a program. That's what they called individuals in the Matrix programs. Okay, so they weren't human. No, they weren't. Did everybody understand that when they watched those? I got explained in the stories, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So were the holograms shut down at some point or what? At some point, yeah. Neo, in the movie. Uh, um, the, uh, the Matrix Revolutions and then Resurrections, the last one that came out. In those two movies, they straightened stuff out. And peace is declared between the humans and the machines, the AI. Uh, some sort of peace is actually worked out. That's what I remember. Okay. Yeah. So, and in these recent times, you know, you're not sure if you're watching a real human up there. Or if it's something else. Yeah. It was done for the reason that uh, the Faction Three White Knights knew that the time was here coming back in 49 as uh, higher conscious awareness would actually take hold in the sense of Many, 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 many people becoming aware, self-aware first, right, Rama? Yeah. And there was many, 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 many teachers coming from the East to the West. I remember, and even teachers in the West with higher missions and um, coming uh, to teach are growing up in the West and teaching. Yes. So now there is a time and it's coming up for the time of um, March. And we'll hear from our friend, Brother Richard, and others, Tanya Gabrielle and Kate Pacha, uh, about this. And they're talking about that time being a complete quantum shift. And in that process, I believe that peace will be a, will, will become able to be declared on a global scale simultaneously. And I don't know any dates. But I asked Rama this morning, I said, are we going through the whole rest of this year and to next year? And he said, no. 
flat out no. So I'll accept that. Um, so Nasara now, and what I was asking him is, well, the paradigm shift out completely, close down the old system and will come into the paradigm shift and everything will be different. And I understand that all the networks and all the programs will stop and there will be probably about six weeks Maybe a solid two weeks where 24-7 they just go over and over and over again of all the changes. And then for the next four weeks after that, they'll be describing how that gets integrated. And and it, it, it represents something where the heart of every one of us is wanting peace inside and out. And so we're not going to hurt people, and that doesn't help anything. Uh, yet we will be aware of a fifth-dimensional galactic team of beings, and they will be uh, talking to us on the airwaves and explaining many things. And so these programs that we're going to play today really have something to do with that. Uh, this is what we are here as witnesses to and taking it in as they're really teachers, teachers, teachers. And so, Rama, yeah. let's start with our I was going to say we could start with uh, Dr. Greer. Oh, I still have to try to figure out how to send it over here. I still haven't gotten it. I got to do that. Well, you got to do that right now. Yeah. Can you? Are you going to play Chris Hayes? Okay, I'll play that Chris Hayes piece. Okay, this is something from Thursday. I'll play that. All right. Um. Let's just find it again here. This is about the issues going on in Israel and Palestine. And I could just add to that that um, Israel and the United States represent the old paradigm uh, of using violence as if that could ever solve anything. And so, um, this is a little piece of the accountability piece of it that we're going to play here on Chris Hayes from Thursday. So let's start that now. Oops. Let me just back it up here. Sets. Okay. Republican lawmakers in Iowa have introduced a bill that would allow students and parents to report teachers who allegedly violate Iowa's law against teaching, quote, divisive concepts 
like that the U.S. is fundamentally or systematically racist or sexist. This new bill would require the state to investigate every complaint and fine school districts found to have violated the 2021 law. It's clearly modeled after Florida's Stop the Woke Act, which allows parents to sue teachers and school districts that violate it. As day by day around the country, we're seeing right-wing conservative lawmakers pass laws that severely limit what school children can learn about a variety of topics, but specifically about race in America. Move the new Arkansas governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, made one of her first official acts after taking office last month, signing an executive order to, quote, prohibit indoctrination and critical race theory in our schools. It's incredibly important that we do things to protect the students in our state. We have to make sure that we are not indoctrinating our kids and that these policies and these ideas never see the light of day. These ideas never see the light of day. Kind of give away the game there. One of the real goals is to make sure that ideas and research about the history of slavery and racism and Jim Crow in our country court never see the light of day. And all this has a real impact on what students in public schools and colleges are able to learn. To take just one example, the only black sociology professor at the largest public university in the state of Florida, Jonathan Cox, who I talked to recently on my podcast, Why Is This Happening, dropped two classes on race last fall that he had been offering because of Governor Ron DeSantis' Stop Woke Law. Okay, this was from yesterday. So I'm going to fast forward it now, everybody. You got the gist of that again for those who... And we're going to fast forward to the next piece. Here we go. (laughs) It's a big adjustment right now. Yes, we're going to go faster. It's just that people... Not yet. Back it up a little bit here. Almost. A week before. How the U.S. government. Not yet, not yet. I've got to go a little farther forward. Even by the perpetually elevated standards of the Israeli Palestinian conflict, things are as tense and dangerous as they have been for a very, very long time right there. There's a new Israeli government that includes a national security minister who used to be part of a far right party. He's proposed changes to the country's judiciary that has brought over a hundred thousand. So I think it was probably the right move, and he waited. Something just happened again. I saw the computer blink, and I saw the TV blink at the same time. Oh, really? Yeah, that just happened. Uh, Mercury. Oh my goodness. Are you ready, Rama? Have you got that all figured out? I, I hope this is so. Only, this is going to take about another five more minutes, so i got to make sure you got it ready, because that's what we're going to do. Yeah, I need the five minutes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what in the world? Okay, I hope I can get this back. Ghost in the machine. Okay. Found to have violated the 2021 law. 
It's clearly modeled after Florida's Stop the Woke Act, which allows parents to sue teachers and school districts to violate it. As day by day around the country, we're seeing right-wing conservative lawmakers pass laws that severely limit. That's no, that it went all the way backwards too. Okay, thank you for your patience, everyone. Uh, this is a communication situation, so here we go. I'm going to get back to where I was. Oh my goodness. Okay. Now we gotta back it up again. Even by the perpetually elevated standards of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, things are as tense and dangerous as they have been for a very, very long time right there. There's a new Israeli government that includes a national security minister who used to be part of a far-right party. He's proposed changes to the country's judiciary that has brought over 100,000 protesters out into the streets. Last Friday, seven people were killed when a 21-year-old Palestinian gunman opened fire at a synagogue in East Jerusalem. A week before that mass murder of worshippers, Israeli forces carried out a raid in the occupied West Bank in the city of Janine. Their intention, they said, was to foil planned attacks by an Islamic terror group based there. The IDF says its troops were fired upon by militants. Ten Palestinians were killed in the exchange that ensued, including a 61-year-old woman, making it the deadliest single assault in the West Bank in over 20 years. Later that same day, the Washington Bureau Chief, the most widely read newspaper in the Palestinian territories, asked the spokesperson for the State Department about how the U.S. government classifies the residents of the West Bank, and he could not provide an answer. What is the status of the Palestinian people in the West Bank, including Janine, including the camp of Janine, and everywhere else in the West Bank? How do you designate them? What kind of designation do you give the Palestinians in the West Bank? That they reside in that, those territories. Reside uh, in a totally independent rest of the world, as if it were a different planet. Are they occupied by this country? Do you subscribe to the fact that they are under military occupation? Sorry, let me say a couple of things. Um, uh, to the point that I believe... Are they occupied or are they not occupied? What is the status that you give the Palestinians right at this moment? What kind of status do they have? Sorry, the recent period uh, has seen a sharp... I'm not talking about a recent period. I am saying about legally. How do you designate the Palestinians and the West Bank? What is their status? So I, I, I understand the question you're asking, and uh, I, as we've said previously, uh, it is vital for both sides to take action to prevent even greater loss, and we condemn any violence, escalation, or provocation. I suppose I don't envy him his job, although that non-answer shows just how little cover there is to let to pretend the situation is anything other than what it is. Jabril is an award-winning Israeli-Palestinian journalist, foreign policy analyst, Peter Feiner, is the author of the Feiner Notebook on Substack, editor large the magazine Jewish Currents, and both join me now. Um, I follow news in Israel and uh, Palestinian territories very closely, uh, and it seems to me from the people that I read and respect across really the ideological spectrum, a real sense of like intense, acute tension crisis. Do you feel that way? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things we know across the world is that violence comes from despair. And you now have among Palestinians the deepest just kind of despair. 
Palestinians in West Bank have lived for over 50 years without the most basic of rights. This is the kind of truth-telling that the Biden administration won't do. The truth is that in the West Bank, the West Bank is apartheid. Jews have citizenship, the right to vote, the right to free movement, the right to be citizens of the country in which they live. Palestinians have none of those things, and there's no prospect. There was a time when there was at least a dim prospect. There's no prospect right now, and that's very volatile. That seems to me, I mean, the, the point about the, the status of uh, uh, Palestinian people in the West Bank, right? The idea that it was an interim way station on the way to the two-state solution, which is going to be the, the ultimate destination of the road, that's one thing. The idea that this is it, this is what it's going to be, which... Ostensibly, the Netanyahu government, others say, no, we're still going, we're still committed to the two-state solution, but it just doesn't seem like anyone believes that, even there, I feel like. But maybe uh, Netanyahu has been saying that to the Western world. This is his propaganda. He's using the two-state solution as a cover. It's like, yeah, there is a two-state, but de facto, he said it on CNN, and he's saying to the Israeli and to his far-right coalition, Jewish supremacy is the law of the land. They approved in 2018, basically, uh, nation-state uh, law, which suggests that only Jews are entitled to self-determination. All the others are basically entitled to subjugation, control, oppression, etc. And and we are seeing this far-right government. I mean, we're talking about the last period. I mean, this government was sworn in a month ago. And in one month, you have 35 Palestinian dead. You have people chanting genocide chants in the street of Jerusalem, led by politicians. You have a member of this government who are indicted on terrorism. And these are the people who are in charge of the security apparatus, telling Palestinians on a daily basis, you have no place here, and our mandate is Jewish supremacy at every cost, even if it means more demolition, more hate, more violence. And Palestinians are looking around and, and thinking, who's going ever to protect us? The United States is defending democracy in Ukraine and overseas, but telling the world there's one exception, and that's the Palestinians. I mean, I will say, of course, um, uh, because everything on this conflict is thorny, that there were people in the streets chanting their cheers after this Palestinian murdered 16 people in a synagogue. But that's um, what happened when you dehumanize people, Chris. What Peter is talking about is did this, when Palestinians signed in 1993 the Oslo Agreement, not only they acknowledged that Israel will retain 78% of the territories, and they will retain 22%, whatever, but what they seen during this period, they had 60 settlements, then they have 200 settlements now and 600,000 settlers, and Israel have no intention right. to ever withdraw or give them dignity or life or social just anything. This seems to, what seems to me in terms of marking the epochs, right? We had the Oslo period, then we had the Second Intifada, then we've had the sort of post-Second Intifada ostensible Oslo period where there is still the Palestinian Authority. It has under treaty, um, you know, control of security control of the West Bank. There's a withdrawal from Gaza. But this is now, it seems to me that that chapter feels like it's coming to an end, both because of the nature of Israeli politics as much as anything else. Absolutely. It's just that people are not willing to be honest about the choices we now face. There is now one state between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. Israel controls all of it. There is nothing temporary about Israeli control of the West Bank. 
The choices are about the character of that state. Will it be a state based on what the Israeli human rights group Betselem calls Jewish supremacy, the principle that this is a state owned by Jews and Palestinians will either be non-citizens or there will be second-class citizens, in which case Israel will be the shining model for every ethno-nationalist leader from India to Brazil to France to Italy to the United States, that you can do this and you can get away with it and it will work. Or will it be a place that struggles for what we want in the United States, equality under the law for all people, irrespective of religion, well, race? And this is why it's jarring, Chris, because when this Democratic administration, that was voted by 84 million Americans, rejecting that model of authoritarianism, Trumpism, fascism, ethno-nationalism, and people voted for that model, they turn around and their foreign policy is basically say, we will continue to bankroll songs for that model of religious, a project of religious ethno project of exclusion and purity. Well, but the argument that the viewers are yelling at the television right now and that the government would say is that including some of my own family. Well, sure, right, but it is different. Yes, it's different. Like, the Zionist project is different. Jews are different. They have faced a, a special form of persecution. They have, like, yes, it is different. This is the argument. Nobody needs to tell me that. My grandmother, who, whose family fled from country to country to country, told me that my entire life. But the truth is, if you believe in the principle of liberal democracy, of equality under the law. That principle has served Jews very well. Why are we, Jews, thriving in the United States? Because of the principle of equality under the law. And if you make an exception for Israel, because we've had this terrible history, the exception does not stay in Israel. But also, it's it's the, the most powerful military nuclear power in the Middle East, Chris. And the whole idea that the only way you could feel safe is when people, millions of people on their knees, your slaves, you are subjugating them. Not only does it make sense, it actually appealed to fascists around the world that, wait one second, if they can do this for their minorities, let's do it to Jews worldwide. I mean, this is the thing that I think is very hard to talk about is is the degree to which this sort of illiberalism, right, authoritarianism, yes. and we, you know, the, the, the you know, Ben Gavir, like the, the, the parts of the Israeli government that are not part of the government, people from Brett Stevens to Jerry Nadler, who's incredibly uh, supportive of the Israeli government almost no matter what, have been very critical of, are very worried about, right? That these folks and these parties represent something anathema, right? To, to liberalism. You have polling in Haaretz that People don't like the new judicial reforms that were proposed by this government, right? This is like corrosive to whatever is left or still aflame in Israeli. Right, but what we have to avoid is only becoming outraged when Israel becomes less of a liberal democracy for Jews, right? Because that itself is a form of Jewish supremacy. The point is that Israel has to be a liberal democracy, Israel-Palestine, for everybody. And the people who are least, who have the least rights tonight, right now, are the Palestinians who are not even citizens. So this movement that is happening has to include them at the center. But also, this is a consequence of the occupation. Right. The, the two are related. The two are related. When B. Netanyahu is trying to import from the occupied territory a model where he says, I, the head of the state, can override the decision by the Supreme Court that might make, if he decides that tomorrow he can deport, exile millions of Palestinians who are citizens like myself, and the Supreme Court says this is illegal, he can decide it doesn't matter. 
this is political, this is about Jewish supremacy, and that's the, the law of the land. And this is what's dangerous. Right, because I mean, the, the, the point is the way military law is what um, controls in the occupied territories, yes. right? And like the point is like, yeah, military law is different than civil law for a reason, and you don't want military law metastasizing if you want to run a liberal civil democracy. And to the, the great book by Spencer Ackerman called Reign of Terror, which is about the American War on Terror, right? I saw it firsthand covering it. Like, the longer that state existed, the more that it corroded American liberalism and American democracy. Because fundamentally what you're doing in that enterprise and project is anathema to what you want to do in a civic civil war. Yes, there's an amazing documentary with former heads of the Shin Bet that came out a few years ago where it talked, and they talked about the way in which the actions that they were taking, these police state actions in the West Bank were ultimately going to come back and endanger and harm the civil liberties and civil rights of Israeli Jews too, and we're seeing that. And, second, and people who are scholars of the Holocaust are pointing to the record by this government, Ben Veer and others, saying, this is, we have a looming genocide here. We're looking at the looming genocide. And I must say, Chris, somebody who was, you know, raised in Jerusalem, I worry also about this conflict becoming a religious conflict and seeing what's happening around the mosque and what's happening about the, the, you know, the church. And you can see that they want bloodshed. Yes, this, I mean, I, I really am praying uh, that that does not happen, but it, it feels bad right now. And I wanted to get both of you on because I want to talk before it gets much worse. Um, so thank you for coming. That is all in on this Thursday night. Alex Wagner tonight starts right now. Good evening. Okay. Um, that's the crux of the matter. That's where we began in 1949, right, Rama? Yeah, it- yeah. yeah, 48, 49, Israel was carved out of Palestine. They created it with uh, the um, League of Nations that became the United Nations. I think it was called the League of Nations. I could be wrong. Yeah, that was at the beginning. but And right now, it's being said very clearly that the United Nations has been as corrupt as it ever been all this time. Evil. Arrest uh, Bill Gates. Yeah. And all of that ilk. There's an article Penny sent. Uh, we're going to mm. do something about that a little later. So now we're going to shift to our Dr. Stephen Greer. And I'll share this just a little bit before we begin to play. The title is Urgent Request for UFO Government Whistleblowers. New U.S. federal law paves the way for government and government contractors. UFO witnesses to finally come forward, it's time to act. Whistleblowers contact Dr. Greer confidentially at info at seriousdisclosure.com. Help, oh, that's a request to crowdfund for the this uh, latest documentary. I think this is the third one. It's called The Lost Century Documentary. Yes. And you can go to https colon forward slash forward slash 
thelostcenturyfilm.com. Dr. Greer is the founder of the Disclosure Movement and one of the world's foremost authorities on UFOs, extraterrestrial intelligence, and initiating peaceful contact with interstellar civilizations. Dr. Greer's relentless efforts toward the destruct the disclosure of classified UFO slash ET information <clears throat> have inspired millions of supporters around the world. Dr. Greer's mission is to initiate peaceful contact and to put an end to the disinformation surrounding contact. To achieve this goal, it will take 1% of the world's population to come together with peaceful intent, with peaceful intent and initiate contact. To that end, Dr. Greer has produced three highly credible documentaries on the subject. Um, he has amassed a large following on social media, and he has inspired a far-reaching network of independent CE5. What does that stand for again? Oh, it's the... Uh, have close encounters of a fifth kind. Yes. That's right. That's what that stands for. Okay. It's an app on the Google Play Store and the Apple iPhone Store that does, you gotta go to Google Play or Apple Play, whatever it may be, and you download it and an application opens up on your phone where you can interact with other uh, CE5 members all over the world. And on there, he has meditations and ideas and ways how to peacefully contact our family from the stars. And it, it works. That's what I can say. Okay, so let's just go. That was very good, Roma. Let's start. This is 48 minutes and 50 seconds, everyone. Oh, my. Hi, Dr. Greer. Good afternoon. Hello, everybody, and thank you, Pat, for joining me. How are you? Good. Swamp, busy. A big announcement to make for everyone. Um you know, now that we're in the middle of uh, January and past the New Year and holidays, uh, a couple of days before Christmas, the, pre the Congress passed and the president signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which is the funding bill for the Pentagon for the next year. In it is a clear provision for UFO whistleblowers and witnesses to come forward uh, through a protected mechanism where they can legally share everything they know and any materials, documents, anything they have. And that is an enormous breakthrough. And so this whole YouTube today is about making a call and an appeal 
for courageous people to come forward because now they're protected. They have a legal mechanism. There's no gray area. And it includes, importantly, which was not originally in the draft, which I, which we wanted in, are contractors. So people who work for Lockheed Skunk Works, people who work for other defense contractors or tech contractors um, who are in the private sector. If it came through of any government funding or contractor for the military intelligence community, as well as government uh, military and intelligence employees or former employees, retired or current, they can now come forward fully protected for their non-disclosure agreements through this specific provision. So that is the first time in history that's been authorized. And I think that door is wide open right now, and we should walk through it with everything we can. So what I'd like for everyone listening to listen very carefully, the process for doing this, we have at our website, there's, you can go to info at seriousdisclosure.com, S-I-R-I-U-S disclosure.com. So info at seriousdisclosure.com. That will get to me. We will handle you very confidentially as we have hundreds of these uh, whistleblowers in the past uh, 25 years. And what we're doing is taking people like that. We're going to do it soon with one. Taking them over to the top people that are cleared word Code, code, you know, code word clearance, TSSA, top secret special compartmented information to take them into a secure place and get their information so that the constitutional government of the United States that has been deceived on this and not been given information can find out and get to the bottom of the entire issue. So this is a, a major initiative. We want people to contact us soon and uh, I will handle those folks with very high level of confidentiality. Great. Now, is this a permanent? This is permanent, right? They can't walk this back at all, can they? This- well, of course, every, every Congress can write a bill that supersedes another one. It happens every day. Mm. Which, like I said, doors open, wide open now. Who knows in a year or two? So I think we should seize the day. Right. Okay. It's very momentous. It is. And a little history here. Um, over the last 30 years, from briefing the director of the CIA to meeting with members of the Senate and House, Pentagon, others, here and abroad, there was never a legal mechanism for any government to get to the bottom of this for people who had this level of clearance. And the people who courageously came forward with the disclosure project in the National Press Club event in 2001 did it based on a different mechanism. Now, both are in play. What was the first mechanism? The first mechanism is that we wrote in 1997 25 years ago, was called a UNOD letter, unless otherwise directed. And my military advisor said, hey, Dr. Greer, 
Here's something that's done all the time. You write an assessment to the key agencies and the heads of, of various departments of the government that says, unless otherwise directed, this is our assessment of a situation. And our assessment was, <clears throat> by then, we could prove legally that these deep black projects running the UFO issue were unconstitutional and illegal and were outside of the oversight of the president, the CIA director I briefed, and senior members of the Congress I had met with, including back then members of the Senate Intelligence Committee who oversee all this, allegedly, but it worked. And we had also, through meetings, proven that the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency and Admiral Wilson, head of intelligence joint staff, were also being denied access, being deceived and threatened by this rogue, thuggish group. Based on that, we said because of this, all national security oaths and non-disclosure agreements are null and void because the underlying program that they've been in, even though they didn't know it, is being run outside the law, against the law itself. Now, from 1997 to now, no one in the U.S. government has contradicted that assessment. And the way this works is once it's sent and it was signed and received and sent back to us, if they don't intervene, we put, I think we put 90 days on it, which would have been 25 years ago, early 1998, then you can proceed. This mechanism is very nicely done. And that's how I got the first group of, of disclosure witnesses, about 100 of them, that you see in the disclosure book and at the National Press Club, 20 of them were there. Well, those men and women were convinced that that was true, so they courageously came forward. Now we have that in place, plus an officially sanctioned law for people to come forward. So now there's no excuse. We, we, we have a door wide open. I've been working with the people who have been central to creating that. Um, and I personally hand off the information and uh, a per, a per, the personnel. So if someone comes to me, I will meet with them and then bring them to where they're then taken into a secure uh, compartmented information facility, SCIF, or the vault. <laughs> it's called the vault. And, and they can share everything. And the people they're speaking to have the highest clearance to receive everything. And these guys, <clears throat> year on working with them, they're the real thing. They're honest. They're courageous. They're in the constitutional government. They respect the rule of law. And they're wanting to go the whole distance on it. So both key members of, of the government, Congress, the elected, but these people who are really the main investigators, they're all the real thing. Now, there's an office called Arrow, A-A-R-O, that um, is also uh, receiving testimony, but that would be uh, after these key people have are sure that they documented the information so that that office, the Arrow office from the Pentagon, doesn't just bury their testimony. So we have a check and balance in place uh, watchdog. So that's what we want people to understand. 
And I will personally handle folks who have that information. Now, what we don't want, please don't slam us with conspiracy theories or rumors or fourth hand I heard bought it up. But we do need to know if either if you yourself or someone you know is a first hand uh, person who may have been in a facility, worked on a project, been at a UFO event, reverse engineered ET craft, including documents, because this allows a mechanism for documentation that such whistleblowers may have to be brought in. Um, and for that matter, material, if someone had actual physical material from a craft or what have you. So all of this mechanism is going. We think that we have uh, really want to, in the next six months, get that process um, fully stood up. And uh, it's very exciting. And people will be protected and people will be confidential. Now, eventually, it'd be nice if some people who are willing would come publicly forward outside of this uh, mechanism uh, because we're planning in late May, we haven't said it yet, to have another national press club event, sort of a big, bigger version of the Disclosure Project in 2001. Um, but <laughs> that is very much been on people's stomach for being publicly identified. You don't have to be publicly identified for what I'm talking about. You can be completely anonymous to the public, confidential, and uh, provide the information. <coughs> Excuse me. So that to me is a patriotic duty. I mean, if you if you have worked as a contractor or a government, military, or intelligence person, and there's now you now know, as do some key people in the government that there's been an extra legal, Ill, illegal, uh, unconstitutional project managing this issue for, well, since at least the late 50s, that you now have a patriotic duty to come forward. Why? Because if we don't have the rule of law and we don't have people coming forward with the courage to let the people we do elect and appoint, then we're back to the jungle. We're we're seeding the, we're seeding this entire issue and really the future of the planet to thugs and criminals. I'll be very blunt. That's what those groups are. And they know it, by the way. <clears throat> These guys in those groups know that they have been operating outside the law. And since I've been able to prove that since the late 90s, that took me about 10 years to prove it. From early 90s to late 90s, I spent a lot of time meeting with people who, if this was being overseen properly, definitely would have known about it. The president's people, CI director, people I mean, those people, you cannot say that you're running a project legally when you are deceiving, lying to, and also embezzling over the years, trillions of dollars that have gone into these reverse engineering programs and UFO-related research projects without the knowledge and consent of the legally appointed and elected government of the United States. You cannot have it both ways. So that's the case. Now, most people, men and women who've been in these projects, they've sort of are, you know, involved in one little area. They're not in the top of the management. They assume that it's being overseen. Every single uh, disclosure witness I've had assumed when they were working the issue, 
that through the chain of command and the legal constitutional system, that that was being run properly. It was not. And that was the big discovery we made in the 90s. Now, interestingly, key people in the government now have discovered that is absolutely true. And so this is why we have, uh, I think, a moral and ethical obligation to come forward um, at least through this confidential mechanism so that the people who are sincere trying to get to the bottom of this on behalf of the U.S. government and the people of the United States do so. And uh, I think that uh, in the best case scenario, some of these uh, that will come forward will actually come forward publicly for the public and the media. But that is not a requirement. I want to emphasize that's the ideal, but it's not required. No one needs to feel like they have to be publicly out there in order to give us a contact us. So again, it's info at seriousdisclosure.com. So everyone, please post that on all your social media, link to this YouTube, and let people know that this is literally in 70 years, probably, uh, well, not probably, definitely, the biggest, um, has the most potential for ending this illegal secrecy and moving the subject forward and solving the problem. Because ultimately, if it isn't solved at a large level, peace in the world, the technologies that need to come out. You know, everyone knows we're doing the Lost Century uh, documentary about the technologies that have been kept secret for 100 years. Um, and you can help support the crowdfunding there at thelostcenturyfilm.com. And that's plan- we're planning to have that come out in late May now. So I think that it, it all goes well. The tech platforms are now requiring like 120 days from the time you deliver it to the time it comes out. They've extended it by almost double recently. So, um, but we're looking at, at late May, hopefully. But the reason that's important is that then the public will be aware of what the stakes are. Because it's not just the rule of law, which is big enough. It's what are, what are they keeping secret? What's so important that they would do these illegal, unconstitutional actions. Well, it's the corrupt, the collusion and corruption between big industrial and financial interests and covert programs to protect financial interests and cartels. Because, hey, how we said You know, a huge testimony for the Jewish people, and it's fairly well known, that in the early step, I always say, look at the Tic Tac, look at how that UFO's moving. Not, there's no oil on board, there's no rockets, there's no solid rockets, there's no nuclear power plant, it's an electromagnetic field propulsion, it's pulling energy from the fabric of the space-time around at zero point, and it's moving. Now, those technologies applied to peaceful energy use would completely save the biosphere and end poverty on the planet within 20 years, maybe less. So this is a great consequence to the future of humanity and to our planet. And then on top of it, once this issue can get disclosed properly, there's a chance that the leaders around the world will figure, whoa, we're not alone. Who's mining that store? 
who's taking care of that relationship. Now the CE5 contact community is doing this as citizen diplomats. But ultimately, leaders of the world need to look at this and realize that the worst case scenario is what's happening now. And that is criminally minded thugs who are in this military industrial illegal group are the ones firing at and and damaging the potential relationship between humans and extraterrestrial civilizations. That's ultimately the biggest threat of all of this, even probably more dangerous immediately than the biosphere and the environment being damaged. <clears throat> Not all those issues have to be addressed. Is why we've been doing both the CE5 contact effort and the disclosure project and the work on these technologies for you know 30 years. But here's a mechanism that all we you know I ask people for their you know <laughs> thoughts and prayers as we we do this because. Obviously, you know, it's the, it's some risk personally to myself, but I think that we have to, we have to move forward. Uh, like I said, maybe in a year or two, they close that door. Somebody changes that law and closes it. There's, you cannot guarantee it when you're dealing with politics and in politics, it can often be corrupting influences. So right now, this is a huge achievement, big breakthrough, and we're asking for everyone's support. Do you feel like more and more people in the American government are uh, more and more of the lawmakers and politicians? Do you feel like they are beginning to understand this and learn about it? I mean, it's been a small group that you're working with, but do you feel like that's growing? Excuse me. Oh, definitely. I mean, what, what I know it's not what I think, it's what I know, is that enough information that we put together in the last year has been provided to key people. And now they're a dog with a bone. They're like, well, there's something here. And they want to get to the bottom of it. And I think for that to happen, they need more and more firsthand people. You know, remember... Listen, everyone, all the conspiracy theories notwithstanding, I'm a retired emergency doctor. I've never gotten an Indian hit typical from a corporation or the government. I've never worked for anyone doing this. This has all been a volunteer effort. The entire disclosure project has been funded through donations and volunteers. But at the same time, we've collected so much information that we're now in possession of the largest intelligence archive in the world and so that's the other thing we're working on. We need help here. And so here's uh, a request number two. <laughs> we're working on putting together, uh, finishing this archive in the next few months. And we hope it can be released and announced to the whole world at a national press club event in late May. Now, you know, Stuff sitting on a 10 terabyte hard drive doesn't help the world much. We need probably one of the best website designers from new security in the world to help us build a website that is, I don't know, technology this way, blockchain or whatever, backed up, that can hold 5 to 10 terabytes. A huge amount of material, totally searchable, word searchable, that we would load into the Internet, so that everyone in the media 
and in governments around the world, and the man on the street public would have access to everything we have, except names I need to protect. The only thing we're going to redact, full disclosure, if, if someone's come to me and, is, and, and I have their information and they're wanting it to be kept just private or only conveyed to these key people in the government, I'm not going to ever violate that trust. So that that would not be in there for people who just are, you know, wanting salacious gossip. But um, because that is unethical. And as a medical doctor, we know how to keep a confidence. But everything else, documents, um, something like 119 retrieval cases of ET and some man-made UFOs we have. Uh, all the data on them, the where, the when, the location of all the facilities, how this is funded. This is going to be the biggest reference site in history for this subject. And to make that available to the public, two things. We're going to need funding for it. And secondly, we're going to need someone who technically knows how to do that, which, as you know, Pat, I can't even turn my my wife turns my computer on for me. I'm sort of I'm an IT moron for sure. But um, we do need help with that. So if anyone knows someone who can do it, either pro bono or inexpensively, because right now we don't have a budget for this. We're just doing it. Like even these people I'm moving in to D.C. who are top secret guys, uh, we're funding. The Disclosure Project is funding in all this because we want to be sure that this is handled very carefully. So uh, that's another thing we need is people who can support this, uh, the, the cost. I estimate in the next year we'll probably spend around 250000 doing all this. But, you know, someone who can help, please help. But – that's um, going to be a big task because to make a functional, safe, secure website with that much content, it's big. Yeah. a lot. It can be done. It can be done. Um, a question. When you were talking about <laughs> other countries and other governments who, mm-hmm. who are obviously watching this closely uh, at this point, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Have they reached out? Or what Do they have anything in place so that people in their country... Excuse me, I'm getting over a little cold. Yes, oh yeah. I mean, I know people forward. who... Yes, people from Canada and other countries have reached out to me. Um, the thing is, is that the United States is, is, from a global economic and military and national security point of view, is like the 800-pound gorilla on the block. And I know years ago, I was meeting with a cabinet-level person from Japan. And when I mentioned, I said, look, you know, this is stalled out with the president. No one in Congress is pursuing this. Why don't you, why doesn't your government take the lead on this? Because I'll give you guys everything, too, because I don't have a security clearance. I can share what I have with anyone in the world. I've kept myself free of ever signing a non-disclosure agreement. So I'm a free agent. He, and he, he turned white pale. He said, oh, no. We can never get out ahead of the U.S. on this, ever. We never would, never. And he was just like panicked with the idea of it. So I think that in reality, I mean, most Americans don't realize that, you know, it, 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 the center of gravity on military, intelligence, economic, financial is in the United States, whether we like it or not. Uh, now, it doesn't mean, honestly, there could be other countries, and I've said this for years, 
that if, if there were other presidents or prime ministers or, or governments around the world that really wanted to get to the bottom of this, we hand off everything we have and they start pursuing it, they could uh, actually advance this very far. But they'd have to do it. They're, they're usually very afraid of stepping out ahead of what the U.S. government's doing because of the, the power and intimidation of, of America, I'd say. It. But, I mean, it's just geo-reality, geopolitics. So uh, I would welcome that. If someone's got a very high contact, if someone wants to pursue it, I'll fly and I'll do anything. You know, my whole mission is getting the truth out, resolving this problem, and by the way, let's move on to where we should have been in 1954 or something. You know, let's let's go, let's move this on. Since you know we've frittered away a century here, but um, so that is something I welcome. But so far, no one's there've been inquiries, but no one really wanted to take the bull by the horns and do it. Do you think any of these other governments uh, will? sign bills and put out legislation like we have with this whistleblower, the NDA. We'll see. We'll see. I haven't heard anything. There's some talk in Canada or something somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Too bad Paul Hellier's not still around. <laughs> yes. Wonderful man. Uh, well, this is interesting. Um, just to be clear about this other one point, um, this AARO, this would not be the first stop for someone who wants to come forward, right? No. Uh, they'd like it to be. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> but we have a system in place above that, and we're, uh, let's just say I think that has much more credibility and power and um, dedication to the truth. I've worked with those people for a year, giving them a huge amount of information. Now, I think there are some good people in, in, in Arrow who would like to, but most of them have only been involved maybe six months. They know nothing about the subject. Uh, as you saw last spring during those hearings, there were Congress people who knew about the cases we brought forward about the UFOs concern about our nuclear, like minor North Dakota. In the disclosure book. And the guys in that office knew nothing about it. I mean, this was Office of Naval Intelligence guy, Bray, and this guy. So they really um, need uh, help and guidance. But we're also concerned about the politics of those folks who are in the military end of it to get pressure, to get information, and then bury it. I'm not saying that's what they're going to do. But these are facts, not in evidence, as a lawyer would say. So I, we have this system to be sure that can't happen. Because these key people in, in, in the U.S. government will know everything these whistleblowers are, are sharing at the, just before they're handed over and, and given information over to Arrow. So I, and that's a very important check and balance because we know what has happened in the past where you set up an office becomes a storefront, sort of a dog and pony show, and stuff goes in, nothing ever comes out. So we want to be sure that doesn't happen this time. Right. I think a lot of people who watched um, the televised, uh, those hearings, most of them, I think, thought that 
then we're answering really knew, but we're keeping it a secret. But what you're saying is really most of them don't know at all. They didn't. They don't. It's sad. So one of the saddest things I learned 30 years ago in 93 was that some of these people, you think, oh, it's this person and that person, and they have an all-access pass. They have top-secret clearances in a very high position. They're not given any information. And unfortunately, that's the structure of the secrecy. It keeps them in the dark. So I have sympathy for that. But at the same time, I know historically, once someone starts going down this path, there's intimidation, there's threats, there's corruption, there's career threats, and things go sideways. <clears throat> Over the past year, I've found that this team that's really leading this and trying to get all this done are have the most incredible integrity. I've been singularly impressed, and I'm not impressed easily by that kind of thing, frankly, because, you know, you, 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 the, the, you're, it's the fire test. And they've been under fire, and they're still fighting the good fight. So um, it's it's a very uh, important initiative. Certainly, in my 33 years of doing, I have seen nothing this promising. And now that this law is enshrined, I recently had a man contact me who had been watching what we've been doing for over 20 years. Very code level, word code level, um, TSSCI top secret special compartment intelligence dealing with this issue. And he says, I was waiting for this moment and waiting for a mechanism, a law that lets me do this. And that's happening. And actually this is soon going to be handed off that all that information to this person. So it's, 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 I think people out there need to share this information and our info at seriousdisclosure.com with everyone. You never know. Six degrees of separation, right? Someone you know that knows someone else that knows someone else. Boom. There's someone who worked at Raytheon or someone who worked at Nellis or Wright-Patterson, Edwards. It's coming, everybody. Oh, they're all over the place. Very good. They went to the now. It's time for them come together. Come together. What happens after? What happens after these groups gather this intelligence (laughs) that's about these covert uh, operations? What happens then? Excuse me. Here's what I think. It's impossible to predict. Great question. Ultimately, what will the National Security Council, the president, and the leaders in the Congress do? Because that's where the buck stops right there. Right? It stops there. Because that's the constitutional elected and appointed government. Um, and that has to do with their understanding and their courage and vision. So they need to understand the issues, which they don't fully yet. And they have to have the courage to do the right thing in the face of enormous pressure not to. 
So this gets into the whole question, the issue I, I said this decades ago. This all comes down to someone's courage to do the right thing, whether it is benefits you selfishly and personally or politically or financially or not. Um, and that's a tough thing for humans, I mean, obviously. But it has to do with values and integrity and courage. And so that's hard to predict. Now, the backstop is what we're doing, disclosure project. Because I know who everyone is and I know what everyone knows. And we'll see at the end of May who's been naughty and nice. And depending on how things go, it'll depend, that will drive how much I disclose and don't disclose. If there's no forward momentum or some corrupt interest stops this, the world's going to be in for an enormous shock. Yeah. You, 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 yeah. Yeah. Then, then the whole, the, the full Monty happens. But, you know, my hope is that now I think this is a process of years. I mean, you know, that first of all, if you're starting with almost no information, except what you Googled on the internet, 90% of which is rubbish. What are you going to do? So what if you're the chairman of a key committee? You, if, if you've been denied information, you have been not read into or briefed on it, then you've got to learn all the way back from the 40s to now. You have to learn what they have, where they have it, why it's been kept secret, how it's kept been kept secret, how have they gotten the money? And we're doing all that in, in this intelligence archive that we're, we're handing off. Because without that, it makes no sense. You know, how could a clandestine operation be running off the radar since the 50s? Mm-hmm. But it has. But see, that statement right there takes months. In, in ha- when I've worked with these folks, for them to get their mind around that level of manipulation, machinations, corruption. <clears throat> Most people, unfortunately, don't think that that level of corruption could exist uh, in covert programs, either corporate or government, but it does. And that is very disappointing and very heartbreaking, but also scary. And I call, you know, I coined the term disclosure PTSD. With these, a lot of these guys have been dealing with for the last year, they, they have a type of post-traumatic stress disorder from learning all this because now they know it's true. It's Because I've given them enough information and get inside places, inside skiffs and inside bases. And so it's, your whole world flips upside down. I was talking to someone late last night about 2 a.m. about this um, because it, it just your whole paradigm is, is, is shaken. And that's hard. I mean, if you're a conventional politician or bureaucrat or whatever, or president even, that is just a shocking system. So we also have to be patient about the process. Right. Well, some of these ones who are being more vocal that they want, that they, they mm-hmm. know they're not being told, they know they're not being allowed to have the information and they're becoming more vocal. Have any of them reached back out to you to ask uh, any questions? Yes. Okay. And I will provide everything I can. The only thing, for example, if I'm working with very senior people who are sensitive 
don't want to be identified to someone who's not their immediate chairman of a committee or whatever, I'm not going to tell another congressman exactly who that is, but I'll talk about the process and what's going on. One of them, you know, a lot of them think members of their own party are lying to them. When in reality, the senior people in that same party don't know anything. Because if you're, say, new to Congress, there's a, there's a congressman who's reached out, who's spoken publicly about this uh, recently, uh, uh, Burchette from uh, Tennessee. And, and he's, he's rightly upset that this is secret and that there's anything classified about it. But I think many times those people will think, gee, there are people who are hiding this from me. Well, they can't hide what they don't know. Right? So this is, this is the hardest thing for people to get their minds around. I think in my 30 years doing this, understanding the nature of the secrecy, that it's so deep and so secret that people, that everyone, if you ask a thousand people on the street, do you think this person, the CI director, or this person, the chairman of a key oversight committee in the Senate, would know, be read into and know all this? Most people say, oh, yeah, of course. They don't. And that, when I discovered that in 1993, that flipped my world upside down, honestly, because I went, what? This is a looking glass. This cannot be. And so I'm very compassionate. I know what kind of, um, how upsetting that was to me because it wasn't like, you know, people sit on the computers and endless nonsense conspiracy theories. But when you're actually sitting there briefing a CI director or a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, who, who, by the way, the one I, one of them I briefed was the senator for uh, uh, Nevada, where Nelson says, and, and Area 51, and he had never been told anything. And he was on the Intelligence Committee of the Senate, back then, Brian. And I met with him at a secret room inside McCarran Airport in Las Vegas years ago. And he was just flat-footed. He said, I can't. So this is... <laughs> You know, everyone puts their, their pants on one leg at a time and everyone have these sort of like grandiose ideas. And we have to understand uh, that there are people who've been in the Congress and the White House who have deceived each other. But most of them know nothing. Ninety nine percent probably. But the ones who do, they're there to deceive and to interrupt and stop progress. In other words, they're corrupt. I know who those are too. <laughs> I'm talking about. But so this disclosure of all this, um, when you talk about PTSD disclosure, mm-hmm. <laughs> general public, um, some who follow you and follow this subject matter know a lot about this, and then they they probably know more about some of the people on the hill for sure. Um, yes. The vast majority of people may not know about this, and to them, this may sound like science fiction or or conspiracy theory. Um, I think this this yeah. may be hard for them, some of them, to really believe or wrap their heads around some of this. So, what would you? And it is, and this is why. <coughs> excuse me. The briefing materials have to be graduated 
So, you know, like in, in, in modules or, or, you know, step one, step two, step five, step 20. It, you cannot, you can't take someone from kindergarten who's adding one and one is two to calculus. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work. And so this is why I talk about this process having to be very well thought through, also compassionate, um, and, uh, with it structured so that you don't, if you try to go too far too fast, you leave them. They just go, this can't be. So it's, it's a, it's a very hard thing for me to balance because from where I sit, because I've lived with this for so much of my life now. I mean, I'm 67. I've been doing this for 33 years. It's half my biological life. Um, I think that, you know, I have to understand that someone just learning this, it doesn't matter what their rank and position is or scientific credentials. You have to understand that they have to be uh, brought along. And, and frankly, the public's going to have to be brought along that way, um, which is why we started doing things like Unacknowledged and the Disclosure Project press conference and the books. Now, honestly, anyone who would look at Unacknowledged, read the book, Unacknowledged, I, I guarantee you know more about this issue than any chairman of any committee in the U.S. Congress or National Security Council staff. That's true. But they're busy with a million other issues, right? You look at everything going on in the world, uh, and they're pulled in a thousand directions, and there's only so many hours in the day. And so you have to be able to put things in a very succinct way that makes the point, and most importantly, again, whistleblowers who know credible prove who they were they go in and it's not coming from a retired doctor who's never been in the government it's coming from the horse's mouth because i all i can do is help set up the meat and and advise and put this information together but ultimately the reason these this whistleblower law is so important they have the power they have clearances. They were there, you know. I know what I know from having over, I'd say over a thousand people who've been involved with these projects that I've met with and discussed this with over the years. But that secondhand, firsthand knowledge, people who actually work the system, are in the system, were in the system, even if they were in the system 40 years ago, very important. So we want them to come forward. Right. It's very important. I know you've mentioned this before for the general public. Um, and, and in something like this, even some of the people in the government who are trying to find information yeah. would be using the same tools that the general public would be using, like the Internet. And we've talked about this before, the black hole of disinformation. It is so easy to get Diverted right into that. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you caution people about this? You inoculate them in advance. I tell them most of what you're going to encounter is some form of fantasy disinformation spin half truth, which is why this archive that has very specific information, documents, testimony of people who have come forward, etc. Um scientific information 
that is going to be important for the public, for our leaders, and for policymakers. So it sort of needs to become the reference material. And by the way, anyone out there who's got material like that, that they want us to review, be part of this, please get hold of us. Because Michael Schrapp is working with me to create that vast intelligence and information archive. And um, every month or so, we get another whole group of documents or information that we're getting through networking. So, you know, don't assume that anything you have is trip unimportant. If it's a legitimate case, uh, witness, government document, corporate document, all this is very, very important. And they're all being scanned in, you know, word, word searchable PDF. Right. You've said before that some people may think that their, their part of the story is a very small one. But you've tried to make this clear that, you know, these are all little pieces of the, of the puzzle. Well, this is why I tell people I started out having had contact and I started out with, <coughs> excuse me, a little bit of information and then more and another and another and another. It's like a million pieces of a puzzle that we're assembling. And each piece has come from this source, that source, what have you. Now, the hard part of this is really what's called intelligence analysis, which is really what my kind of specialty of this is. And that's connecting all those dots so you know where that puzzle piece fits. But just because someone has some little part of the puzzle, it may be something that then lights up a whole part of that picture. Does this make sense? Very important. So people should not think we're, we're not, it's very unlikely that someone at the very top of this organization, this covert organization, is going to come in with the holy grail of everything. The way we've assembled it so far is bit by bit by bit by bit by bit painstakingly, uh, which is 30 years of work. But that's why people should not undersell themselves because whatever bit you know or experienced or saw or this document or this information you had about this place, that may, we, I will be able to plug that in and go, ah, that fills in this missing blank. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's, that's really the hard work of this. You know, it's, it's, it's not, you don't wave a magic wand and get this entire, because you're really pulling back layer after layer after layer after layer of the secrecy over 70 years of it. Yeah, it goes back quite a way. Oh, well, to World War II. Or in 70 years. So. Well, this is. So it's, a, it's exciting. Um, we need help. So we need help with people building this site, internet site that would be the reference of all reference Bibles, as it were, for this issue. We need people to help fund these disclosure events in 2023. We need top secret and other corporate military witnesses to come forward. So put the word out. Thank you guys. I mean, you know, you, you know, Pat, you've done a great job helping get the word out, but we need everyone, you know, take this YouTube interview out of my farm in Virginia and just put it everywhere you can link it everywhere. 
everyone who's listening. And, and you know, we have almost half a million subscribers now uh, on our YouTube channel, but we need that to be, you know, 10 million or something in terms of the reach of this message, because now is the door opened. It's, it's, it's an opportunity we don't want to squander. It's a great opportunity. So I thank everyone for your help and uh, Pat for your help. Thank you. And um, uh, they will put links in this at the bottom of this YouTube interview so people can follow the links. Great. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Dr. Greer. Stay Have safe. a good night. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay, everybody. That's exciting, don't you think, Rama? Yeah. Something's coming, something good, something's coming. I knew it would, right? Yes. The next line is, who knows? Mm. Where's that article, that next one, the reading for the next one? Mm. Okay, read it, you read it. Oh, this is Resilience of the Heart. New discoveries reveal how the heart prepares our body for the emotional, psychological, and spiritual input to charge our batteries of resilience. In this opening session of the Science of Resilience, you will discover the resilience curve and the science that builds the foundation for your resilience practice. We are learning how to regenerate these bodies. Immortality is a reality. <laughs> I like that. That rhymes, Rama. It is. <laughs> it is. Here we go. There's no such thing as dying unless we want it. Yeah. I know. I mean, what Dr. Greer talked about is I gotta say, there are certain members of Congress that know about our family and friends. Bernie Sanders is one. Miss AOC is another. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is another. I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay, let's start. This is an hour and 28 minutes, everybody. So, here we go. Gaiosphere Event Center, The Science of Resilience, with Bruce Lipton and Greg Braden. The Science of Resilience. I'm your host, Christy Cooley. Our mission at Gaiosphere is to ignite an inner awakening. So I'd like to invite you all to leave behind the outside world for the next few minutes and let yourself be fully present and receptive to this moment right now. Now, I'd like to welcome to the stage the host of the Gaia Original Series, Missing Links, and the host of the Gaia Original Series, Inner Evolution, Greg Braden and Bruce Lipton. Thank you, Christy. 
Wow. Wow. Oh, wow. Look at this. Oh, wow. Good morning. Good morning to all. Well, I, I just have to ask, do you feel as good as you look? Okay. Do you feel as good as we look? <laughs> That's the big question. I don't know. Bruce, good morning. Good morning, Brother Craig. Listen, we have a wonderful opportunity today. Brand new story. Brand new. And it's all for this special audience and our audience around the world. We have a world audience today. We do have a world audience. We are streaming live. I'm going to look right in this camera right here. And I want to say hello, streaming audience. We saved you a seat. You're not here. So we're going to say hello to you through that camera. We don't know quite how many countries. We know there are many nations, and we are simulcasting in Spanish for our Latin community. Yeah. So we will say, hey, Hola. good morning to our Latin <laughs> brothers and sisters, okay? So uh, so you all are part of a global audience, and that's what makes us so exciting. And I want to leave this to my brother, Greg, to take this show, carry it, make it look so good that even when I come out, it's still going to look good. No, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, war, <laughs> the warm up act for this guy. Here. So, so some of you may know, you know, people say, well, how come you guys are working together? We just figured it out on the calendar. We are coming up on our 30 year anniversary that we have known one another. Yes. And I've had the honor to share the stage with this beautiful man, pioneer in the New science that's not so new because he was pioneering in the 1960s epigenetics. Whoa! Yeah. I'm old. No, you're ageless. <laughs> ageless. You are, you are an ageless man. You're an ageless brother. And, and Greg has been involved here for over, what, 30 years now with Gaia. I, so I have a history with Gaia. They used to be another building and it used to be called another name. Uh, one time it was called Gaia M. Some of you probably remember that. Uh, and I was the, the first film that they did. My hair was a little longer, a little darker. You will see a brief film clip from that here this morning. So you'll, you'll be able to see that. So, so we have been with the evolution of Gaia and I just want to thank you all for supporting Gaia. We got a big couple of days. I want to thank everyone making this possible. Behind this wall is a control room that looks like manned spacecraft center at Houston. Seriously. And I'll, I'll take some pictures and I'll show you later. Uh, we have an amazing tech team. We've got awesome camera teams. We've got people that are working that you won't even see today to make this possible. And I just want to tell you all we love you, and I want to thank you all for everything you're doing to make this uh, the event that it is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Gaia again. Gaia has been educating the world for years, and we need it today, folks. So uh, that you're here makes us feel really good. Thank you. i got to go hide. And let my brother take the show. All right. So so what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to trade off on the stage. I'm going to speak this morning. We'll take a break. Bruce, come up before and after lunch. He likes those uh, combined blocks because he's got a lot to say. I'm going to come back. We're going to do a Q&A this afternoon. We'll do it again uh, tomorrow. And uh, just give you a sense, if you're like me, you'd like to know what this day looks like, where it's going. And, um, and the itinerary is subject to change. Okay, we'll just see where we go with everything. All right. Bruce, you can take take the rest of the take morning the, off. T- take the next 90 <laughs> minutes off. All right. And we just so love you all here, there, around the world, because um, life is beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let's see you in a while. Thanks. Isn't he an awesome man? Yeah, we are, are really excited to be with you today. We truly have never done quite this program in this way 
I want to talk to you about that a little bit before we get into it. You know, you've seen Bruce speak exclusively on biology belief, epigenetics. You've heard me talk about everything, everything from if you watch the Missing Links. Anybody watch Missing Links series? Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, from uh, the possibility that we're in a simulated reality to cycles of time and change. And all of that is important. And all of it is happening. And I just want to acknowledge that right off the bat. This this is a time, unlike any time in the history of our planet that we have ever seen. We've never seen 8 billion people undergoing the kind of change that we are seeing. Some is driven by natural rhythms and cycles that we'll talk about. Some is human-induced, capitalizing upon the natural rhythms and cycles. There are organizations, you all know who I'm talking about, that, that say, okay, we're in a time of change. Let's don't let a big change go to waste. Let's just change everything. So we're hearing about... Great resets, resets of society, resets of economies, resets of technologies. All that's happening. It's not why we're here today. What that means, the degree of change that you and I are undergoing right now, we've not been prepared emotionally as a society to embrace this level of change. We've not been prepared psychologically as a society to undergo this much change in a single generation. You think about it, you know, when change happens, it usually happens kind of slowly and gradually, you know, usually maybe one generation. You know, there was a generation not long ago that embraced computers. That was a big deal. Well, then a generation began to embrace cell phones, and that was a big deal. But look at what we're doing right now. We've got virtual realities and uh, and technologies that are being implanted into the human body, linking us with those virtual realities. And we're we're digitizing the world. Is it a good thing or a bad thing, right or wrong? You and I have to choose that for ourselves. But all of it, all of it means that we are undergoing a level of stress, mm-hmm. unlike anything we've ever seen. Would you agree with that? Anybody feeling stress? I, <laughs> I know probably most of you are really good meditators and aren't feeling much stress in your life, right? I want to ask, anybody feel, anybody feel attention in your lives, in your bodies, in your families, in your communities, in your societies? Anybody, anybody feel that? I, we do as well. And I want you to know you're not alone. The, the authors that you look up to and the speakers and the scientists and the, the, the thought leaders, we get together behind the scenes. You know, during COVID, during the lockdowns, we were on the phones with one another. That was our community. Community is so important. We had our, our community. We're all feeling it. And the key is that you've got to find a way to embrace this level of change and to do it in a healthy way. This is the key. How do we we're in the change? I was doing a radio program not long ago and I had done an interview in the year 2012. Y'all remember 2012, kind of the crazy, the crazy year, the Mayan calendar and, and all of that. And the, the guy on the, on the radio, the guy interviewing me, he said, In 2012, he said, this is no big deal. He says, when's all this change going to begin? And then I interviewed with him in January and the same guy. And he said, wow, when's all this change going to (laughs) end? The point is, we have been talking about in some circles and in your community, in your circles, and to some degree preparing for a level of change. We all knew it was coming because it always does. Every 5,125 years, Earth goes through a shift And the people of the earth have to embrace that shift. We've never done it as a technological society. And that's what we're going through right now. So what I want to say to you is it's not something that's going to happen. You all know we're in it. It's happening right now. 
That's the key. We're in it. And the only way out of it is to go through it. And the question is, do we go through it and come out with a soft landing? Or do we have a bumpy ride and come out with a hard landing? How we manage our own emotional state, our own mental state, which is separate, our own psychological state, which is separate, our own spiritual state, our own physiological states, all will determine how you and I and the people that we influence, our own families, our communities, our loved ones, people that we work with, our society, ultimately nations, will de- will be determined how we come through this as nations will be determined by what we do as individuals. And that's what Bruce and I wanted to do. We got together and we said, you know, we know all this other stuff's going on. Yeah, we can talk about it. But what do we do to help us get through this in a healthy way? So that's what I want to talk to you about today. Is that, are you okay with that? Is are, are you at the right program? Everybody's in the right right program, right, right building? So I'm, I want to talk to you about resilience because that's exactly what we're talking about right now. What I found, <laughs> what I found is that resilience means different things to different people. Probably means different things to different people even in this audience. Uh, when I was growing up in the Midwest of this big, beautiful country of ours, I was born and raised in northern Missouri. The idea of resilience was real easy, especially if you were a male growing up in the Midwest during that time. Resilience was suck it up and get over it, right? Anybody relate to that? You know, if you're having a tough day, suck it up and get over it. You know, just keep on keeping on. Well, that can only go so far. And we see the product of that kind of thinking with a lot of mental health issues that that are not addressed. Resilience, it does. It covers a lot of ground. And there are domains of resilience that we're going to address today based upon new science uh, and the new discoveries from the Stockholm Resilience Institute about how we can best deal with resilience. So so let's talk about this. What is resilience? Traditional resilience, a traditional idea of resilience is, and this comes from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it is our ability to recover from or adjust easily to, to a misfortune in, in our lives. And I know you all have a pretty good sense for uh, for what that means. So the idea, the, the ability to recover from some something that happens in our lives. And we talk about communities and resilience or nations. You know, after 9-11, the world was talking about the resilience of America. Or, uh, you know, winter comes around and anybody that lives in the New England states in the U.S. Uh, gets hit with big storms, ice storms. The ice is heavy on the power lines. Power lines break. People without electricity, without heat. And they say, oh, these people are so resilient because they come back every year and they rebuild and they, and they do it again. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But that is the idea of traditional resilience, the idea that you're you're kind of humming along in life. Something comes along. Maybe it's not expected, a black swan event, or maybe it is expected, like the storms happen every year. It's no surprise they're going to happen. And, uh, and then people are able to recover from what that means. There's a new form of resilience, and this is what it – how many are taking notes? Let me ask – I just – this is, I get to see you from the stage. When this slide went up, I saw every, I saw the top of everybody's head because your face went down and I'm looking. So did you all get, uh, notebook, note, notebooks and pencils and papers? Does everyone in this room have a notebook and pencil paper? Cause you're going to need them. Uh, we're going to do some, some exercises here. Okay. I'll make sure everybody has them. Okay. Adaptive resilience. This is from the Stockholm Resilience Center. 
It's a little bit different idea of resilience. It is, they define this as the capacity of a system to continually change and adapt to whatever is coming down the road, yet remain within what they call the critical thresholds that keep things going. So, so what does that mean? Bottom line is what it means, of what it means, is that it is the ability to recognize and embrace what's really happening in the world and make adjustments for what's happening in the world and live your life and plan accordingly for the reality of the world rather than the idea of what you think the world should look like. So this is a perfect example. I'm going to use climate change as an example. As a geologist, I can tell you climate change is a fact. Uh, it's been happening before humans emerged 200,000 years ago. If we disappeared today, it would still be happening. We are contributing to it. We need to go clean green. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. We've had the technology to do that for over 70 years. If we were serious about climate change, we could stop burning fossil fuels right this minute. That's another workshop. That's <laughs> another program. But I, but I want you to know that's true. So we know that climate change is happening. It's not a secret. Uh, as a geologist, as an earth scientist, I'm accustomed to looking at large cycles of time. Some of you I know have, uh, have done the same thing in your lives. So it's no secret that we're going to have uh, weather patterns that shift in the presence of the climate change. Well, in New England, the New England states of the United States, every year they get these big, big snowstorms. Big, heavy ice storms. And if you anybody here from the New England states that lived through these things, okay, uh, Buffalo, New York just had a huge storm about, uh, what was it, two weeks ago? Something like that. I mean, feet and feet of snow that shuts everything down. The ice weighs down on the power lines. The power lines snap and break. Telephone poles fall over. The roads are closed. They can't get through to people to help them out. People don't get food. They don't get water. They can't get medical care. They're out of electricity. No heat. No hot water. And this happens every year. If they were practicing adaptive resilience, the thinking would shift and the thinking would look something like this. Thinking would say, ah, we're in the time of climate change. It makes sense to expect severe weather. It makes sense to expect that we're going to lose power. So this isn't coming from a place of fear. And this is the, the feedback that we get a lot of times. People say, well, if you prepare for the unexpected, you're coming from a place of fear. Adaptive resilience is not about fear. It's about honestly recognizing the world that you live in so that you can be present in a healthy way to prepare for the world that you live in. That's, there's a difference. Can you see the difference between, uh, between coming from a place of fear? There's a huge difference between making changes in your life because of the love for what is possible from those changes rather than the fear of what happens if you don't make the change. Does that make sense if I say that? Huge difference. And I have a lot of friends in the New Thought community who just really give me a hard time. If I talk about preparing for any kind of unexpected, and I want you to know we're living a time of extremes. It makes sense to expect the unexpected, not forever, not for the rest of our lives, but for now, this little window of time, we're going through this change. And you'll see what's driving that change in just a few moments. So adaptive resilience is about honesty. It's saying, how can I be honest with myself? How can we solve the problems in the world if we're not honest with ourselves? So how can 
uh, I'd be honest with myself about what is happening in the world and then taking the steps to prepare for that. So if I were looking, if, if I were running a community in the, in the Northeast of the United States, I would say, you know, we're living a time of climate change. It makes sense to expect the unexpected. Let's bury those power lines under the surface of the earth. Now, think about what that would mean. First of all, if you harden your power grid, bury those power lines, the weather can do whatever it's going to do. It might be difficult, but people are still going to have heat. They're going to have hot water. You know, they're going to have lights in in their home. This is a big deal. Think how many jobs that would create a lot of work burying those power lines. Think of how many trees would be saved. We want our trees. They have to cut down those trees to replace those power lines every year. Uh, and that would be an example of community adaptive resilience. That makes sense if I say it, say it that way. So it's it's uh, it's a big big shift from being afraid of what may happen to saying, you know, if we just honor where we are in the world, we are honoring ourselves and our families. We're loving one another because we can care for one another. We've, we're coming from the strength of taking care of ourselves so we can care for one another. This is adaptive resilience. So what we're looking at here in adaptive resilience, we think and we live in a way that honestly reflects the world that we live in, the conditions of our environment. So we are constantly prepared for the change rather than trying to bounce back and play like that change wasn't going to happen. Like, you know, we we weren't expecting it at all. Uh, And I just gave the example of that climate change. Can you see the difference between traditional resilience and, and adaptive resilience? So when we talk about adaptive resilience, there are five domains. We're going to explore each of these over the next two days. (laughs) I just saw everybody's head go. You're ready. You're ready to write down the five five domains. I'll have a summary for this at the end of the program if you don't want to write it now. So Uh, physiological domain. This is this is our our bodies where we're having the experiences. We're going to talk about this uh, first thing this morning. Mental domain. The emotional domain, the psychological domain, and the spiritual domain. So we're going to spend a little bit of time on each of these. I am. Bruce is going to come in between my talks, and he's going to talk to you about the biology of what these domains really mean, about epigenetics, about epigenetic triggers, about the epigenome and how we access those epigenetic uh, triggers in our bodies, thought, feeling, emotion, beliefs, conscious, unconscious beliefs, all those things. And that's why we're doing this together. We're going to give you some some uh, some very unique perspectives on this. So the question, if anybody's wondering, you know, why would we need resilience? Well, I'm, I'm identifying some of this now. We are, in fact, and, and again, I'm not going to spend the whole day on this, but it's really important to acknowledge this. We are living what is being called a time of extremes. And I think you you know that we're seeing it on every level. We're seeing economic extremes. We are seeing financial extremes, certainly seeing climate extremes. We're seeing social extremes, social engineering on levels that we've never seen before, asking us to change the way that we think and the way that we live uh, and to do it quickly. And honestly, a lot of these extremes are being driven uh, by a a goal of of having them in place within seven years. By the year 2030, this year, the number comes up a lot, 2030 for a lot of different reasons. In the q and I'm happy to talk about that. It's not the focus for what we're doing. I'm just acknowledging that we are living this time of extremes. And I want you to know it's no accident that it's happening now. These are not just spontaneous, random 
events that are happening. And as a scientist, when I began looking at this, and then I began looking at history, every time you see the big changes in history, the uh, the emergence or the collapse of civilizations, the emergence of new technologies, it always happens around these times of extremes. So one of the extremes that we're living right now is climate. Uh, if you are not familiar with this, I'm going to invite you to check out check out this little Gaia series called uh, Missing Links and uh, season number one. And I talk about this a lot, probably more detail than you'll ever want to see on season one of Missing Links. I'm just going to summarize here. You can see these are temperatures uh, that you're seeing right here and uh, ice ice levels um, in Antarctica and Greenland. Uh, I'm just hesitating because I want to go into t- – I, mean, I love talking about this, and I, I don't want to go off on a tangent. So the point is we are living a time of climate extremes. And if this was all that was happening, you know, climate is enough to drive tremendous change in our planet. It's enough to drive migrations of people away from seashores and inland and uh, from extremer areas more towards uh, towards the equator. It's enough to do that. But that's not all that's happening here. We're living economic extremes. And this is happening on a lot of levels, a lot of levels. But the the economists from the 1800s and 1900s, they knew of the cycles of economies. Now, I'm going to make a distinction between economy and finance. Economies are about people uh, and people getting the things that they need, food, energy, water, medicine, communications, there are some economies that have no money. You don't have to have money to have an economy. I've, I've spent a lot of time in indigenous communities. They get everything they need through barter, and there's, there's no monetary system per se. So the economy is separate from the financial system. Financial system is linked into the economy, certainly. But we are living uh, the close of an economic cycle. That's enough to change your life and my life and the way that that nations deal with one another and the way that they trade in commerce. Uh, Bruce and I had the opportunity uh, a few years ago, we were invited to speak at the United Nations in New York. And they asked us, me as an earth scientist, Bruce as a life scientist, to come and talk to them about what we see happening in the world today and what we can expect between now and the year 2030. They said, come and talk to us about what, you know, what you're saying. So we said, okay. So I gave my presentation, and, and I gave the present uh, a presentation on, on the things you're seeing on these cycles, and they were taking notes. They were doing the same thing you're doing, actually. Every time we put this up, everybody's head that they were taking notes. And then, uh, and then I came to the third cycle, and it was a cycle of human conflict. And all of them had a puzzled look on their faces and furrowed eyebrows, and they said, what do you mean, cycles? of human conflict. Doesn't it just happen when it happens? Isn't it just spontaneous? Well, it can be. It can be. So what you're seeing is uh, a a chart of the rhythms of large global conflicts. And they are, are linked to magnetic fields from the earth that are also linked to magnetic fields from the sun that are directly linked to the human heart. And a lot of peer-reviewed science is showing our heart rhythms are influenced. I'm not going to say they are driven. I'm not going to say they are dictated by. They're heavily influenced by these magnetic fields. Everything from blood pressure to heart rate variability uh, to aggression. 
And the bottom line is that when the magnetic fields are weak, we are less willing to cooperate to solve our problems. We're more aggressive as a society and as individuals. This is true in your family, you know, at the, at the family dinner table. Uh, it's true at the workplace. It's not just between nations. And when the magnetic fields are strong, that we are more willing to cooperate, more uh, less less aggressive as individuals and as a society. Now, the beautiful thing about this, two things. One, uh, what I want you to know is we happen to be now, and this is what Bruce and I said at the United Nations, we knew we were moving into a cycle of low magnetics. We are at one of the lowest magnetic points our planet has seen in a very long time. Solar cycles are part of that, uh, and there are larger cycles. So I'm not surprised to see an uptick in conflict. However, what I want to say about this, if you look closely, what you'll see is the the greatest opportunity for peace at the same time. Because you'll see wars have begun and wars have ended at the peaks and the valleys of these cycles. Because if we are honest with ourselves, if we know where we are in the cycle and we say, wow, we are vulnerable. Now, I want to be really clear. It doesn't mean you must have conflict. It means you are vulnerable. You are susceptible to conflict. And if you know that, then you can take the extra step to avoid the conflict. You can say, ah, I'm going to extend the olive branch of peace in my family with my kids or with my spouse or at the United Nations across the table. I'm going to be a better communicator. I'm going to communicate very, very clearly with another person. And one of the most important things, I'm going to be a better listener. I'm going to really not just hear the words. I'm going to listen to what this other person is saying to me. We do entire workshops based on this. And when you use where we are in the cycle as a catalyst to be more awake and more conscious and a better communicator and a better listener, that is where the breakthroughs happen. Beautiful things can happen. So I don't want you to think it's a bad thing. I'm going to say that we are vulnerable as we go through these natural rhythms and cycles of change. So this is what we said to the United Nations. It was interesting, and Bruce and I were just talking about this the other day. When when we were giving this talk, it was in a room kind of like this, and after we'd started, these people came in. They were late. They came, and they all lined up against the wall in the back of the room, and they wouldn't sit down. And that was a little unnerving for us as speakers. We're saying, like, who are they? And they stayed for a while, and then they all filed out. They all left. And we thought, man, what was that? What was that all about? Well, it's a good thing we didn't know because it was uh, a delegation from the U.N. Secretary General he had sent to come and check out this talk to see what we were saying. And they went back and they said it was pretty interesting. And so they turned on the CCTV feeds for the entire U.N. campus in New York. And all of a sudden, everybody was watching, and we didn't know that. If we had known, we probably <laughs> we probably have done fewer jokes, I guess. I don't know. Or better jokes, maybe better jokes. Uh, and honestly, we'll probably never be invited back uh, <laughs> because of the things that I'm saying right now. We are at, and this is this is the whole point, we're at this rare convergence of these major cycles that are driving change on levels that we have never, never seen in recorded human history. This is not business as usual. It's not financial business. It's not economic business. It's not social business. The wars now, the technology that is available has changed everything. In the old days, 
a war was waged because there would be a winner and a loser. And you all know the wars in the world right now go where it looks like people want them to go. There's some driving that war. Nobody's going to win. Everybody loses. But it doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen. And the things that we're doing in here today, the resilience that you create in your body is not limited to your body. Because the science will show very, very clearly, peer-reviewed science, that the resilience within your body actually creates coherence in the field that affects human hearts, that affects cooperation, that affects the way people work together to solve their problems. So by becoming personally resilient, what you are actually doing is creating social resilience, community resilience, ultimately global resilience. And that's why we're so happy to have our brothers and sisters on the stream from all over the world, because this is our, our world. It's our planet. And uh, this stuff isn't just happening to us. It's happening with us and within us. We are all participating. And that means that we can participate and we can direct those changes in a beautiful, positive way to become the best version of ourselves, create the best possible world that we know in our hearts is possible. And we can do it within these seven years. I don't even think it takes seven years. We just have to do it. Does that make sense if I say it that way? How do you feel about that? Is that okay with you if we... If we're doing this, I just want you to be really, really clear. I, I don't want to in any way discount the magnitude of the changes we're going through. It simply is not going to be the focus for today. This is how we get through it in a healthy way. So I've just identified what's driving so many of those changes. Any one of these, point over here for a while, any one of these would be a big deal, enough to change the way our planet functions, the way we live. All three are happening right now, and they're creating this little window of opportunity. There's a new world that's going to emerge from this, but it's not here yet because you and I are creating it. And to me, that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, I'll just tell you, when Bruce and I are backstage, I wouldn't say we ever get nervous. I never really get nervous, and I don't think Bruce does either, but we we have an anticipation. It's like we want to get to it. We don't want to hear a bunch of other stuff going on. We want to go out and be with you on this stage, and we just acknowledge to one another before we came out here, this is why we're here. This is why we came to this world. And I think if you're in this world right now, man, it's uh, it's not an easy place to be right now. If you got families right now, I just really, really applaud you uh, navigating, helping your family to navigate the times we're, we're going through. If you're here now, it has to be for now. You wouldn't be in this world if it wasn't to go through what we're going through. And a lot of people are leaving. Have you noticed that? A lot of people leaving for a lot of reasons. And um, I think... When we see so many people leave our presence, I'll just be very honest. I lost my mom to COVID and I'm still uh, still processing what that means. And the death of any loved one, I think, really helps us to appreciate even on a deeper level the life that we have being in the presence of one another. But the opportunity to contribute to such a rare and precious window of time. You know, the changes that we're seeing, if everything was all locked down and buttoned up nice and neat and everything was all working perfectly, there's no opportunity for change because nobody wants to change. Everything's working. And what you're seeing right now is a lot of things aren't working because they're unsustainable. And that makes this little window of opportunity so rare and precious that we get to to contribute and to participate. I'm not going to say control or manipulate. I'm going to say we get to participate in the changes that are happening. So the extremes, 
Right. We are definitely experiencing extremes. We've seen it in the U.S., not just in the U.S. I had the opportunity to be in uh, on a tour in Europe recently. Every city I went to, we were in London, and we had a huge conference, and over 400 people could not come because there were protests that shut down the transportation system in the whole city. We still had the conference, but a lot of people couldn't make it. You know, we were in Paris. Bruce and I were in Paris. Protests all over Paris. Then you see them on TV. I took a quick trip up to Prague, Czech Republic, to do a program that had been planned pre-COVID. We hadn't been able to get there. The weekend I was there was a national holiday, and that national holiday was for the protests all over all over Prague. I'm supposed to take a group into Peru in April. Anybody watching what's happening in Peru? Yeah, there's a revolution going on. We're not going to go in April. So the, the point is it's happening everywhere, not just in America and not, not just in Europe. We're seeing this chaos. Well, the chaos, if you look closely, and this is really interesting, and when, when people seem to get kind of down and bummed out about everything, if you look closely, the chaos is only happening in systems that are unsustainable. It's only the unsustainable things that are breaking down. Would you agree with that? See that? If you think about it, the things that are good are getting better. Things that are marginal are coming up for healing. And that goes everywhere from, from nations and governments to partnerships and the most intimate relationships of your life. If there's something that's marginal, it's coming up for healing. And that healing is going to happen one, one way or another. So it's only the unsustainable things that are, are falling apart right now. Well, this is what I want to say to you. Chaos. The chaos that comes from the extremes is nature's way of creating change that moves a system to a higher order. We're on our way to a higher order of experience, a higher order of life, of living. And from that chaos, the chaos has to be there. Now, you know, I don't celebrate the chaos. I have friends that do. I have a musician friend of mine, and I talk to him every couple of weeks, and, you know, uh, he'll say, uh, he'll say, hey, did you watch the news? And I say, nope, I don't have a TV. I don't watch it. Who doesn't have TVs anymore? Who turned their TVs off? Oh, good for you. You're all healthier for it, I'm sure, except for Gaia TV. You, you got to have you got to have Gaia TV, you know, to, to guide you through this. No, so I said to him, I said, I don't watch the news anymore. I said, what's going on? So he tells me all the bad stuff that's going on. And then he says, isn't it awesome? Isn't it great? <laughs> I said, I said, why do you say that? And he goes, it's all falling apart. It's all going to hell. It has to. He says, it's all broken. And that means we can build something new. And, and that's his, his perspective. So, so chaos is nature's path to a higher order. I'm, I want to show you this. I, I, I know that you get it when I say it in your mind, but I, I want you to really see how this works. I'm going to use uh, cymatics to do this. Some of you are very familiar with cymatics. Some have never heard of. Of cymatics. This was uh, a technology that uh, emerged in the in the 1990s, early mid 1990s, from a European researcher. And the bottom line to cymatics, if you've never seen it, it is where you take a, a vibration, a sound, you pump it through a transducer, like a, a speaker, and on that transducer you have a substance. So it can be a liquid, it can be a drop of the water. Um, it can be a, a finite powder like graphite or sugar or table salt or talcum powder, whatever it is. And what will happen is, I'm going to show you this in just a moment. When the sound comes through the medium, 
each sound will produce a unique signature characteristic pattern only for that sound. When the sound changes, the pattern changes. If it goes back to the original sound, you'll see that pattern, the exact pattern come up again. So I'm smiling now because uh, because this was part of the first film that I ever did. Oh, by the way, if you're taking notes, uh, what I did was I arranged these according to little discoveries. So to help you, you can write discovery number one, take your notes, discovery number two. Uh, and then during the questions and answers, if you have a particular question, you say, Greg, when you were talking about discovery one, and then it'll help to organize all of that. Isn't that cool? That's a great way to do it. <laughs> Just tell me you like it, whether you do or not, so I'll feel good about it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to see people in here that I haven't seen for a very, very long time. So I'm smiling at some of you as well. So discovery number one, uh, <laughs> this is a film that was made here at Gaia. And it was made in 1995-96. I think it was in the, the fall of 95, and then we were doing it in the spring of 96. Uh, so you see, I'm very consistent in my message. And it is a cymatics image. Uh, you'll see me in the image briefly. Uh, and my hair is a little longer and a little darker. Don't let that distract you. So what you're looking at right now, this is a droplet of water. It's magnified. And there's a vibration that's being pumped into the water. Now, what happens at first, it doesn't look like anything's going on because that's the way change happens. That's been happening in our society. We've had the underpinnings of this change. That's been happening for a couple of, of generations now, but has it really come to fruition the way that it is recently? So I'm going to set this into motion. Okay. And there it is. It looks like not much is going on. All right. Now watch what happens. Look at the vibration as, as the frequency increases, the pattern becomes more complex. And that's what I want you to see. Now, the only way to go from this pattern to the next, I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> Can you believe that? That's a mind blower, huh? <laughs> you, want, you want me to rewind it? Somebody wants to see it again. Okay. <laughs> I may do that again. I'm either going to cut it off or let it grow. You know, it's so well, thank you. That's my vote. Let it grow. Let it grow, let it grow. Okay, you've got a complex pattern. Then you're going to see this guy right there. Looking very serious. All right, so here's the point. The only way this pattern can move into a higher order is that pattern has to give way to chaos. The whole thing breaks down. Now, look look at what happens. It's going to break down, and it's going to form a pattern. Look at the geometry. In this pattern, if you know sacred geometry, you're looking at a, a, a star tetrahedron right there from sound into the fluid. Beautiful pattern. But look at this. It's going to become a more complex pattern. The only way that that can happen is this pattern must break down. It must go into chaos to give way to a higher order. All right. And it'll go on and on and on and on. It's going to keep giving way to higher and higher orders. The point is that the only way that happens is for the existing system to break down. This pattern is what's happening in your life right now, in your personal life. If your personal life is pretty sustainable, maybe you're not seeing much breakdown. It's happening in your society. 
It's happening with government. It's happening with finance. It's happening with economy. It's happening with energy. It's happening with food. It's happening with supply chains. It is happening on a global level. This, and once you see this, you can't unsee it. You'll remember this. The only way for us to get to a beautiful, sustainable world is the things that are in place that we've come to trust and rely upon in the old world that used to be, the world just changed. And now those patterns no longer fit in this world. It's not that they're bad. The world changed and they're not a good fit. They've got to break down so we can move into a higher order. The key is for you and I to take care of ourselves while we're going through that change so that we can experience it in the healthiest possible way. That's what today and tomorrow are all about. Okay. Did you like those cymatics images? That was uh, thank you, Gaia, for the use of cymatics footage from uh, 1995-96. It was the first video that we ever did with Gaia, Gaia TV, Gaia M TV at that time. So the, the thing is that all the chaos creates uncertainty in our lives. And I'm hearing this from people everywhere, uncertainty and fear. It, it influences our psychology, the way we think about things. It influences, there it is, it influences our biology. Bruce is going to talk to you about this. It influences uh, our DNA, literally. It influences the way that genes are able to express, and you'll see why as we go through the, the program. Uh, and this isn't new age, it's not metaphysical. Literally, the energy, our emotional energy, influences the proteins that surround the DNA in your cells, and the, the way that protein is wrapped if it's tight, the DNA can't express its fullest expressions. It's, it's called spooling. If it's spooling uh, from a, a looser perspective, you've got a, a greater expression, that is an epigenetic trigger. We're just going to talk to you about all of these kinds of things, but it influences DNA as well. So when we look at all these, resilience is your key to respond to all of this. We're in it. The only way out of it is to go through it, and it's not a problem unless you're unprepared. It's only a problem if you don't know what to do with it. It's only a problem if you, like so many of my friends and neighbors, think that we are in a speed bump on the road of life and they're waiting to come down the other side of the speed bump so that things can get back to normal. Back to normal is the way things were pre-COVID. That world is gone. We cannot go back to a world that no longer exists. That's where the suffering comes from. That's where the struggle comes from. Now, think about this. If your mind and your heart are filled, if the neural network in your mind and the neural network in your heart are filled with the visions and the images and the expectations of what the world should look like, if that consumes you, then where is the room to embrace the beautiful new things that are now possible? There is no room because your vessel is filled with the expectation of a world that no longer exists. So resilience is your key to respond to this in a healthy way. And I want you to know that everything we're going to talk about, your body knows how to do. You're wired for it. It's just giving yourselves the opportunity to raise your resilience curve. Let me go through this quickly. I'm going to give some examples and we're going to do some exercises in here. Discovery number two. This is, uh, by the way, this is with permission from the Institute of Heart Math. Uh, I'm not their employee. I have worked with them almost since their incep inception in nine, 1992, I believe. 
uh, so we began working together. Uh, good people, really good technology. If you're not familiar with them, heartmath.org, all one word. I'm going to invite you to check them out. Uh, and if they're watching today, we love you guys. Thank you for all you do for our world and for our hearts. So they offer this. It's a beautiful illustration of the way you and I typically respond to stress. It's called a resilience curve. It's about 60 days. Begins on the left-hand side of the screen. That is uh, when you are faced with a challenge, an emotional or a psychological, a life challenge. The right side, this curve ends. I'm, I'm going to use, can you all see this if I put the pointer right below? Because if it goes to the LED screen, you won't see it. So the uh, the right side, is, you're right, is uh, 60 days. So this is a 60-day resilience curve. And here's how it works. And it's, I think it's pretty accurate. Uh I'm going to use myself as an example because I know that example really well. When you are faced with a challenge, whatever that is, uh, during the first 10 days, and you can see right here, you're you're really up for that challenge, something new, and you've got lots of energy. Uh, when my uh, when my mom was diagnosed with uh, with a form of dementia, it wasn't Alzheimer's, but it was a form of, of dementia. I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher. Man, I was all over the Internet finding out what kind of natural supplements I didn't want her taking drugs. I said, what supplements will help her come in for a graceful a graceful landing? I don't know if we can stop this, but everything that goes to my mom's body will be healthy for her. And I want to know what those things are. So I'm all over the Internet, man. I'm ch- I, I stopped email. If you email me during that time, I didn't answer. I apologize. I was busy. Okay. So about 10 days. But then look at what happens. After about 10 days or so, you start to feel it. So much emotional energy and psychological energy goes goes into something like this. And you reach, it's called a plateau. You reach a point of a maximum efficiency. Now, if you do not know what to do from that point, if you don't know how to maintain a higher resilience curve, here's what will happen. You start to burn out. And your energy will drop. You're not feeling good. You get sick and you go into what's called emotional exhaustion. We all know that. The point of understanding how to maintain that resilience is you'll still have the resilience curve. But the idea is this. You want to elevate that resilience curve so that you can be at your best for a longer period of time. So here you are at 60 days and you're still cranking. You can still do a good job. Everything I'm going to share with you today I use for myself. So I I know that this works. It allows us to embrace embrace that stress in in a healthier way. Let me give you an example. These are fun, fun examples. So the Institute of Heart Math, when when they were doing their studies, they have a a heart harness. Some of you have seen where you can wear the harness for 24 hours. It will record your heart rate variability. Everything that you do, eating, sleeping, sexing, bathing, fighting, loving, hiking, sleeping, everything. And you get, you get a little map of what's happening. Well, you can't make this stuff up. There is no way they could have known when this man was fit for his, his harness that they went out to the car with his wife and he and his wife had a fight. They had an argument about something. And here it's recording everything. It's recording his heart rate variability. So there you go. You can see what's happening. Actually, this is heart rate in beats per minute, not uh, the variability, beats per minute. So there they are. The wife says something, and look at what his heart rate does. 
And then they get into a fight. And I know you all know what that's like. And look at what his heart rate does. Now, there is always a place in the fight where somebody says, okay, we're done fighting. Um, it either goes like this. It either says, okay, I'm right and you're wrong. We're done fighting. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> or you're right and I'm wrong. We're done fighting. But the point is we're done fighting. All right. So the words say we're done fighting. But guess what is not finished fighting? Guess where the fight doesn't end. Right. You can say the words, but if you haven't really resolved it, and I'm going to show you the difference. So watch this. Here they are. They're having this argument. Here is where it drops drops off. They say, okay, <clears throat> the the fight's over, but the heart remains elevated. And you all have done this before. I've, I've done this before. You say, okay, the fight's over, and you're going, ooh, you know, where does all that energy go? All right, this is for someone who is not trained in any kind of physiological resilience. Where does that unresolved energy go? precipitates through your body in a really unhealthy way, unresolved over long periods of time, this is what causes a lot of problem. Hypertension, arterial sclerosis, uh, I mean, all the things that you know about that. Now, there is another example, and this is a really interesting one, uh, of someone that had been trained physiologically to resolve the stress. This is a police officer uh, who's wearing a heart harness, through an entire day of work. So here he is. He's going to work, having a pretty good day, bum, bum, bum. He gets a call, and it is a call for a domestic domestic dispute, domestic violence. And my law enforcement friends, by the way, if you're law enforcement here, thank you for the work you do. And my law enforcement friends tell me this is one of the most frightening things, two, two frightening things. One is going up to a, a vehicle with blacked out windows that they pulled over at night. You never know who's behind that glass and what they're doing. Going into a house for domestic violence, you don't know who's in there, how many people. If they're armed, you don't know if they're uh, on drugs, you don't know what, what's going on. So this officer, he gets the call, and this is a domestic dispute. He's wearing his heart harness, so it's recording everything. He encounters an angry man in the house. There's an altercation, and his heart rate really goes up. And then he subdues the man, and as soon as he subdues the uh the, the man that was causing the problems, now the threat is diminished. It's not over, but it's diminished, and his heart rate actually reflects that. But it's still like the end of the argument between the husband and wife. Look at his heart rate. The threat's over, but it's still uh, his heart rate is still up. But here's the difference. This man knew how to do a technique that we're going to do here in just a few minutes, and he did a reset right here. And look at the reset. His heart is actually healthier. His heart rate is healthier now than it was before he went to work, as he was going to work before he had this this morning. What is the difference? The only difference, whoop, the only difference is that he had a technique to use. And I, I want to share that technique with you. So this is the question. How do we become resilient? So this first part of the resilience, again, we're focusing on physiological resilience, how your body is dealing with the stress. And there are a lot of different kinds of stress. So physiological resilience is what we're going to look at here, discovery number three. It begins in the heart, no surprise. Begins in the heart. But I apologize, I had my back to you guys over here for so long because I'm favoring this side. So um, I apologize for that. And um, I'm, going to, I'm going to now have my back to you for a while. <laughs> and look at this side. 
So physiological resilience is really interesting. There is a phenomenon called heart rate variability, HRV, heart rate variability. Okay, I worked really hard to put this inset. Can I have my audio back so, so we can hear? Does it work? There it is. All right, just tell me, isn't that awesome? <laughs> okay, you can bring it down a little bit, please. So what, what heart rate variability, what that is, I know you know this intuitively, but you may not be aware, every, every heartbeat, the time for the, from one heartbeat to the next varies. So you go through what's called a QRS complex, QRS complex, and this peak right here, the time from this peak to that peak and this peak to that peak and this peak to that peak, it's close, it's similar, but it's not exact. It will always vary. I know people that do an EKG and they, they'll ask a doctor, is my heartbeat regular? Well, you don't want it perfectly regular. You want a little bit of variability, and it's, it's measured in, in milliseconds. So you've got uh, 0.873 milliseconds, and then 9, 0.941, 0.968, 0.959. The point is that there is a difference between each of those heartbeats, and this is important because the greater – here's the key – the greater the variability from one heartbeat to the next, the more resilience you have to the changes in your life. Now, when you are young, when we are children, change typically comes pretty easy for kids, typically. Not for cats. Cats don't like change. I'm just – I'm having a flashback here. <laughs> Stream of consciousness. Um, but as young kids, typically we have greater heart rate variability. As you age, now I'm going to use the word typical because it doesn't have to happen to everyone, and you are probably not typical. If you're in this room, I'd say you're not typical, right? How many are atypical in this room? How many of you feel like you don't really fit into – never? how many feel as kids you didn't fit into to, to society very well? Anybody feel that? I think I saw you all at Woodstock when we were, we were there. <laughs> How many as adults have found uh, you've you've found ways to make it work and you've found a community, but you still feel like hmm, doesn't feel 100 percent like my world. Anybody feel that way? I'm right there with you, you know. So as, as kids, as kids, change typically comes easy. And as we age, they say typically we begin to lose heart rate variability. What that means is our heart becomes more and more and more regular. Now, you know this because if you know people of advanced age, like my mom before she passed, uh, change was really difficult for my mom. The term is we become set in our ways. You ever heard of that? Yeah. Uh, I know you're not set in your ways. Or if you are, your setness is going to be challenged because the world's changing. <laughs> so this is typical, but it doesn't have to be. Heart rate variability typically decreases with age. And this is a fascinating chart. Uh, these are the extremes. The blue in the middle is, is the median, so the mean. So I'm going to invite you just to look at, at the mean on this chart. On the left, this is 10, 10 years old, the age of 10. Here is the age of 90. Now look at what happens. Heart rate variability typically, not necessarily for you, typically will begin to decrease as you go through every decade of your life. But look at this. Between the age of 65 and 70, statistically, 
something happens. Look at this. It bottoms out. There's a bottom plateau. And then it begins to increase. What happens at 60 to 65? Well, what the statistics show is this. One of two things is going to happen between 60 and 65. Either the conditions that have led to your lower heart rate variability will be so great and your resistance to embracing those in a healthy way will take your life and you will die. Or you will have a close call, a wake-up call, and you will say, hmm, I need to start eating differently. I need to start exercising differently. I need to start thinking differently. I need to get into a healthy relationship. I need for my mind and my heart to start working differently. And once you embrace that difference, look at what happens. Now you're off for the rest of your life in a healthy new way. The point here is that that heart rate variability is going to reach a point, and it's an average, and that doesn't have to be the same for everyone. Some Somewhere, either you're going to come to terms with how to embrace change in a healthy way or the lack of embracing change in a healthy way will steal from you the very thing that you cherish the most, and that is life itself. It will steal your life. The good news is that you can change. I got to do this. You can change this snap in a, in a heartbeat. You can change your heart rate variability at any age, and you can do it in a moment's notice. We're going to do it in here, and if you continue what you're doing in here, this will be the foundation for your physiological resilience. You will have the physiological resilience, your body, so that you can support the mental changes and the emotional changes and the spiritual changes and the psychological changes. It's hard to do that if your body's wrecked. Would you agree? Now, if your body's wrecked, it's hard to really focus on, on much of anything else. Bruce and I just led a tour through the Holy Lands, and that's why that was on my mind. We were just there for three weeks together in the, in the Middle East and uh, right before the end of the year. So that's why I was thinking that. So how, how do we do this? Discovery number four. Discovery number four. This is the first resilience key. I'm going to show to you. Now, some of you have seen this before. This is a new context for something you probably have seen if you studied with me. Uh, and we're going to apply it in many different ways. 1991, there was a, a discovery was made, a scientific discovery that it was made in 91. But look at this. It wasn't published until 1994. The discovery of neurons in the human heart. Now, for some people, you think, what's the big deal? And for other people, you think, man, that's a mind blower. Neurons that think and feel and remember and communicate just like the neurons in the brain, but they're not in the brain. They're in the heart. This opens the door to a tremendous amount of, of possibilities. The heart's nervous system, it's, it's literally a neural network contains about 40,000 specialized cells. They're called sensory neurites. Uh, and by the way, they've always been there. It's just nobody thought to look. I mean, why would anybody look for neurons in the heart? Neurons are in the brain, right? So they were recognized. They say discovered, but they were actually recognized. In 91, they were published in the journal a Neuro. Look at the title of the journal, Neurocardiology. That tells the whole story right there. Neuro, brain-like, cardiology, heart-like. So uh, with that discovery, 
scientists recognize that we have access to this neural network in our heart. I want you to know this is real. Uh, it's not a it's not a metaphor. It's not you know wishful thinking. It's not new thought thinking. Uh, so I'm going to show you. I want you to see a scan. This is the first 3D scan. They had to develop a new kind of scanner, uh, and they they injected the heart with dye so that these neurites would be dyed a color that would make them stand out. They are yellow in this scan. So what you're seeing right here, I want to. I don't want to block your view, and I'm not sure where to be. <laughs> I don't know where to go. I'll stand here. So I think you can probably see what's happening here. I'm highlighting it for you right there. Everything you're seeing in the yellow here, and then it extends right down, right down here on the side. Can you all see those? Can you see them over there? This is where these sensory neurites are, right here. Now, what's interesting, if you look, you're not seeing them down here at the bottom of the heart. You're seeing them where the valves are that regulate the blood flow into the heart and the blood flow out of the heart. Think about what this means. These are neurons. Neurons are responding to your emotions, to the way you feel about your relationship to the world. Do you feel safe? Do you feel threatened? Uh, do you feel secure? Are you angry? All of those emotions are communicating with these sensory neurites in the heart. And they're regulating how much blood is going to the brain. This is this is why when you hear shocking news sometimes, a loved one has just died and you see people's face turn white and they might get weak in the knees and have to sit down or even pass out. Because that information, the way they feel, the significance of that information is now being transmitted into the neurons of the heart that are regulating that blood flow. So that just gives you a sense for how powerful this is. So this is the first 3D map. You can see exactly where these are. These neurons, they're not passive. They actually think and learn independently of the cranial brain. So right there, I mean, you can think about what that means. Every experience you've ever had, every trauma that you have ever had, we've all had trauma. Your trauma might be different from mine, and we've all experienced something traumatic in our lives. That trauma is recorded in our mind, in our brain, as well as in our heart. And if you go for counseling, grief counseling, for example, the loss of a loved one, I've, I had that experience with my mom. And you can talk about some of those, but there's something that's missing. It's not, it's not complete. And if, if the heart is not addressed, and if the neurons, and I'll just, I'm, I don't have a slide for this because I didn't know I was going to go this deep, but I want to say this to you. Every emotion that you create in your body or that you experience in your body creates a chemistry in your body. And the chemicals uh, that are created from the emotions are called neuropeptides. The role of a neuropeptide, a neuropeptide wants to metabolize. What they want to do is move through your body and be excreted through tears and uh, perspiration and saliva. All bodily excretions will allow those neuropeptides to, to metabolize. That's why sometimes when you're in uh, having a, an emotional catharsis, have you ever done have done emotion work in maybe in therapy or maybe just uh, with yourself, and you, you get that metallic taste in your mouth? Anybody ever tasted metal in your mouth? Or sometimes if you urinate, the urine it smells different and it looks different. These are chemicals that are being excreted from the body. Well, here's the deal: 
they can only be excreted if that emotion has resolution. If it is an unresolved emotion of trauma or fear or hate or anger or jealousy or greed, all the things that we hear about, if you cannot resolve what that means, your body will store that neuropeptide for you, typically in the organs that you associate with the hurt or with the grief. And it will store it for 10 minutes or 60 years. Your body is timeless until you have the tools to release that neuropeptide. This is why heart, the heart and the memories of the heart that think and remember and feel and sense independently of the brain are so important. I'm saying this to you now because a technique we're going to use actually is a lubricant. It will help lubricate those emotions without going through the memory of what it is that triggered the trauma. You don't have to relive it to be able to pass those neuropeptides. So when we finish and we take a break, if you go take a break and your pee smells funny, congratulations. You're moving energy, you're moving neuropeptides. And I want a full report when you come back. Just kidding. All right, so so how does this work? What is this all about? Well, this ties into so much of the other work that I've done. Many of you have been with me uh, and other other colleagues of mine who I presented with and we share information and we, we co-present and share together. You are the only form of life that can do what I'm about to say to you. And I want you to really embrace this. No other form of life can do what I'm about to say to you. You're the only form of life. Now think about this. You've got a neural network in your in your brain. Yes? Okay, audience participation. Awesome. You've got a neural network in your heart now we know about. All right, two separate neural networks. You are the only form of life that can harmonize that can harmonize these two neural networks into a single potent system in your body at will, on demand, when you choose. Now, some forms of life may do it instinctively, but they have no control, no conscious control over when it happens. You're the only form of life that can sit in a chair and say, in this moment, I choose to harmonize the neural network in my heart and my brain. And when it's optimized, it is called coherence. Heart-brain harmony or heart-brain coherence. There is a fundamental frequency that optimizes that coherence, and it's a very low frequency. Here it is, 0.1 hertz, 0.1 cycles per second. So somebody asked me, Greg, why 0.1 hertz? I'm so glad you asked me. If you didn't ask, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. So as a geologist, I love talking about this, and I don't get to do it much. So thank you thank you for asking. 0.1 hertz. This is what I asked when I saw this first time. I said, why 0.1 hertz? Well, here's the reason. Here's our planet right here. I don't know if you can see this little black place right here. And these are the magnetic fields of our planet. Here's the sun over here. I'm going to set this into motion. Here's the sun over here, the energy of the sun pushing against the magnetic field. You can see it's it's deforming some of the field here. But look at this, these long strings that are moving out in the space. Those are magnetic field resonances. So our planet has a magnetic field made of many magnetic fields, if you want to think of it that way. Now, I'm a musician, so I when I'm not doing this, 
And if this whole author gig doesn't work out, I'm going on the road with the music again. And Bruce is going with me. <laughs> so, so I love this from a, uh, an intuitive perspective. If you think of each of these magnetic lines literally as a string on the guitar, you can think of it that way. And the energy from the sun plucks those strings and they create a sound. They create multiple sounds that all feed together in a symphony. Would you like to hear the sound of the magnetic field of the planet we live on? Uh, I'll need some audio support. If you begin low, it's a pretty intense sound. And then bring it up gradually. I appreciate it. And here's what I want you to listen to. Listen to the composite sound, but then you'll begin to hear overtones of sounds within sounds. Maybe if you want to close your eyes, you can listen to it. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and... Okay, you should be getting, there it is right there. Can you bring it up a little bit then? Bring it up a little bit more. Okay, fade it down. Is that an interesting sound? Could you hear the sounds within the sounds? Okay, so if you're ever out navigating through the solar system and you get lost and want to come home, follow that sound. Okay? So the point, and there is a point to this, is that magnetic field, if you look at the chart, this is really interesting. This is called the magnetic field line resonance frequencies. I don't want to be really technical, but it is, it is a, a frequency associated with these Magnetic lines, and look at this on the left hand side, there's zero, zero hertz right there. Uh, that first big spike that you see, look at this, it's not zero. Here's 0 0.2, it's not 0 0.2. Take a wild, just off the cuff, Gaia Sphere, Greg and Bruce Resilience Program guess. It's not 0 0.2. What would you imagine that spike is right there? 0 0.1. And if that, if somebody says, wow, that number sounds familiar, where did I just see that? Well, here it is right here. That 0.1 is the optimum frequency between the heart and the brain. So think about what this means. When you create 0.1 hertz in your heart and feed that to your brain, you're optimizing the coherence within your body and you're optimizing the coherence between your body and the planet you live on. You're literally riding the magnetic field of this planet. This is where your healing begins. The lack of healing comes from the dissonance of not being aligned with that fundamental frequency. You know, Elon Musk is going to put us, he says, on Mars by 2030. And I was thinking about this the other day, just the way that I do, you know. Huh, if we go to Mars, 0.1 hertz isn't going to be our fundamental frequency. We're going to have to learn a new technique if we go to Mars. So we'll have a special Gaia workshop. For all the Mars travelers, right right before we go. But for right now, we're on Earth. So 0.1 hertz, it is it's this fundamental. It's the frequency that whales communicate with in the water because it's so fundamental to, to the planet. Military submarines use this. That's why it's a problem for the whales because they're communicating on the same, the same frequency. But they use this because it is so fundamental. What we're going to do is a technique where we harmonize the heart and the brain and when you create a certain emotional experience in your heart, you're going to begin feeding 0.1 hertz from the heart to the brain. 
When you do that, all kinds of good things happen. So why am I sharing this with resilience right now? Well, here's the deal. We're going to create heart-brain coherence. The greater the heart-brain coherence, look at this, the greater the heart rate variability. You can change, you can optimize your heart rate variability by doing the technique we're doing now. And the beauty is the greater the heart rate variability, look at this, the greater the resilience to change in life. Man, we're living in a world that's changing by the minute. If you want healthy resilience to that change, you increase your heart rate variability. You might not like the change. You might not want to change what's changing, but you're going to be able to embrace it in a healthier way, and that's why we're here for you today. Does it make sense? I'm talking quick because I want to do this. Super resilience, the benefits of heart-brain harmony. Super resilience, we'll talk about stem cells, super stem cells, super stress relief. Super immune response. Well, who doesn't want a good immune system right now? Good immune response. Longevity. What we're going to do awakens the longevity enzymes in your body. Everybody's going to be younger when you leave here for your break. You think I'm kidding. And everybody's going to have a stronger immune system by the end of the day today. We do that by optimizing this amazing soft technology we call the human body. We're not computer chips and AI and sensors and wires and chemicals in the blood. We're more. We are neurons. We're cell membranes. We're ion potentials moving across cell walls. And we self-regulate through thought, feeling, emotion, belief, breath, focus. And that is a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated technology. We'll talk about that more this afternoon. So, When we create this coherence, we're harmonizing our bodies within the body as well as with the planet itself. So how are we going to do this? We're doing so good on time. It's exactly 11, 11, 11. No, I mean, 11 minutes and 11 seconds until I'm finished. I'm I'm looking at the countdown clock. Uh, With permission of HeartMath, I'm going to share three steps with you. I'll just tell you we're going to shift our focus, shift our breathing, shift the way that we feel in our bodies. So we covered a lot of ground, and I realize uh, I'm speaking quickly on some of these because I don't want to get bogged down in very specific topics. This is where I want us to be. I've just given you the reasons that resilience is required in our lives today. We want to go through the change in a healthy way. And if you've never done this before, I'm happy for you to have the opportunity in here. We're about 300 people in here. And what the science shows is that the electrical and the magnetic field from the human heart extend beyond the physical heart, extend beyond the physical body into the room around us at least three to five feet. And when I said, well, you know, if it's so powerful, why does it stop at five feet? And they said, well, that's the limit of the equipment. The equipment can only measure out to five feet. But what the scientists are saying to us now is to say, on the quantum level, the experiments suggest that our heart field is infinite on the quantum level. So when we are communicating here, we are extending into realms that we may only begin to suspect. Some of you may have felt this intuitively, and now the science is bearing it out. So I'm saying this because if you do this at home, it's going to feel different here because you're writing with 300 heart fields. We're all sharing one field in here. All right. And if you're doing this with us at home, I'm going to invite you to to feel we're, we're reaching into your living room. Save us a space. Your living room might feel really crowded here in just a minute uh, because we're all in this together. And there are studies that show through entanglement that we are actually communicating with hearts on the other side of the planet. 
So it's, uh, it's a beautiful, a beautiful way to think about this soft technology in our bodies. Uh, I am going to need some audio support on this. We covered a lot of ground. You won't need pencils, papers, iPads, iPhones. I'm going to invite you to put them down and let's focus on you right now. Let's do this. I'm going to put a little background sound here. So if you haven't done so already, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Allow your awareness to move from your thinking mind into your feeling heart. And one of the ways to help focus energy into the heart and our awareness into the heart is to simply touch your heart center gently in a way that you're comfortable with, single finger, an open palm, prayer mudra, whatever is is comfortable for you. What the science shows is that our awareness will always go to the place in our body where we feel that sensation, where we feel the touch. So I'm doing this with you right now. I'm going to touch my heart center. Allow my awareness to go into my heart. And this is the first step. We want to focus our awareness in the heart center. The second step. We're going to invite you to breathe a little slower than you would typically breathe. What I want to say is that your breath is a language unto itself without words. When you slow your breathing, you're sending a message to your body. And what you're saying to your body in a slower breath is I am safe. I am safe. And I believe on this day, in the city, in this building, in the Gaia sphere, we are safe. And everyone who is streaming with us in your home, in your community, in this moment, you are safe. So we're being honest with ourselves. We breathe a little slower. Now I'm going to pace you through the breath. And the key is to breathe for a longer period of time on the exhale than you do on the inhale. This awakens the relaxation response in your parasympathetic nervous system. So let's breathe an inhale of four and a release of six or whatever is comfortable for you. Let's do this together. First breath, begin now. Inhale. And release. Inhale. Just feel that shift in your body. Release. Inhale. And release. To the best of your ability, I'm going to invite you to continue breathing just about that pace, focused in your heart, your awareness in your heart, as if the breath is coming from your heart. This is step two. 
Step number three. I'm going to invite you to do something no other form of life can do that we are aware of today. To celebrate our humanness, I invite you to feel a feeling in your heart because you choose to feel the feeling rather than relying on the world to give you the reason to have the feeling. And that feeling I'm inviting you to experience is gratitude to the best of your ability. Feel the feeling of gratitude in your heart for anything or anyone. This is easy for me today because I am deeply grateful to be with you in this family, this virtual family, in this way, to celebrate our humanness. Feel the feeling of gratitude as if it's coming from your heart. While you slow the breathing from your heart, holding the focus in your heart. I'll give you just a moment to do this. Just hold your focus in your heart. One of the access points to the parasympathetic nervous system are the nerves that touch the sides of your mouth. And what the science shows is that when you smile, you are contributing to that parasympathetic response. So if it feels appropriate to you, I'm going to invite you to smile as you feel that feeling of gratitude. Hmm. Hmm. Slow breath. You just feel the shift in your body. breath, I'm going to invite you to inhale once again, and as you release that breath, keep the focus in your heart, but gently begin to open your eyes and become present in the room where we find ourselves today. Just go ahead and fade that down, please. How many of you have done this technique before at home on your own? How many have never done this before? Wow, thank you for your honesty. So if you've done it before, did it feel different here in this room with these people? Yeah. If you can't see on the stream, I'm seeing a lot of heads nod. And it does, and I wanted you to know that. Because when you are home alone without these 300 or so hearts, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different because different heart center. And if you've never done it before, I'm really happy that you had the opportunity to experience that in this room with so many people. It's not the last time we'll do it this weekend. This is a foundational exercise. It's the beginning from which we can launch so many techniques. It's not the end unto itself. 
Before I close here, I just want to ask, anybody feel a little tear come to your eye when you were doing this? Yeah, I do as well. I, I've done this for almost, well, over 30 years. Uh, I want you to know it doesn't necessarily mean that you're sad. It can. It doesn't have to. It's a release, number one. It is a resonance. This state of being is very familiar to your body because you were in this as a child until you were conditioned out of it through society and through your family. And when you touch it again, this this state of awareness, it's like your body says, oh, wow, thank you. Welcome back. So don't be surprised if you feel uh, if you feel that it, it could be it could be a sadness as well. It could be a combination of things. We'll talk more about this when I come back later. I wanted you to have this experience. This is just the beginning, just the beginning of physiological resilience. I want you to know that from this place of coherence, we also have access to deep states of intuition on demand. We all have intuition spontaneously where you're walking down the street and you get a great idea for a new book or a new song or a new movie or a new dance, or a new government. I'm just saying. Just just saying. I mean, that's not this program. I'm just saying. <laughs> and then you get home and you say, well, that was cool, but the, that inspiration is gone. It was spontaneous. When will it happen again? This is where our mastery comes from, the ability to be able to access these deep, deep states at will, on demand, when we choose, and we need them the most, typically when the conditions are least favorable to have them. We don't always have a yoga mat and the incense and candles burning and, uh, you know, track one of your favorite New Age album to listen to uh, with the doors closed and, and the lights off and the kids in bed and the lunch is made and the laundry folded and dishes done. And because that's what some people do. They wait till all that's done. They say, OK, now it's my, my personal time. When you most need this is, is usually the, the least favorable time. This is where your mastery comes from, the ability to draw upon your deep human experiences when you choose, when you need them the most, coherence is a foundation for all of that. It's the foundation for physiological resilience. That's what I wanted to say to you in this first module. We are right at the at the zero hour, and this is this is where I hope to be at this time. So I'm going to close this part of our program. You've got a 30 minute break. Uh, thank you all for the first 90 minutes. You guys doing okay? Doing all right. All right. Thank you. Thank you all so much for that. When we come back after our break, my dear brother, my friend, my colleague, Bruce Lipton is going to come up and dazzle us with his new presentations. I'm going to learn just like you are from what he's doing. So we'll see you in 30 minutes. Thank you so much. Oh, that was very, very appreciated, I hope, for everybody. Greg has a very wise being amongst us. I'm, so I'm going to just read this. Um, this is Aurora Ray. And, uh, you know, after the break, we'll have some music. And then our brother Richard and Tanya Gabrielle and Kai Pacha will help us take a look at the stars. It's a very amazing time we're living in. I mean, it's just it's, to be alive right now is... It's something to be grateful for, as right, Rama. It is. I am grateful to be here with everyone who's listening. 
whether it's, you know, in the future or in the past or right now. All times present, right now. Yep. Okay, so here we go. The time has come to take the ascension leap. The earth is prepared for you. The planets are aligned for you. You are ready to ascend and be transported to the higher cosmology of motherships. Prepare for ascension and aboard the motherships. The ascension is not just a physical event. It is a metaphysical event as well. It is a spiritual event. It is an energetic event. It is an emotional event. I can feel all that. that. I can. It is all of those things rolled into one because it is a very powerful um, heaving up of consciousness that you have been doing for eons upon this planet and upon other planets as well. You have been the ones who have built this reality to be a place of love. You have been the ones who have brought, who have brought forth, who have brought forth on this, on this planet, the new truth or the new way of being in which you are not separate from one another or from the universe. You have created a world where all people can live together in harmony and in peace as they go about their daily lives. This is what it means to make your ascension leap and to complete the journey here. On our planet Earth, a wide variety of species have the potential to ascend and finish their journeys here within this reality. Some of you have already ascended this planet and returned to do it once more. You have done this because it was necessary for your evolution as humans on Earth to evolve through these various lifetimes so that you could be ready for what lies ahead for you in the far future, which is the new heavens and the new earth in which you will reside. The ascension process has already begun, yet there will, there are still many who are stuck in the third dimensional reality with their third dimensional bodies unable to see beyond beyond the veil of illusion that surrounds them here on earth at this time. It does not mean that they cannot make progress in their personal growth or spiritual evolution. However, it does mean that there are blocks within them that prevent them from seeing beyond the veil of illusion into higher realities. You are here to help others. You are here to create a better world for all of us to live in. 
You are here to help us move forward as a species. And you are doing that right now by helping us heal ourselves and by helping us understand our own divinity. You are here to free us from the shackles of our own ego minds. You came back in order to do this work and you have been given the gift of time so you can accomplish this goal. You have been given a chance at life again and you need not fear death because there is no death as you ascend off this planet and into the higher realms of light. Now, is the time and I'm just going to say we've got enough examples to know that if you choose to stay here <clears throat> you can stay here as long as you want we know someone that's been here in the same body for 20,000 years personally that's interesting to note okay so now it is the time for the ascension leap the earth is prepared for you. The planets are aligned for you. You are ready to ascend and to be taken up into the higher cosmology of motherships. The doors are open for you. Yet you must step through them with great humility. You have been working on your third dimensional life for many lifetimes. And now it is time to take that final step in your evolution. It is time to make the ascension leap and complete the journey here on this planet so that you can begin anew in a higher dimension of existence. You are being led by your soul's divine wisdom and power. Yet as you do not follow these instructions, then you will not be followed by you. Then they will not be followed by you. You will find yourself stuck in a place where no one can help or reach out to you because they do not know how, they do not know what, excuse me, has happened to you or why it's happened. As I say, follow your soul's divine wisdom. I mean to follow it without any human guidance whatsoever. The majority of human, of people who have already made these, the ascension leap have become masters of their own reality and have been able to walk through this life without any help from others. They are able to function independently without having anyone else tell them what they should do or how they should live their lives. The ascension is a process that has been going on for a long time. It is an ongoing process and you will continue to make the ascension leap until you are fully ascended. There are many ways to ascend. There are many different ways. Many different ways. Many different ways that you can make the ascension leap. Yet no matter what way you choose, it will lead you to where you need to be 
in order for your soul's ascension plan to happen. The ascension is coming. There is an undeniable momentum building in the universe. And it is time to take action. This year is your chance to rise up. Rise up to the next level of awareness and access so don't miss out. Prepare to take the ascension leap. As we move into higher dimensions, the time is right for you to take on a new life as a light worker in charge of your own ascension cycle. The time is right to enter the mothership and make your ascension into the higher dimensions today. You are becoming more than human. You are becoming a spiritual being. As you open your eyes one morning and realize you can flow. Are you ready for this? We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. We are the Galactic Federation. Ah, home. Aurora Ray, Ambassador to the Galactic Federation. Indeed. And so it is. <laughs> so, Rama, you want to share a few minutes of thoughts on where we are and where we're going and the messages you're getting right now? Um, I could just say like Greg Braden's been talking about in Aurora Ray, um, all the folks are here, and as we choose to follow, as I'm seeing it every day, the path that His Holiness the Dalai Lama talks about as we meet and greet folks, that's how we foster peace on this planet. Instead of Mad Max, Thunderdome, we don't need to go there. And um, that old timeline's done. Kali Yuga. We are in Sat Yuga. And it's the resonance of the heart. I can say it that way. It is. Yeah. Okay. So, we're going to be resonating with uh, music from the stars here. <laughs> and our brother Richard will initiate a look at those stars as guideposts as to where we're headed here. And I was just going to mention real quickly that the Grammys are Sunday night here, and um, they start our time, Mountain Time, at 6, and they go to 9.30. So that would be 8 o'clock Eastern to 11.30 Eastern tomorrow night. And I'm sure that's going to be reflecting some interesting... Um, Interesting uh, times that the movie business and uh, Grammys are for movies. No, no, music. Music. Okay, music. That's that's mm -hmm. even 
better. Yes. Well, I would look forward to that if I were me. <laughs> okay. So we'll see you in a bit. We'll take a bit of a break and maybe we'll see you in 10:15. Namaste. Thank you everybody for listening. Thank, thank you, thank you. Thank you, sir. And good evening, everybody. Good evening. Oh, yes. Beltane technically was yesterday because the sun right now is in 16 Aquarius. Cool. That's 45 days since the winter solstice. All right. Let's see. What do we got here? Starting with... Mercury in Capricorn at 22 degrees, coming up on its conjunction with Pluto, which is at 29 degrees, Capricorn, and that makes Mercury 24 degrees behind the sun, and Venus is 26 degrees ahead of the sun. So they're still widely spaced, uh, as we spoke last week. Uh, Saturn is still between the sun and Venus. It's at 27 Aquarius today. Yeah. Okay, Neptune, 24 Pisces. Jupiter... Moving right along here, seven Aries. Where does that fall in your chart, he asks. And Chiron's at 13 Aries. So we're coming up on some uh, major healing here for the, for the whole solar system with Jupiter conjunct Chiron. It's... Uh, it's effective, it's starting, I guess, pretty just right now or a couple of days ago. They're only uh, seven degrees apart, Jupiter and Chiron. And in Aries, Aries indicates that the Lord is in charge. So... That's what's going on. All right, Uranus at 16. Uranus at 16 Taurus makes an exact sign with Mercury at, at uh, not quite exact, but 22, 22 Capricorn, 16 Taurus, Mercury trine, Uranus, Sun trine Mars, Sun 16 Mars is a 12 Gemini tonight. And then we got uh, the moons at 9 Leo, and that makes a trine with Jupiter. So we got three trines, moon, Jupiter, sun, Mars, and Mercury, Uranus. Uh, Sun square Uranus, that's a biggie. And that's pretty exact. That's like, how exact is it? I'll tell you how exact it is. 15.59 for the sun and 15.1, so 
less than a degree from an exacto mondo square. And then Venus square Mars. I mean, that's pretty exact. That is so exact. Venus is 11 degrees, nine and a half. And Mars is 11 degrees, 13. So that's very close. And uh, I don't, I don't buy the uh, amateur uh, astrological simpleton stories about Venus and Mars. You know, being being boys and girls. You know that sort of thing. That just that just don't work in modern astrology. Mars is human will, and what you will is, what you love is what you will, is the way it goes, right? So if Venus is what you love, then you're going to will it, you're going to make it happen, right? Let's see here, Uh, that's about about it for, for the layout here. And uh, so the key, the keys for this week is Mercury conjunct Pluto and Jupiter conjunct Chiron and Mars leading the way in 12 Gemini. Yeah, Mars to Jupiter is a sextile. So what does that do? That makes people more willful. They want it their way. I want it my way. And I, oh, terrible weather this week. But it finally broke yesterday. I finally saw the sunshine again. And today, yesterday was cold and windy. and But today, the, the wind dropped and it got up to almost 50 around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I was outside from 3 to 5. And it was nice. Back to you, my friend. Okay. I'm really glad you got the weather coming around. Thank you. Well, look, when it gets cloudy and drizzly, you know, three out of the last six days, <laughs> and cloudy the other three days, you know, you get it's, uh, it's a solar deficit disorder. <laughs> <laughs> We've been having, like, it's almost 50 during the day, then it gets up to, like, 22 at night, 23. Yeah, it was tw- yeah, it's been in the 20s at morning lows. All right, let's see what Kaibach is thinking about this mess. Here we go. That mess it is. That's true. Turn the sound up. The electrons are doing a crazy dance today. Hola, 
Lance Capaccio with the weekly Pele report for February 1st of 2023. And I'm over here in the United Arab Emirates trying to get that frickin' famous hotel in the background of the Pele report. <laughs> but it's not easy. You can't get near that thing. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, the elite paradise going from one extreme of the jungle and nature and the wild over here to the most unnatural uh, environment I think that there is on planet earth very interesting sun moving through Aquarius the sign of extremes just kind of living it out so what do we got going on well that sun is sextile Chiron today as I'm speaking and uh, the moon is over there in Gemini, uh, in trying to Saturn, right? Aspecting uh, in conjunct Pluto. And she goes into Cancer, yeah, today. Moves on through Cancer, is gonna oppose Pluto, right? And uh, on uh, Saturday, she's gonna move into Leo. But the big thing I wanna be talking about today is number one, She's going to move around into Leo for a full moon, 16 degrees, 41 minutes of Leo. I'm going to uh, read you that Sabian symbol. And at the same time, that sun opposite moon is square Uranus over in Taurus. And, of course, the moon's nodes are also very close nearby. So we've got a T-square, sun, moon, Uranus. And in addition to that, Venus is moving there through Pisces. Okay? And she is coming in to a good square with Mars on Saturday. Pisces to Gemini. Yeah? All right? Around 11 degrees or so. So let's. Uh, I want to be talking about that one. Um, and Venus will sextile uh, Uranus. Mercury is going to sextile Neptune. This is all early next week. And uh, by then, uh, the moon has moved into Virgo on Monday. Let me look at the camera, find a place somewhere around here where I can explain what that means. Pele report under duress, under duress. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> rode this little scooter around trying to find a place to do the Pele report. Wow. Construction all over the place in like the world's most artificial environment. It is amazing over here. The water is so crystal clear and beautiful. The seashells on the shore, there's millions of them. Absolutely gorgeous. But, um, yeah. Yeah, there's a, it's a very different reality here, and uh, it is like just so Venus square Mars. I mean, let, let's talk about that. You know, uh, Venus loves Pisces. Pisces loves Venus. Okay, I mean, we're in a place where the dream uh chasing dreams uh looking for you know windmills and beauty and harmony and peace and just wanting to kind of laze around and listen to music and dance and and it's in square to mars now a, a venus mars square you know 
this is the masculine and the feminine, right? This is the God and the goddess. There's a little, you know, they love some connection and, and it's a little bit of friction and it's, you know, it can bring up some passion, but hey, uh, you know, a squ- I'll take a square to Venus or from Venus any day of the week. <laughs> so, you know, the usual interpretation, oh my goodness, you know, uh, if anything, this is a mutable square, right? Pisces to Gemini. And this beautiful, let's look at Gemini, Mars and Gemini, scattered energy. It's like, just do this, do this, go there, try this, check this. Da, da, da. I'm riding the scooter all over. I, wish I, I should shoot it here, shoot it there, go over here, go over there. And then Venus and Pisces goes, no, there's someplace better. <laughs> Back on the scooter, scoot over to someplace. <laughs> you can see how the square just kind of brings in, you know, this this, you know, it's almost like too much until like you can exhaust yourself, burn yourself out. Okay, but you can have a lot of fun doing it, <laughs> and you can dream on and speak on and play on and dance on for quite some time until maybe what you get exhausted. You could get a little exhausted, yeah, with this uh, Venus Mars now. That's just kind of, you know, focusing on what's going on for a few days. Okay, you know, you're kind of coming up through the weekend. But let's zoom out a little bit now. We've got the sun moving through Aquarius. Liberation through stepping out of the conventional, out of the established, viewing things from the future, viewing things from the outside. It's rebellion and revolution. And it's into a square with Uranus, the planet of rebellion, the planet of revolution, and unexpected conditions and situations. And what do we have happening then? The moon coming around through Gemini, Cancer, into Leo. And we're going to have this full moon squaring Uranus. Oh, boy, is all I can say. It harkens back to, if you look at the Paley report that I did two weeks ago at the new moon, there were two, you know, sapien symbols referring to crisis. And, you know, this T-square with the sun, moon, and Uranus, to me, just kind of heralds a situation of sudden, unexpected conditions, announcements, circumstances that are upsetting. Uranus is the ruler of trauma. Yeah, sudden shocking events. Whether it's Palestine, whether it's the Ukraine, whether it's uh, uh, you know the WHO or the Weffer mother Weffers or governments or crypto, but uh, I would say there you know we're we're in a place now where any anything can happen. It's a very volatile uh, time period. If, if we look at the broad history of humankind. And then if we just look at, you know, 2023, the sun moving through Aquarius. Not only that, but then Mercury is also approaching Pluto, right? And that sun, after, after this full moon, that sun is going to move into a conjunction with Saturn. And things are going to get a little more serious. So, you know, what I'm really uh, looking at today and, and thinking about this week 
the astrology for this week is that anything goes, anything can happen. You want to be just like really flexible. You want to be mutable. You want to prepare, be prepared, okay, to change, shift, adapt, and, and, and learn. Learn. Mars in Gemini is actively seeking the lesson. And, and there's, you know, there's always something to learn and evolve in every condition and situation. This is particularly true for the month of February and March. Yes, because what we have happening is Jupiter is now at around six degrees of Aries. Okay, Chiron is at 12 or 13. We're going to have Jupiter come six, seven, eight, nine. So over the month of February, Jupiter is approaching Chiron. And over the month of March, Jupiter is leaving. But we can really give it this period, yes, with a nice orb of a Jupiter-Chiron conjunction. Some of you may be feeling that now. And a Jupiter-Chiron conjunction, these are the two great teachers of the Zodiac. And when they come together, there is great healing. There is great wisdom. There is, you know, the Holy Grail. It's like the truth is revealed. We want to keep our eyes and ears and extrasensory perception wide open these days and come into, this is where you could meet a new teacher, meet a new book, a new set of teachings, travel to a new place that really, you know, makes sense for you. But all in all, I'm also going to tie this in with what? Aries, Aries, and that is autonomy, personal rights, sovereignty, with the North Node and Uranus in Taurus, self-sufficiency. This is part also of what is in today's mantra. This today's mantra has to do with standing up. Speaking our truth, Mars and Gemini, our truth, my truth. Yeah, expanding out. Jupiter and Chiron is like, I am announcing what I believe. I'm going to trust my desires. I'm going to trust my instinct. I'm going to trust that I am a channel of light, love, and power. In this world, this is a great time of healing the wounded warrior. That leads me to, I'm just, I just am writing a description for the Chiron workshop I'm doing in Greece in May. Uh, on the island where Chiron lived. Yes, Oedipus. The second largest island in Greece, yeah? At these thermal hot springs. <laughs> what else? I'm going back to Gobekli Tepe. It's up on the website now. End of April, beginning of May. Have to go back. 
Yes, to Gobekli Tepe and and Mount Nemrut and the origins of civilization. Check those babies out. But what I really want to come into here, okay, is whether it's archaeology and history and astrology and astronomy and you know uh, the ancient apocalypse of you know understanding where we've been, where which helps us to understand where we are which helps us to understand where we're going, which gives us a sense of meaning and purpose to our lives, to our existence. This is what Jupiter, Chiron, and Aries is about. Finding our purpose, the meaning for our lives. We're not just observers watching a, a, a movie. I mean, we've incarnated to create, right? We've incarnated to sing a new song. We've incarnated to bring in a new paradigm. Let me read you this full moon. The 17th degree of Leo, baby. It is, yeah. A volunteer church choir singing religious Jupiter hymns. The keynote is the feeling of togetherness, which unites men and women in their dedication to a collective ideal. Religion, in its institutionalized aspect, is the attempt to give a transcendental character to the feeling of community. The fellowship of common work needed for substance and security in a dangerous world is exalted in periodic rituals in which the co-workers participate. At such moments, The consciousness and feelings of human beings flow into a common mold in which they become refreshed by the experience of shared values and beliefs. It's so perfect because last night I was at the Seva experience here in Dubai doing a cacao ceremony And we all sang. It was East meets West, and they had a band. (laughs) Drumming and singing and guitar and a stand-up bass. And it was our voices. Yes, the throat chakra, Mars in Gemini. Speaking out, singing out. Our Jupiter Chiron, this soul energy from Aries. And I got to say, there's just like really something when we come together in groups. That's what that's what it is so much about. We've got to really battle these masks and battle this social distancing and, you know, uh, you know, stop the separation and return to union and ritual ceremony. Singing, Venus in Pisces. This is the highest expression 
of that Venus in Pisces. It's a third quarter square. Venus Venus has gone all the way around, right? 270 degrees away from Mars. Again, that 270 degrees square is a breaking free, a breaking out, a liberation. Sun and Saturn and Aquarius breaking out, breaking free, liberation. Jupiter, Chiron, and Aries breaking out, breaking free, liberation. Full moon, square Uranus. <laughs> I, there is so much about rebellion and revolution going on right now. Whether it is in the collective and the outside world, and we all need to stand together and stand up against injustice that is being impressed or imposed upon us. This may very well be a time where you need to join some kind of demonstration. <laughs> yeah, where, you know, where we need to band together and recapture the rights and freedom that belong to the human experience. So I just really want to encourage you. Yeah, like like the mantra for this week, come out of our small little world and watching movies or on the screen or sitting at home. The sun is in Aquarius. Join together with groups. Mars in Gemini, social media, whether it's WhatsApp, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, get out there, get on there. Set up your dinners, your ceremonies, your full moon rituals. Get together with friends and community. Get out in the streets and shout for joy. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> That's freaking awesome, man. I mean everybody's got a bone to pick. Like, you know, everybody, I, this is the other thing. I mean, I've got Mars conjunct the moon because I got the moon in Gemini. I mean, I'm pissed off. I mean, everybody's got a trigger. We've all got anger because we're all being locked down or suppressed or have an external authority, you know, control us, piss us off in one way or another. I encourage you, let out. Let out a scream. Let out a yell. Stamp your feet. Yeah. Throw throw a rock out into the water or whatever. You know, it's like boom, boom, bang, bang. Make some freaking noise. Release. Venus in Pisces wants to let it out. <laughs> oh, God. And there's going to be more when Mercury comes up to Pluto. It's going to, I, I, I think like next, the next two weeks or so is even going to be more intense. Like this full moon may just like pop the pimple, right? But, you know, then we've got, you know, two weeks after the full moon that, you know, that's another Pele report. <laughs> right now, I just want to, oh, there's another announcement, right? What is that? My relationship workshop. Wow. Module one was fantastic. It's all recorded. It's, it's up, you know, it's up online. 
available now. You want to do module one so that you're ready for module two in March. We're going into synastry. We're going into relationship. It's more about love and partnership. One of the greatest, quickest means of evolution and shadow work is relationship. Intimacy leads to grinding evolution. <laughs> Come out of our small little worlds. Okay, what's it say now? Ready? I'm not going to just hang around and play in my own little world, but stand up, speak out, and participate so my heart and soul are heard. You know what I'm saying? This is Moon and Leo. Yeah? Dramatic self-expression of our unique, original creation. Ow! Put it out there, baby. Sing a new song. <laughs> I'm not going to just hang around and play in my own little world. I'm going to stand up, speak out, and participate. Sun and Aquarius. Yes! <laughs> so my heart, Leo, and soul, Jupiter Chiron, can be heard. <sighs> yeah, baby. Let it out. Sing it out. Namaste. Aloha. So much
intensify. Venus is going to be close enough to Neptune. Oh, isn't that going to throw some confusion into the mixture? All right. Uh, Jupiter will be closer to Chiron. So that is just complicated, you know, just very, very complicated. And then consider this. In two weeks, on the 18th, sun goes into Pisces. Yeah. In the morning of February the 18th, the sun will go into Pisces, and when it do, when it does that, mm. like the you know like a couple hours before that, the moon's going to conjunct Mercury mm. at 10 Aquarius, and it's going to trine Mars. Moon conjunct Mercury, trine Mars. And square Uranus. Oh, that looks like insanity configuration. <laughs> the world is going insane in about two weeks. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But yeah, that's that's. Oh boy, that's. Uh, I don't even I don't even want to think about that right now. I mean, let me go back to let me go back to the eleventh. That that'll that'll be warm up. All right. Yeah. So we're getting warm up. So next next Saturday. All right. And this this week end of end of this coming week we get that Mercury conjunct Pluto, and Sun conjunct Saturn is coming together, and Venus conjunct. Neptune is coming, and that's that's four conjunctions: Pluto, Mercury, Sun, Saturn, Venus, Neptune, and Jupiter, Chiron. In Capricorn, Aquarius, Pisces, and Aries. Whoa, doggies! Yeah, so that's that's what. That's what that's all about. All right. Let's go see if uh, Tanya can make me uh, feel a little better about the conditions. It's like, gee, I don't want to go out in the world at all. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Here we go. Welcome to Star Codes, where we look at an important event in the stars and numbers that's upcoming so we can navigate the celestial energy the best way possible. And in this case, it's a very, very exciting, powerful, and gosh, filled with surprises, full moon in Leo, the royal sign. Leo is ruled by the sun. So when we have a full moon in Leo or a full moon in Cancer, which is ruled by the moon, there is a more potent energy that we feel. 
And this year, the Leo full moon, we just have one every year, has an even bigger impact because 2023, the number 23 is called the royal star of the lion number. So it ties in with that courage and that uh, fearless leadership and standing your ground and expressing yourself and just allowing the world to see your shining inner light, your heart. You know, Leo actually rules the heart physiologically and all the astrology signs have rulerships over certain parts of the body. And so with Leo, it is the heart. So courage, which is based on the French word cur, which cur, if I'm saying that correctly, which means heart, is truly when you are fearless and come from here instead of thinking things over and wondering and therefore stagnating or doubting yourself or second guessing, right? So the heart never does that. The heart just is filled with your connection to the divine, which is filled with passion and with a sense of just letting it all out, like literally saying, okay, this is who I am. No excuses. And this is what Leo is all about. Now, this Leo full moon is at 16 degrees and it happens at 6.28 p.m. universal time. So when you add 6 plus 2 plus 8 for the universal time exactitude of the full moon, it adds up to 16 as well. And this is actually the fifth consecutive full moon at 16 degrees. So there is something about this number now that we need to integrate. And 16 ties into the universal year for 2023 as well, because that year, 2 plus 0 plus 2 plus 3 adds up to 7, and 16, 1 plus 6 adds up to 7. So you can see with all these numbers, the 23, the Royal Star, the Lion, and Leo, and then the 16 degrees, the 2023 adding up to 7, 16 is a 7. There's just a lot of intense energy that will surely sweep us off our feet or ignite us with a sense of understanding. But really, it's it's awareness, it's breakthroughs. And, you know, 16 is all about surprises. 16 actually means that you will experience the unexpected and the only way to navigate without being caught in the drama or in being afraid or whatever the case may be. The only way to navigate the surprises, the unexpected energy is through your intuition. So it's all coming together in the astro-numerology message here in a big way. So just be aware that we have in play the sign of Aquarius, where the sun is, which is also about the unexpected and about the future and about the collective and the groups that we align with. But certainly it is about breakthroughs and your inner genius and your intuitive abilities. It governs genius. It governs astrology. That is Aquarius. It governs numerology. It governs everything that takes you beyond the practical mind, but into the exploration and the discovery aspect. So when we combine that also with the code, Leo courage, Aquarius future, having courage about your future, not looking back, 
right? Adding that Leonian passion and fun and expression and, and creativity. You know, Leo being ruled by the sun, that's such a creative, that's your inner spark. That's your inner light. That's your inner creator. So there's this unabashed courage that is streaming from you with this astro-neurology code. And the moon, of course, is all about our feelings. In general, the moon governs your feeling state. And because Leo rules the heart physiologically, this is just so powerful when the Leo full moon comes around every year. And especially now with this code, there's such an open-hearted energy here, a new path, right? Saying no to the external programming and beliefs and things you took on without even questioning because it was shared with you, given to you, but now you realize this is where the truth is. This is where I turn to. And saying yes to your internal soul compass, that is the key to freedom. You know, 2023 is a Big year of freedom and spiritual awakening because of the code. 23, the royal star of the line number reduces to five, the number of freedom. And seven, the number of our universal year, is the number of spiritual awakening, bringing heaven into your heart, knowing that heaven is in your heart, not a separate place to go to, right? So... Your inner light, your source of light is being creative, being the creator, having fun in the creative process, enjoying it, putting fire into it. Leo's a fire sign, right? So now we have a few aspects that complement this as well. And that is that Mars, another fire planet, is not only square to Venus, but Mars is also sextile to Jupiter and Chiron. And that creates a joie de vivre, a real enhancement of the Mars and Jupiter energy. Jupiter rules Sagittarius, the fire sign. Mars rules Aries, a fire sign. And the sun rules Leo, a fire sign. So this is a really fiery full moon because of those activations. The other thing I want to mention is that Uranus creates a T-square. And it's a very tight T-square. And a T-square is basically two 90-degree aspects from the sun and moon to Uranus. So it creates this triangle, and it is all about action. T-squares are basically you need to get up and you need to move. And Uranus is, again, the ruler of Aquarius, where the sun is for this full moon. Uranus is... In Taurus, which is ruled by Venus, so there's a lot of a focus on beauty, a focus on what really feels joyful, pleasurable, attractive, right? The aesthetics of it. So having those wonderful feelings in your life through music, through essential oils, through beautiful flowers and paintings and a clean home that's not cluttered. All of those things matter as we go through all this unexpected energy. Remember, the number 16 is also about the sense of when these 
surprises come up, all you have is your intuition to help you navigate them. Well, Uranus in a T-square to the sun and moon is saying the same thing as that message. And so we have really an incredible opportunity here to trust in the divine order, divine timing, the goodness of life, and to trust it so deeply that you are able to express it no matter what shows up, right? And remember, you have attracted everything that shows up. You've signed up for it. So the best way to be able to show up for what appears in your life is to give gratitude for it and to ask, well, what am I here to see? And that is really the courageous way of life. Your life is unfolding beautifully when you align with goodness and love and courage. It's all within you. The creation process is within you. And so expressing that love and expressing that goodness is the key here. So know that your life is unfolding just the way it's meant to every moment of your life. And that alignment that you make to welcoming change, Uranus is all about change. 16 degrees for the full moon is all about change. So your awareness of welcoming change will attract abundance. It will attract everything naturally to you so that you don't fear how your life is unfolding at any given moment anymore. You know, Leo fires up that inner explorer and so does Uranus and Aquarius. So this is really an amazing moment here for friendships, for resolving any issues with friends, for generosity, celebration, throwing a party, having fun and play, having dignity, having determination. Saturn plays a role too because Saturn is at the very, very end of Aquarius now and will be leaving that sign for 29 years on March 7th. So when a planet is at the very end degrees, the final degrees of any sign, those are critical degrees and they really do intensify the planet's experience in that sign. So with Saturn in Aquarius, Saturn is bringing a sense of, well, let's take responsibility when change shows up. Let's make something really special Aquarius loves special things, right? Aquarius feels special, after all, it's the genius sign. And and Saturn says, well, do something with it, actual something concrete. What is it you can implement in your life that takes that special quality, your, your gifts, your inner explorer, and makes it real? And so Saturn is now at the end of Aquarius just really egging you on and encouraging you to hey, follow those exciting developments and let the shakeups happen because you will be motivated by the changes. The ensuing energy is going to transcend your fear. It's going to help you see that the way forward is clear, that you're open-minded, that you can embrace personal freedom. And so this is all set up for you in a beautiful way. Keep in mind, too, the sun is trying to Mars and the moon is sextile to Mars. Mars is currently in Gemini. It finished its retrograde. It's moving forward again. And so that means you can tackle anything with courage. You can initiate new directions with this trine and sextile to Mars. 
your instincts feel strong and you just feel really fired up. You're ready for those fortunate outcomes to appear because you're participating in them. You're putting your passionate energy and directing it forward. And that's what Mars loves. So it's a wonderful time when Mars gets involved to use that natural enthusiasm you have. And even if you might feel a little impulsive, you need to guard against overreacting in that point or impatient. This is really an incredible time for enterprise, for success, and to gain your independence as a result. So this full moon is very, very special. It also has Venus sextile to Uranus. That's important too because Uranus creates that T-square to the sun and moon. Uranus is in Taurus and Venus rules Taurus. So this beautiful 60 degree sextile from Venus to Uranus is allowing you to just dive into your creativity, to explore the shift with with such a sense of abundance, right? You're channeling this, this nervous Uranus 16 degree energy into something creative that helps you feel abundant because you're, you're getting involved. You're, you're literally putting your hands in the ground and planting seeds and doing things that feel proactive and good. And you're giving gratitude at the same time. So have the intention to imagine yourself in wellness. Make the intention to focus on what that is. What is wellness to you? That is what you want to put your energy into. Because when you intend to feel blessed, to be blessed, wonderful things come to you. And when you send those blessings out and you act with reverence and you restore your spiritual sense, your inner spirituality, your own spiritual connection to source, and you connect with source, you connect with the greatest force of existence and you appreciate that energy, this is when you really come in touch with your own natural uniqueness, which is what this full moon is really all about. This is when you feed yourself and you feed all yourselves along all the timelines into the field of existence. You truly are in touch with every aspect of yourself. And that clear thinking of setting a clear intention will allow you to act in a way that is just so helpful and you will eat well, you will simplify things and you cannot help but feel good. You cannot help but feel like you are a winner. You are the creator of your life and you're enjoying that. So Really, this is, this is the key with Leo is to feel the fire and light up and appreciate and be generous. And, you know, ideally you're going to inspire many others by the way you live and by the grace that you embody. And that is really the key here. So I really hope you have this amazing week with this full moon. And if you want to explore your own star code, by the way, because you have Leo in your chart and you have Jupiter and Mars and the sun and moon, they're all in your astrology chart. They all have degree numbers. 
you have a birthday code, a birth name code, I've created a free webinar for you at blueprintclass.com where you can explore all of your codes. You get a handout. It's really fun. And it introduces you to astro-numerology. Astro-numerology is amazing. And it is one of the most incredible tools that we have in terms of getting to know who we are and the people in our lives. And therefore having such a beautiful new perspective on life itself. Because the sun is in Aquarius for this full moon and astro-neurology is ruled by Aquarius, it's a wonderful time to discover your divine soul code. So go to blueprintclass.com and enjoy that and have a wonderful week. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. There you are. Yeah, I was multitasking here. Yes, we all know about that. <laughs> yeah, we know we know about that. Uh yeah, last week I wasn't I wasn't ready to uh do this next book report, my dear. Oh, that's okay. But I'm I'm ready tonight. Oh, hey, excellent. Yeah, we got yeah, we got about 8 minutes here. So um if you remember when I was reporting on the very interesting book called Cosmic Consciousness where he he uh collected names of of folks who were either well known or suspected to have uh, experienced cosmic consciousness. Mhm. And that one of those one of those people that he put in that book was Emanuel Swedenborg. Oh yeah. So I've got a book here. One of one of those I picked up in my special book collection job in when I was living in Florida called this is a long title. It's a compendium. C-O-M-P-E-N-D-I-U-M, a compendium of the theological writings of Emanuel Swedenborg. And uh, underneath that, there's a guy's name, Samuel M. Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, Published under the you don't want to write this down, but anyway, published under the auspices of the Unger Rich Publication Fund. That's I U N G E R I C H, and Swedenborg Foundation Inc., New York. And the first edition was in 1875 of this compendium. 
all right? So that's, that's right there in the zone with uh, Miss Blavatsky. Yeah. And the true. other early theosophists. Mm-hmm. It does have a standard book number and a Library of Congress catalog card number. Okay, I'm ready to write if you want to give it to me. You want you want the Library of Congress card number? Yeah, that's very important. That yes. might be a good way to to research it. It's seventy three dash nine four one nine six. Seventy three dash nine forty one ninety six. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, seventy three dash nine forty one ninety six. Um now before before I say anything more, I I've got him up here on the Wikipedia page and there's a there's a there's a bit here I'll I'll just read to you. In seventeen forty five, aged fifty seven Swedenborg was dining in a private room in a tavern in London. By the end of the meal, a darkness fell upon his eyes, and the room shifted character. Suddenly, he saw a person sitting at a corner of the room, telling him, do not eat too much. Swedenborg scared hurried home. Later that night, the same man appeared in his dreams. Oh, my. The man told Swedenborg that he was the Lord, that he had appointed Swedenborg to reveal the spiritual meaning of the Bible and mm. that he would guide Swedenborg in what to write. Wow, that's a big assignment there. The same night, the spiritual world was opened to Swedenborg. So there's a, you can go to Wikipedia and, and read more of his biography. It, it's quite it's quite interesting. He <coughs> he wrote self published a lot of things. Before that, he was. Before this, he was a mining engineer, you know, in, in Sweden and Europe, and he worked on various projects. But he was a, he was an engineer. And uh, anyway, now in the book here, in the preface, the uh, the guy that wrote the preface here, uh, the large number of volumes from which the extracts are taken having been translated from the original Latin by different persons at widely different times, uh, blah, blah, blah. So they worked on uniformity of style, and the translation is therefore, for the most part, new. And let's see here. And... The writings of Swedenborg embody a system of most profound philosophy, spiritual and natural. All right, so then you turn the page over here, and you get a a key to abbreviations of Swedenborg's works. All right, 
And some of these are, like his, his main one was in English is called Arcana Colestia. And then he did another one that, that got a lot of, um, got a lot of, um, feedback from uh, people that, that got, he did a heaven and hell. He did, wrote a whole book on heaven and hell because he, he went to the spirit world between the heavens and the hells. And what's interesting is, is you read through this here is, he he explains that there are more than three heavens. Now you've got the the, the spirit world or the first. Uh, how do I explain this? Uh, the first place that uh, that that you go when you die is just the general, old general spirit world, okay? But the spirit world is divided into, you know, different areas depending on, the you know, the nature of, of you, the human that just died, right? So you may, you may go, you may, you know, you may go to this, to the second heaven, you know, that's where the, where the angels hang out, all right? They're located in the second heaven. Now, the, uh, the first heaven, or the inmost heaven, is the heaven that is closest to God. All right? And uh, angels are in the second heaven. And the regular good folks are in the third heaven. All right? Likewise, there's also, there's a heaven for Mohammedans, followers of Mohammed. They've got, they've got a heaven. And then, and this is, this is kind of interesting, because there are several hells. G-E-L-L-S. Yes, there are several hells. There's there's a hell for just the, you know, not so bad but not good enough to get into the the first heaven. And yes, and and because like attracts like, there are. Wasn't Dante wrote about the the nine levels of hell? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this this supports that theory. So uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. Now here here's the. Uh, here's, Rich, just, before, before you go forward, go back to. Um, um, I'm not sure I got everything. These other books or whatever you know. There's a bunch of them. The heaven is where the angels are. The first heaven, and then the third heaven. What's the third heaven again? The third heaven we would call Shambhala. That's the, that's where this, that's where the advanced humans are, the most advanced humans are. Okay. okay. Because you, in order to in order to get 
close to God, you've got to be able to handle the light and the heat. Right. That, that's about where we're going to get tested big time here. Coming up. Yeah. And the light, the light of the light, he says here, the, 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 the light carries the wisdom and the heat carries the love. That's, that's one thing that he, he make, he makes clear here. And then he says, and, and the, the energy from God goes through the, the first two heavens and the angels pass it on to the regular spirits and to mankind on earth. So, uh, we got, uh, he's got, I'll just, I'll run through some of these table of content. Uh, yeah, we got, it's three after, okay. Concerning God, creation, man, the fall of man, the doctrine of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the divine trinity, the sacred scriptures, signification of various terms and subjects in the word, in, in the Bible. The word that the Bible is the word here. He's got... 20 pages here on the Ten Commandments, more than 20 pages. Chapter on faith, charity and good works, free will, repentance, reformation, and regeneration. And a lot of that part is about the topic of being born again. All right. Then you got imputation. Then you got the church, the first or most ancient church, the second or ancient church, and the flood was between those two churches, the third or Israelitish church, the fourth or the first Christian church, chapter on the second coming of the Lord, the fifth or new Christian church, baptism, the Holy Supper, the priesthood, marriage, divine providence, the human soul, influx and intercourse between the soul and the body, and that's the chapter I just finished earlier today when I took a little break to read. So I'm up to page 577. Oh, my God. Yeah. Still to go is the eternal world, the intermediate state or world of spirits, heaven divided into two kingdoms. There are three heavens. The heavens were not three before the Lord's advent part of that chapter. Okay, here's a chapter on hell. Let's see, that's uh, 14, that's about 20 pages there. The last judgment, the earth's plural in the universe, and then miscellaneous extracts. 
and the index starts on page 748. So I'm about, I'm about three quarters of the way through this, through this sucker. And I've been working on it for a bit more than two weeks now. But it's, it's a fascinating reading because he, he brings in, uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and of course, uh, Matthew and, and uh, Luke and John and, and, and those guys, you know, and uh, uh, according to what he wrote, he he was directed in uh, in this uh, explanation of the of the Bible by the by the big man himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you're and there, there's a, there's Apparently, there's organized churches that uh, follow his his teachings and explanations very closely. And the only, and my closing remark is, I've been reading this with what I've learned from the Master DK in all of his books that I've read. Wow. Okay. And I've found very little. Conflicts between the two gentlemen. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, the Master DK doesn't doesn't talk theology all that much. He he's more interested in in the working out of God's plan on Earth, right? Right. And God's plan on Earth is to make another heaven. Yeah. Yep. So that's that's the big goal that we're up to. Oh my God! And the and the and the way to do that, what Jesus said, is I give you a new commandment: love your neighbor. Yeah. And that's called charity and good works. Yep. Okay, my friends, have a great <laughs> week, and we'll uh, check the conditions. In about seven days. <laughs> Thank you, Richard, so much. All right. Uh, best wishes to everybody. Namaste. And good Namaste. weather to you this coming week. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I need my sunshine because that gets me closer to the Lord. <laughs> yes, I get it. Okay. Okay. Peace out. Peace out. Namaste. Okay, Brahma. The phone numbers. Uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay. So we'll see everyone there. Okay. So Satnam, everyone, we'll see you on the conference, and we'll be right back here, oh, in about 50 minutes at the top of the next hour. Namaste. Namaste. See you on the conference, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Rama. That was beautiful. The uh, energies coming from that sound, healing sound. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's what we need. It's what we need.
I just wanted to say, you know, on the conference call we were talking about what's really going on. <laughs> and um, as we are together and listening to these um, enlightening things. Um, and I just want to thank BBS Radio again. There is no other format like this to do this. It's absolutely an exquisite thing, and thank you all for coming together and doing this. Yes. And it's really important right now. Um, I... I noticed that at 1 o'clock Eastern Time, in the afternoon, it was 15 below zero in New York City. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, <laughs> something's up in the zoo. And then um, the uh, that's a reflection on a larger scale, the imbalance that has been created and climate disruption and conflict and consciousness, consciousness raising. Yes. How are we going to do something about this unless we go all those three things have to be addressed simultaneously. So we are going to do that. And Greg Brain's got a whole bunch more to say. He's going to be um, talking with uh, Dr. Teresa Ballard in this one. And I will just give you a little brief, oh, a little brief description of what they are about to share with us. We are more than what we have ever allowed ourselves to imagine. Watch episode 11 of Quantum Minds TV with Dr. Teresa Ballard. Wiki or Wiki? Wiki, I think. I'm not sure how to say that. Well, we'll hear it, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and distinguished guest, Greg Braden, in this episode. Greg Braden and I had a fascinating conversation about the human ability to upregulate genes on demand. Mm -hmm. We have been conditioned to hinge our well-being on the external world around us. Still, the access point of our technology is held in the most ancient and cherished indigenous and spiritual traditions. Join us for this deep dive into human potential, the mysteries of our DNA, how we can optimize our genetic expression, and what it is going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. Sign up with your email address to receive early access to the new episodes soon as they release. Okay, that's pretty much. Let's see. Quantum Minds is a recorded conscious conversation between Dr. Teresa Ballard 
and other distinguished guests. So that's pretty good. We got it. We got mm-hmm. it. So let's start this. Um, this one is 38 minutes. Mm-hmm. Evolution and your DNA with Greg Braden and Dr. Teresa Bullard. All right. I wanted a place for people to receive authentic guidance. Because the world rejected you, you created a facade. I wanted a place for people to receive authentic guidance and practical ways to awaken. Thought-provoking, paradigm-shifting, and empowering. This is about expanding our human consciousness to create a wave of new possibilities. I'm Dr. Teresa Willard White, and this is Quantum Lines TV. Welcome to Quantum Minds TV, where we take a deep dive into various perspectives on what it's going to take to create a shift in human consciousness. Now, today, I'm very honored to have Greg Braden joining me. Greg is a five-time New York Times bestselling author, scientist, and a pioneer in the emerging paradigm-bridging science, social policy, and human potential. His research resulted in the 2003 discovery of intelligent information encoded into the human genome and the 2010 application of fractal time to predict future occurrences of past events. Greg's work has led to 15 film credits, 12 award-winning books, now published in over 40 languages, and he was the 2020 nominee for the prestigious Templeton Prize established to honor outstanding individuals who have devoted their talents to expanding our vision of human purpose and ultimate reality. He has presented his discoveries in over 34 different countries on six continents and has been invited to speak to the United Nations, Fortune 500 companies, and the U.S. military. So, Greg, thank you so much for being my distinguished guest today on One of Minds TV. It is a huge honor to have you here. Oh, Teresa, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here. I'm excited. I'm really excited to be here. This is completely unscripted. I have no idea where this is going to go, and I I was thinking about this as I was dialing in. This is like a dance, uh, and you're leading the dance, and I'm honored to follow this dance. And uh, my sense is our time is going to go by very quickly today. So, yes. so here we go. Here we go. Well, I thank you for trusting me to, to, I guess, lead the dance this time. Um, you know, when I first became aware of your work, it was in around 2000, and I had read your book, Awakening to Zero Point, and it was really a an eye-opener for me. And then after that, I actually attended one of your weekend workshops, a three-day workshop in Seattle. And I was immediately um, impressed by a couple things. You you really gained my respect as a scientist and you gained my admiration as a person. Because as a scientist, I, I really appreciated how much you really did your research and then how you also really cited your sources that people like me could follow up on that paper trail and go and do our own research and, and make our own minds about the interpretation of things. But more than that, what stood out to me was just how genuine of a person you are. And every time I've interacted with you, Greg, you really are so genuine and you clearly embody everything that you teach. So 
very much looking forward to this conversation. And uh, I want to dive into all kinds of stuff on human potential and DNA today. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, what you don't know is it's been a tough couple of weeks. It's really good for me to hear that today. So oh. it means probably more than you know. And if you saw me in Seattle, that was a while ago. I think my hair was probably a little longer and darker. <laughs> back there. So, so, so thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, I, I have followed your work as well. So this is a mutual admiration society here. And I love the way that you are bridging so many of the ancient and the mystical traditions with the best science of the modern world, two very different languages, but they're both telling us the pretty much the, the same thing in the sense that we are not what we have been told, number one, and we are more perhaps than we've ever even allowed ourselves to imagine. And I think that is a powerful and a very timely message for our, our global family and the world that we find ourselves, the world that's at our doorstep today. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that, Teresa. Yeah, well, you've definitely been one of my role models. And, uh, you know, you've really been a pioneer in this field of bridging science and ancient uh, indigenous wisdom, ancient mystical teachings, uh, you know, evidence from ancient civilizations and so forth. And what that tells us all about our human potential, uh, which is a subject near and dear to my heart. So this this conversation that you've been having around having a new human story. And, you know, it's, it's a shift in paradigm. And that is uh, very much about what, what this is all about. You know, Quantum Minds TV is, is about what is it going to take to create that shift mm -hmm. in human consciousness. And one of the areas that you really have um, discovered some pretty fascinating research and revelations around is the mysteries of the DNA and how that reveals that we have far more potential inside of us than what we have realized or even been manifesting. And there are ways that we can start to unlock that. Uh, so this is something that I want to dive into. And I think in your Awakening Zero Point book, even, which is way back, you know, it, it, you talked about these superhuman abilities, you talked about regeneration, self-healing, super immunity, and, and, you know, so many gifts that are there to be unlocked within our DNA. So what would you say are some of the keys to awakening this? Well, it's, this is a big topic. Yes. And uh, so first of all, the, the book, uh, Awakening Zero Point, was written in 1986. And we certainly know more now than yes. we knew in 1986. And so there, there are places in the book uh, that are where the information has uh, needs to be updated. It was based on what was known in, in 86. And uh, I'm, I'm a scientist uh, by degree. I'm, I'm a degreed earth scientist, a geophysicist and geologist with a, a strong multidisciplinary background in the life sciences. So... Uh, marine biology, as well as math, physics, computer science, and, uh, and astronomy and archaeology. And I say that because it's that diverse background that has allowed me to stay current with the new discoveries that are seriously coming out on a weekly mm. basis. There, there's a, a peer-reviewed scientific journal. It's called Science, and it comes out every month. But there are so many discoveries that are happening. They now supplement. They have been for years now. They supplement that with a, a weekly newsletter describing the, the, the discoveries that have been made uh, in the past week. Mm -hmm. So all of this has led me uh, to, to stay current with the discoveries. And I think one of the biggest 
the biggest shifts in thinking for me, Teresa, was the realization that we literally are a highly advanced, technologically sophisticated, soft technology. And that's a very, I'm, I'm saying this now because we're going to tie into this throughout this conversation. Yeah. Literally uh, a soft technology. And, and rather than computer chips and artificial intelligence and sensors, the way we typically think of technology, we are cell membranes and neurons and ion potentials moving across cell walls. But we have the unique ability to self-regulate, to upgrade on demand, uh, to up, upregulate genes on demand. And the, the key access points to our technology are held in the most ancient and cherished indigenous and spiritual traditions. And it's all about thought, feeling, emotion, breath, and focus, mm-hmm. and different combinations of those and, and how they're used. So when I began to to understand that we are a technology, literally a technology. And this was, I mean, it's no accident. The timing is no accident. When I was working in the industry in the 19, 1960s, 1970s, early 1980s, computers were just coming in, into vogue. Uh, at that time in the 50s and 60s, they took up a whole room. And, you know, they weren't the micro circuits that we see today in the laptops. And when I began to understand that we are this technology and that we are programmable and upgradable just the way that software was that that I was learning at the time, my question was, how far do these parallels extend? How how programmable are we Uh, and and to what degree can we upgrade or upregulate? Our, our own technology. And this led me to, to look at DNA in a way that was very different than we were thinking of it back, back in those days. I mean, a, a lot of people just thought that cells were little sacks of water, you know, <laughs> with some, yeah, so, I mean, some cool stuff floating, in, including DNA, which is floating around inside the, the cell nucleus. Mm. And now we know, of course, that's not true. That, And I'm going to say this now, we'll tie into this as well, that the DNA actually is encapsulated in a, a protein that is called chromatin. And it is the way that the chromatin encapsulates the DNA that determines the quality of how the DNA can express itself in our bodies. So when that chromatin is, is locked down tight, I mean, you can just kind of visualize this. When it's locked down tight, the DNA is still there. It's still functioning, but it, it cannot function as efficiently it cannot express is completely. And when it is looser, then the ability of the, the DNA to express is called spooling, S-P-O-O-L-I-N-G. So the way the DNA is, is spooling, or if genes are actually silenced, there we have the ability to silence specific genes, is largely related to whether or not this chromatin is, uh, is wrapped tightly or, or loosely and this is the bridge. This is where it gets really interesting because the chromatin responds to thought, feeling, emotion, breath, and focus. I, I, I've seen some of the research, you know, that shows that when we're, as you're saying, feeling and, and thinking and, and expressing more positive emotions, uh, compassion, gratitude, things like that, love, it, everything within us relaxes. And as does that, that coiling or that spooling of the DNA, 
And yet when we are stressed, when we're negative, angry, you know, then everything stresses up, it tenses, it tightens. And so it's almost like it's, as it's wrapping around the histone, then into the chromatin, it's changing the conformation or the structure of the DNA and how much of it's even accessible to be expressed or uh, which genes can be accessed to build the, the amino acids and the proteins and so forth. And so is there, I know that HeartMath had done some of this research, but are there other, and there's some epigenetics, of course, uh, some of the work of Bruce Lipton and, and so forth. So what research have you seen that is indicating these keys of being able to access more of it? Well, you just covered a lot of ground. So, so there is a, uh, an emerging science. Bruce Lipton, our, our dear friend, spiritual brother was actually doing the research back in the 1960s. Uh, that became what we now today called epigenetics. He was taking cells, putting them in a petri dish. Same cells, different environments became uh, expressed differently. They became muscle cell or bone cell or, you know, heart tissue or, or whatever it was. All that changed was the environment. The, se- the cell was exactly the, the same. So that was the foundation for what we now know is, is epigenetics. Epi is above, so it's above control, above the genetics. What you don't often hear about is we have what is called an epigenome. So, most people are familiar with the genome, but the epigenome are the factors that the access points to to the DNA. Some of these are very familiar and, and some are not. I mean, things like certainly diet, exercise, nutrition, supplements, uh, the external environment, uh, temperature, toxins in the environment. Those all influence these um, the, the ability for, for the DNA to express. But one of the greatest epigenetic access points uh, is the internal environment. And I, I'm just going to keep coming back to this. We self-regulate. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes we're not. But we self-regulate through thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs, the way we think about ourselves, the way we feel about our relationship to the world, breath and focus. So what this means is we, we live in a world that's changing faster than we've been conditioned to accept that change. And we've also been conditioned to hinge our sense of well-being, Teresa, on the world around us. Mm. Most people don't think about that. You know, we don't wake up in the morning and talk about it at the breakfast table. But, you know, if, if the world, if there's relative peace in the world, stock market looks good, retirement, IRA, 401k, kids' education, you know, everybody's healthy. And there's there's food in in the fridge, you know we're feeling like it's a pretty good day. But when those things start to change, they create this tension in our body. So the unresolved stress uh, that and we know it leads to inflammation. Well, that is the information that we're feeding into the the genome mm-hmm. and the epigenome, and you know it makes a lot of sense. When we live in fear, these are all aspects of fear. Mm-hmm. We're tightening that chromatin. And the DNA isn't able to express as fully. And we see that our immune system, for example, takes a hit. And we all know this. When we live in stress, the immune system takes a hit. So a couple of different things going on here. You mentioned the Institute of Heart Math, a pioneering research organization in Northern California. They're dear friends, colleagues. I've worked with them since their inception. I'm not their employee, but they've, they've allowed me to share their content as an independent author and also give me access to the, the research. So the research that they did was with DNA outside of the body. Mm-hmm. So it was not in the chromatin. 
okay. when they were researching it. But what they did was they took prist, what's called pristine DNA, uh, and this was from the umbilical cords of newborns. So it had not been damaged through a lifetime of environmental stress, ultraviolet lights, chemicals, toxins, all that pristine DNA. And they isolated it um, in uh, in a device that allowed them to measure. And you mentioned this word; it's called the conformation. It's the shape of the DNA. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the presence of different emotions, here's where it gets interesting: the emotions were generated from another individual, so the DNA wasn't even inside the body. So the emotions of the heart were creating a field uh, or influencing the field. That was actually influencing the DNA. And then the bottom line, just to make it really easy, what they found was ne- what we would consider negative emotions. So anger, fear, hate, jealousy, rage, uh, tightened that DNA just like a little knot and changed that confirmation, tightened it up, and it was not able to express fully. And just the opposite was true. Compassion, uh, appreciation, gratitude all relax the DNA. Now, one of the interesting things, you say, where's the word love? And love means different things to different people. And the word love does not seem to have the same impact. However, love is the umbrella, the general umbrella that encompasses appreciation, gratitude. These are expressions of love, compassion, care. So ultimately, uh, love is, without using the word love, is what allowed the greatest expression of the DNA outside the body. Now, this is a mind blower because this is a. Can I just ask a question on that for some clarification? So, so you're, you're saying that the DNA outside the body was then being influenced by a person who was experimenting with those certain emotions. That, so that mean, would that mean then that not only are we able with our own emotional state to program our DNA, we can also influence another person's DNA confirmation if they're within our field based on our emotional state. So the word, you you use the the key word, we can influence. We don't control, we don't manipulate, Mm -hmm. but we definitely have an impact. And we all know this, you know, you walk into a room with people that you love and care about and uh, and you have a conversation, you have dinner with friends that, that you have just a really good connection with and you leave and you're buzzed, you know, you feel good for hours afterwards, you don't, you're not sleepy, uh, your immune system is stronger, they've measured it, uh, you know, to, to determine this. So, yes, we are in constant communication mm-hmm. with the world around us as well as the world within us to different degrees. So, so the, the heart math experiments were the first that were, and this was a Roland, Mc, uh, Roland McCready and Glenn Ryan were the two scientists at, at this time. And this was done back in the early 90s, 92, 95, right, right around in there, published in, in peer-reviewed journals. So this, this is, I mean, this is real stuff that we're, we're talking about. The idea that a non-physical force, such as human emotion, generated through the heart field, could influence physically the, the DNA in the human body. That was a, a novel concept. That was a, I mean, in, in colloquial terms, it, that was the mind blower. Yeah. They said wow. how, because, because now there's another part of this experiment, the series of experiments. And that was that this pristine DNA was isolated and placed into a vacuum tube. And the word vacuum implies that nothing is in there. Uh, no air is in there, but we know that photons still exist within that vacuum. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason this is important is because photons are the fundamental building blocks of, of the atom, of, of physical matter. So what they were doing is it was an experiment to see if the non-physical stuff that our world is made of, light, photons, could be influenced by the physical stuff that we are made of, DNA. And what they found, they, they measured the photons in, in the vacuum uh, by itself, and it was completely random. Photons were all over the place, just what they expected, you know, no surprise there. And when they introduced the DNA <clears throat> into the vacuum, those photons went from being random to becoming ordered, and they aligned themselves uh, along the axis of the DNA strand. So what we're seeing is the scientific evidence of what our most ancient and cherished spiritual traditions have always said without the science is that we are part of the world around us. And we have the ability to influence, not control, not impose our will, not manipulate, but we can influence the the physical world through non-physical means. So now you put this all together, human emotion is changing the shape of the DNA uh, and that shape determines the quality of the expression of that DNA in the world. And that DNA influences the photons that uh, are the foundation of the stuff this world is made of. Mm. And you, you take that middle piece out, and what you're saying is emotion is influencing our physical world. And well, even, a, even more than that, potentially. Now, are you referring to the, um, the phantom DNA effect from Peter, Dr. Peter Garia? Yeah, so... Even more than just influencing the photons, it, you know, that when they took the DNA out it, and then they took the light through it again, they saw that the light still was structured and ordered, which means that the DNA is informing the quantum vacuum. And, and there's a communication or something happening there that is structuring that vacuum that is our DNA is like a portal uh, to be able to, to connect that quantum well, Yes. Yeah, well, it's even more than that. I had, um, you know, for the universal theme and all the indigenous traditions that I, I have not visited every indigenous community. Every indigenous community I have visited, they share a, a common belief that uh, that everything is connected mm. and uh, and that we are part of that connection. For a long time, early in my life, I was school back in 1950s, 60s, and, and early 70s is when I was in school. And scientists were pushing back on that, even Einstein's ideas. Uh, he didn't like, this is where he struggled toward the end of his life, to unify the, uh, the forces of, of, of nature, the electromagnetic force, gravity, strong and weak nuclear force, to find an eloquent story, an equation that would tie those together. Uh, because he was omitting this fundamental force that, that ties everything together. And I had the, the privilege of being at the CERN Superconducting Super Collider in, uh, in 2017, where, and there's a lot of controversy around CERN, and we can talk about a lot of it is unfounded. I, I will say that a lot of it is unfounded. Um, but the, uh, in, in the experiments that were being conducted there, they were recreating the beginning of the universe in the way that they believe the universe began. Mm. Some of those ideas are changing now. But the, the bottom line is from the first few fractions of a second after our universe began, 
uh, there is a field of energy, and it was confirmed in CERN in 2012. They actually they announced it on July 4th, 2012, Independence Day in, in the United States, which is very interesting. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. But the the point is that the scientific community is now on board with the fact that to some degree there's a field that's there. Now I know you've you've talked with our dear friend and colleague Nassim. Yeah. Uh, and we've had lengthy conversations, and we both believe. That what was found at CERN uh, is an expression of a, of a deeper field. Mm. Uh, but the point is, the scientists are on on board with the fact there's a field. But here's where it gets interesting, Teresa. I've gone to the conferences now, and they still do this. These esteemed scientists will stand on the podium, and they'll say, "There's a field out there," and their hands do this. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out of the frame. There's a field out there that connects all things. They're still separating us from the field. And, and the reality is that every atom, the, the average human has about 50 trillion cells in the body. Each of those cells has about 100 trillion atoms. Every one of those atoms is constantly emerging from this field and collapsing back into the field in this, this eloquent dance. We are the field. And so when we shift our perception when we shift our thought feeling emotion belief breath and focus it's not like we're trying to influence something over there we are actually influencing we we are wrinkles in the field we are disturbances in this field held in place by the consciousness that gives us life and when, when that consciousness leaves we uh, we become homogenous with that field once again. We go back into the fundamental element. So mm-hmm. it's a very different way of thinking, but but this is what what we're seeing now. It makes sense that we would influence and have influence over the stuff that's happening in that field. And if I, if I may, so uh, I actually visited CERN in two, uh, 1998. Wow. As a recruiting trip uh, for one of the universities I had applied to for graduate school. And, you know, so I went to go and get a tour of the whole CERN and, you know, the, the big particle smashing, you know, so it's high energy physics, which was one of the things I was thinking of researching in graduate school. And, you know, what was interesting to me, though, with, with CERN and some of these other big accelerator experiments is that, you know, they ramp up the energy. And then they smash the particles together at higher and higher energies. And then they watch what comes out of the quantum field, the quantum vacuum, basically. And, and you know, as they would ramp the energy up more, they would get more particles coming out that they didn't know of before. And, you know, ultimately they're thinking, well, if we can ramp it up high enough, then we would we would get to the Higgs boson, you know, the, the God particle that was the, the one that all of them came from and they created mass and all of this. And, and, you know, but my, uh, even in graduate school, for me, it was like, well, it's actually not about the particles. It's more about the energy and what, you know, the field itself that they're trying to tap into, but they're so focused on the particles and on, you know, the physical side of things that it's that there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen even within science for them to understand that the field's not just out there. It is also in here within every atom, every cell of our body that we are intimately connected with. And, and scientists today still, I think, are very much uh, operating on a Newtonian mindset, even though they're steeped in quantum physics, the, the mindset of how they perceive reality 
is very Newtonian in that it's deterministic, reductionistic, materialistic, and, and, and based on separation. And separation is that key thing where, um, you know, they, they, they think that they themselves are separate from their experiments. You know, this sort of closed system idea of how can we, you know, we can control nature and, and be separate from it and my emotions and my thoughts don't influence. But in ancient, you know, the predecessor to science, which was alchemy, the alchemist said, no, you know, our, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our inner state is, is, um, intimately connected with whatever we're experimenting on. And I cannot take something outside of me through that transformational process without also transforming myself. And, you know, so they actually, the alchemists, the early scientists use their physical experiments as a reflection for their own inner transformational process. And so here we are coming back around to what we could call a new paradigm, but it's actually an ancient paradigm of all this connectivity and that we are, we are the universe, you know, we are connected to it all yeah well we are and what you've described is, is a fundamental um difference in in the world of physics uh you know einstein as brilliant as he was in some respects was very attached to the idea of separation and, and he said very famously he said we live in a world uh independent we are independent of the world around us uh and we're lucky if we understand a little bit of it mm-hmm. At the same time, he had a colleague. They went to the same, they're both Princeton University, same conferences. They had the same math, the same equations, very different conclusions, John Wheeler. Mm-hmm. And John Wheeler, and he lived much longer. He, he died in the uh, mid-80s. Einstein, I think, died in 53. So we were blessed to have Wheeler for many more years uh, pioneering this idea. What Wheeler said very clearly uh, was that, the universe uh, is incomplete because we are building the universe. He said, the act of observing, the act of observing the world uh, is what he called uh, us living in a participatory universe. Mm-hmm. And so the, the outcome, and this ties right back into what you were saying about CERN, what we, the implications of what Wheeler said were, were just so profound because what he was saying is, you know, here we are as astronomers, we're looking for the edge of the universe and we're looking uh, as physicists, we're looking for the smallest particles. So we build bigger and bigger devices to look for the small particles and we build stronger radio telescopes to, to look at the edge of the universe. And every, every once in a while you'll see an article that says, aha, we found the edge of the universe or we found the smallest particle. Then they build a new machine that looks deeper and they say, Oh, well, it wasn't the, the, the smallest particle wasn't the edge. And what Wheeler said, the implication, Teresa, from my understanding of what he said, is that we will probably never find the smallest particle and we will probably never find the edge of the universe. And the reason for that is where we find our power. The reason is the act, the act of us observing with the expectation that something will be there is an act of creation that will put something there for us to see. And that tells the whole story yeah. of our relationship to our bodies and to the world around us, to our most intimate relationships, to our abundance. It, it, it is, and it's this, this shift, this, mm. this little shift. We are so conditioned 
to think of ourselves as separate from the world mm. and separate from this field, we are the field. So if we want something, if we want a healing in our bodies, or we want abundance in the world, you've got to give the field something to work with so the field can reflect it back. We're conditioned to focus on what we don't have, on the illness or the disease or the lack or the hurt. And so the field keeps mirroring that right back, uh, and we think that something is broken. And the work that you're doing so beautifully illustrates what we're saying here through alchemy. You give that field something to work with, but give it what it is mm. that you're dreaming, that you're imagining, you know, in yeah. your heart of hearts. Again, as we continue to dive deeper into this really fascinating conversation with Greg Braden on the next episode. And now, stay tuned for a bonus video with Dr. Teresa Bullard as we take a deeper dive into epigenetics. Now, at one point in time, uh, science thought that who we are and the construct of our bodies and everything was hardwired into our genes. And our genes don't change, you know, it, it, unless, you know, it's mutations, random mutations and so forth, which they talk about in evolutionary theory. Um, but the genes, they said at one point in time, science said, we are our genes. We are, in a, in a sense, even slaves to our genes because our genes don't change throughout our lifetime. They are sort of a written code that that's just what we get. You know, what you're delivered at, at birth is what you get and you can't change it. And so this, this made us a, a little bit uh, victims to our genetics. But then came along epigenetics and some of the pioneering work of like Bruce Lipton, uh, Dawson Church. Uh, they brought forward this epigenetic revolution that said there is a layer above the genes. And there's these, you know, these methyl groups that kind of attach onto the outsides, this layer above the genes. So epigenetic means above. Genes. And these, this chemistry, this, these methyl groups that come in, they become like on and off switches to the genes. So the epigenetic revolution said, well, actually, that we can turn these genes on and off based on environmental uh, factors. But it's not just the environment, the, like the physical environment around us, it's also the internal environment. Uh, so, for example, our stress levels, our cortisol levels. Um, or, and then, you know, our thoughts and our emotions, as we're talking about here, that this is a way that we can create a more positive epigenetic expression that allows us to access more of the genetic potential and or possibly turn off any genes that are disadvantageous, uh, such as if there's mutated gene or something along those lines. So now epigenetics has given us power is put that ability within our own hands to, through our lifestyle choices, for example, like what we're consuming, uh, you know, with food and, and what we drink and, and these types of things, what kind of uh, lifestyle we have in terms of our stress levels, uh, what kind of environmental uh, pollutants we might be voluntarily exposing ourselves to. Uh, these are things that we can control. And then also our inner state of being, whether we're in a, a more and relaxed and positive state of being, 
or whether we're in a, a negative state of being or depressed or uh, anxious all the time or, you know, angry, you know, whatever these negative emotions are, they create stress in our system, which then changes the local environment that our genes and our DNA is exposed to, which then affects the epigenetic layers. Now, there's one other a more recent study of, of research that has shown that there is another layer even above that. They haven't given it a name yet, but they have identified that this higher layer that controls the epigenetics, it controls the confirmation or how the DNA is winding itself, how tightly it's wound that you've been talking about within the, the chromatin, Greg. And um, this higher layer of control actually is, is in the section of the DNA that is non-coding meaning it's not in our genes. It's in this other part of the DNA that they call the non-coding sections of DNA or the introns. Now, in the past, they called this junk DNA. But our DNA is actually 97% this non-coding section in the human genome anyways, and only 3% coding sections, uh, which we call the genes. And so in the past, they called it junk DNA simply because they didn't know what it but now they're starting to discover that there are instruction codes that come from those introns, from that non-coding section, that 97%, that informs downstream to both the epigenetic layers and the genes themselves how to express. And even, even which gene, you know, because you mentioned one gene that has multiple things that it can produce, it, these sections of the DNA are telling that gene how to express. So, for example... We know that we have the gene within our DNA that is the same gene that salamanders use to regrow a tail. If their tail gets cut off, they can regenerate a new tail. We have that same gene for regeneration in our own DNA. And yet, why do we not regenerate a limb if somebody has to have an amputation? Well, because that genetic expression hasn't been turned on through these higher sections of code, non-coding DNA that inform the epigenetic layers epigenetically. So there's some amazing new uh, pro- progress that's going to be made in these coming years. The more that scientists really look into the other 97% of our DNA, which is non-coding sections, that also controls biophotons. It's the part that controls its connection to the quantum field and so much more. So I think we can expect some revolutions and insights into more of the the um, multi-layered intricacies of the DNA and how it works. And it's, you know, when you talk about cloning, for example, that's not even considering what's going on within this other 97% of the DNA. So scientists really still are just barely scratching the surface understanding our DNA. This conscious conversation was created, produced, and recorded by Dr. Teresa Bullard-White in collaboration with Greg Brady and edited by Verse Content and HH Films and Photo. The theme music was created by Tim Mountain of Even Load Productions. Quantum Minds. Jerry, we're getting quite a quite a transformative night tonight. Thank you, everybody. Rama, this one's next. Yeah. And I'll read a little bit while you... Oh, you already got it. All right. Well, let me just read this a little bit. So now, 
as we think deeply with our hearts, we can, um, we can, uh, how can you say it? We can talk to our DNA. Talk to our DNA. Yeah, and it will, it will respond. There's a flexibility, she said, as we learn how to communicate, right? Yes. Okay. This one's called Cellular Resonance and Sound Healing. And uh, what is sound? Does sound create our reality? Jonathan Goldman is an award-winning musician who has learned how to use sound as an energetic healing modality that resonates with our nervous system and the cells of our bodies. Goldman discusses his use of harmonic tones of the divine name and how harmonics can be used as a vital part of our intention, setting in the form of mantra or prayer. Demonstrating harmonic vibration with sound, tools such as tuning forks, Tibetan bowls, and something called tingshas. Do you know what those are, Ram? No. Well, T-I-N-G-S-H-A-S. Somebody might want to look it up. Goldman reveals the ancient practice of creating healing through the power of music and sound. Jonathan Goldman is a writer, a musician, a teacher, as well as an authority on sound healing and a pioneer in the field of harmonics. He's the author of books, including The Seven Secrets of Sound Healing. And Goldman previously appeared on Gaia in the Inspirations interview. Excuse me, everybody. Sound Healing for Health and Happiness and is a featured expert in the Gaia series, Sound of Creation. And George Nury is the host, so we'll get started here. This is 41 minutes. Here we go. thing, even our conversation right now has potential of being sound healing. And the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. Light. Sound creating light. Sound shaped in a dazzling tool can make, break, or rearrange molecular structure and levitate objects. Wow. George, I think if there's a takeaway for this whole thing, it's first and foremost. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. We've got an exciting program for you today. Jonathan Goldman with us. 
He's an international authority and pioneer in the field of sound healing. He's also the author of numerous best-selling books on sound and happens to be a Grammy-nominated musician. Welcome to the program, Jonathan. George, it is a true blessing and a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell me the song that you were Grammy-nominated for. It was actually a uh, album that I produced called Tibetan Master Chants that was done with uh, one of the Dalai Lama's favorite uh, chanting monks, Lama Tashi, and he has been in my life for about uh, 30 plus years, and uh, I recorded him, created this whole, oh, if you like, uh, combination. Yeah. What a great honor. That's great. Really I mean, I'm interviewing phenomenon. a Grammy-nominated musician. This is great. <laughs> yes, well, George, I am talking to George Nori. Even better. <laughs> a little bit later on in the program, Jonathan's going to demonstrate some of these sound healing techniques. And wait till you hear some of the sound. It's amazing. But what is sound healing in the first place, Jonathan? Well, on a level, uh, it deals with first the idea of what is sound. Because we have to like understand that. We understand that sound is a vibrational frequency. It travels as a wave. It goes into either our ear or into our body. And it, when it goes into our ear, it affects our brain, our nervous system, our heart rate, respiration. When it goes into our body, it basically affects us down to a cellular level. So sound healing is using either music or our own voice, or all sorts of different uh, other types of instruments to shift and change our nervous system, our heart rate, our respiration, our cellular structure, or our etheric field, and do much, much more. So it, it's sort of an all-encompassing thing. Even our voices, our conversation right now, has potential of being sound healing. How did the ancients understand this much better than most people do today? Well, it's so interesting, George, because our ancients... And our modern quantum physicists are in agreement that everything is in a state of vibration. With them, they began with, in the beginning was the word, and the Lord said, let there be light, the actual act of And there was light. Right, sound creating life. And that's actually called uh, acousto-luminescence, if you like, you know, sound creating life. There's a uh, term for that, but the aspect is that... Uh, all these different traditions in ancient Egypt, the god Thoth would think of an object and bring it into being and speak its name. In Polynesia, the gods would hit a gong and through that manifest life or, or blow a conch. In ancient Egypt, there was Thoth doing that. In ancient India, they say, not a Brahman, the world is sound. In the beginning was Brahman, with whom was the word, and the word was Brahman. Well, you talk about ancient Egypt. There is some talk that they used sound to move the blocks that built the pyramids and kind of floated them into place. Is that possible? George, here's a quote from the New York Times science section, February 8, 1988. I just remember the date. First, sound shaped into dazzling tool can make break or rearrange molecular structure, and levitate objects. Wow. And they were talking about ultrasound basically being able to levitate small uh, little things like ping pong balls, but really with the proper knowledge and the proper understanding of how frequency can empower and encode certain things, anything is possible. Is there a certain frequency, Jonathan, that heals more than another frequency? 
It's a great question, George. And I think on a level, it depends upon the person because we are all Mm -hmm. unique vibratory beings. And um, what works for one person might not necessarily work for another person. Uh, uh, as an example, uh, oftentimes, in, you know, in workshops, when you're talking to people, I say, how many of you are allergic to penicillin? Because, you know, the concept of sound healing comes from the idea that everything is in a state of vibration, or quantum physicists right. and the ancient mystics. So, therefore, penicillin is a frequency or a set of frequencies. And probably about 80% of any audience is going to find it therapeutic and healing. But anywhere from 5 to 20% of an audience is going to find penicillin toxic. Yes. So it's, you know, it's not going to be a healing frequency for them. So on a level, I have never found an overall frequency that works for everybody simply because of the uniqueness. How do you you find the frequency to work for somebody then? That is still, if you like, uh, one of those uh, questions that people are researching and working on. Uh, There is, if you like, part of that whole thing is, if you like, a formula that I came up with back in the 1980s. And this was when I was basically getting my master's degree from Lesley University. And I had a pile of papers about Yohai. It's back when people still had papers, collected papers. And I was trying to basically correlate the different scientists and spiritual masters who were using different frequencies for either resonating the physical organs or the chakras, the etheric centers of the body. And I thought, mm-hmm. my goodness gracious, I'm going to be the first person who puts all of this information together and just make everything coherent and uh, make sense. But instead, I would find scientist A who would use a particular set of frequencies to heal a particular imbalance or scientist B who would be using a completely different set of frequencies for the same uh, imbalance. And the same thing with spiritual masters who would be using a particular mantra for a chakra and a different one would be using a different mantra for the same chakra. And I was in a state of intellectual angst. And I sat there with my head, my hands in front of this computer where I was trying to write out uh, this book. And all of a sudden this inner voice, because I said, how can this be? How can this be? This doesn't make sense. I come from a family of doctors. It should make sense. You should be able to give X, Y, or Z to somebody and it all work. And an inner voice said, it is not only the frequency of the sound that creates its effect, but also the intention of the person making and receiving the sound. And I wrote out on this screen, frequency plus intent equals healing. And I think back in the 80s, that was really questionable. But nowadays, with the work of people like Bruce Lipton, great people. Joe Dispenza, yeah. and even Wayne Dyer does a whole show on, uh, you know, uh, public television on intention. People are beginning to accept the power of intention. You couple that together, that sound can encode and carry the vibrations, the consciousness of somebody else, and through that create its effect. Too bad we couldn't have a specific frequency for a specific illness or disease and say, if you have a kidney issue, this frequency takes care of that. If your liver's screwed up, this frequency ter- takes care of that. Well, there are people who have done this. I, One of my uh, great mentors was a uh, British doctor, an osteopath named Peter Guy Manners, who basically invented something called the cymatic instrument that had right. 
He used combination frequencies. He called them commutations. So for every particular imbalance, he would use a uh, combination frequency of five different composite frequencies. And there are over 600 different combination frequencies for different organs, different systems, etc. And this machine still exists in some forms well, today. It does, as a matter of fact, Jonathan, on Gaia News, John Stuart Reed shares his cymatic invention about cancer imaging cells. Watch this. The study of cymatics, or the spontaneous geometric patterns produced by sound when it encounters water or particulate matter on a surface, was coined by Swiss researcher Hans Jenny in 1967. Yeni documented the patterns that appeared when putting sand or fluid on a metal plate that was connected to a sonic frequency oscillator. Today, acoustic physics scientist John Stuart Reed has partnered with Dr. Songchul Ji at Rutgers University to apply cymatic imaging to identify cancer cells compared to healthy cells. The two hope to develop this technology to allow surgeons the ability to more precisely target cancerous cells when removing tumors. So what do cancer cells look like compared to healthy cells? What we found was that the sounds of cancer cells are generally fairly skewed and, well, I I would call them subjectively ugly, whereas the sounds from healthy cells, generally the, the the sounds are harmonic, and therefore the patterns that are created, these cymatic patterns, are very symmetrical by comparison. And as the cell has a a kind of respiration, it's literally making sound all of the time. So all of our cells are singing all of the time. And actually it's really interesting to know that they're singing in the audible spectrum. So in other words, if we could hear those sounds, well, it would actually drive us nuts, wouldn't it? So it's probably just as well that we can't hear them. However, they are literally in the audible spectrum. And it's just a question of, of having specific tools that allow us to listen in to those sounds and then amplify those sounds so that we can, uh, so that we can then hear them. That's fascinating. Fascinating. It, it is really interesting. John came to a workshop of mine over 20 years ago in England, and he's just a remarkable person. And he's doing uh, work such as, uh, you know, he's really advanced work based upon a lot of the work that Hans Jenny, the Swiss medical doctor, who basically photographed the different forms of uh, how sound created form. And this is, George, I think if there's a takeaway for this whole thing, it's first and foremost that sound can create form, which is in the beginning was the word. Here's a manifestation True. of sound creating form. Now, getting back for a second to Peter Guy Manners, the doctor I was talking about, uh, he called his technology cymatic therapy, which is a little bit different, where he would be using frequencies that he came up with, uh, projecting heal. it to dev- directly into the body for healing. Wow. It's now gotten a different name, where it's called cymotherapy to uh, differentiate it, but... It all works together. Well, let's take a little bit more look, Jonathan, at the work you did with John Stuart Reed. It's fantastic.
You know, it's amazing, Jonathan. It sounds a little like Gregorian chants. Uh, that was uh, my intoning the divine name, which is a, a, a sequence of harmonically related vowel sounds that where I would start uh, projecting the energy here, go down to the base of my spine, the root chakra, and then going back up in one single tone. And uh, the story of how that manifested is really, really interesting. And just say that I, I woke from a dream where I was guided to do that. And then later on, shared this with Greg Braden, who had written a book called The God Code. And he yes. was talking about Kabbalah and, I said, and a, what is called the Tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. the ancient name of God that uh, mm-hmm. was revealed to Moses. And I said, you know, I think I received this, but I haven't shared it with anybody because I thought it was too powerful. But I give it to you, Greg. So I made this recording. He presented it at his workshops, and then somehow, as all things happened, George, it got out into the uh, Internet. And I said, okay, it's time for me to release it and start teaching it. So uh, it's a very powerful, universal sound, though. It's not just related to the Abrahamic traditions in terms of this and that, but anybody can intone the sound and literally feel the resonance, the energy going from the top of the head to the base of the spine back up again, which is profound. The late researcher, Dr. Emoto. Yes did some incredible work with frozen water crystals. He bombarded them with sound, what we would call good music and what we would call harsh music. And under a microscope with the frozen water crystal, the crystals that were bombarded with what we would say pleasant music looked gorgeous, like natural cells, for example. And the crystals that were bombarded with harsh music loud music, were all discombobulated. How do you explain that? Well, George, that falls very, very much into the uh, phenomena of frequency plus intent equals healing, that formula that I came up with. And uh, Emoto, who I had the uh, pleasure of having uh, lunch with uh, one day, uh, blessed be, he uh, was able to really project different, if you like, uh, intentionalities and different music with different intentionalities into the water. And if you think about it, how much of our self is water? 80 to 90%, how much of the planet Absolutely. is water? And my favorite of the slides, as you mentioned, this, you know, polluted water, for example, a water that was uh, projected with harsh intentionality looks like mud. And the water that basically had positive thought forms, positive music looks like a snowflake. Gorgeous. And he took water from the Fujiwara Dam, which is a polluted dam in Japan, and basically photographed it. It looked like mud. And then he had a Buddhist priest, a Buddhist monk priest, uh, chant uh, what is called the Heart Sutra over this Mm. water, the same water, for about 20 minutes. He re-photographed it and looked pristine, like a snowflake. And I thought, what an extraordinary example about how intentionalized sound can literally shift and change not only water, but our entire, how it can heal ourselves and our planet. It's dramatic. What about prayer? Where does that come in? I almost don't uh, differentiate between prayer and intentionalized sound. And in fact, if you think about it, most of the prayer on our planet is somehow vocalized. It's whispered, chanted, spoken or sung. And I believe that this one of the reasons this happens is because it helps 
focus our attention and it also helps amplify our electromagnetic field. Uh, as you know, there is this um, phenomenon called heart-brain coherence that was basically yes. uh, discovered by HeartMath, where when the uh, brain and the heart are in a state of coherence, which means entrainment, which is a phenomenon of physics, they're locked in step together. The electromagnetic field is anywhere from 50 to 500, even 5,000 times greater. Then when you couple that with sound, whether it's a chant, a prayer, a mantra, a spoken word, as long as the intention, the energy is right, the field becomes even greater. So it's so important for us to realize that we can project healing sounds, even with speech. Let's do some sound techniques here that you brought us. Tell us what you brought us here. Well, this, for example, is a Tibetan bowl that I put a little water on. And just these are ancient, ancient vehicles. And among other things, they create very, very soothing uh, effects. This one, uh, I'm just, I put a little bit of water in so you can hear. I like to call it the dolphin bowl. All right. Because when I listen to this, I hear the dolphins calling. Fascinating. It's very, very soothing. Do this once more. And you don't have to listen to it too long for it to affect you. And this is an aspect of, if you like, psychoacoustics, where the sound is going into our ear and basically then being transformed from sound to basically ultimately electricity and working in our brain and affecting us uh, and affecting our heart rate and respiration and brain waves, among other things. And what's so important for people to understand is that there's a phenomena called entrainment, which is when we listen to sounds, the vibrations, the rhythms of the sound will affect our brain waves. So slow sounds oftentimes will slow down our brain waves. Fast sounds will speed it up. And that's why if you're going on a, a treadmill, it's best to listen to the uh, Rolling Stones and not very, very so uh, you soft. keep moving. Yeah, that's right. You brought us a couple tuning forks. Yes. I wanted. So those tuning forks. Soothing also. They're very soothing. They actually were, uh, if you like, brought down to the planet by uh, my friend, Dr. John Beaulieu, who's a wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher, writer, uh, and healer. And uh, people focus very much on what on frequency, on the actual single vibration of one object. But really, I think one of the keys is what is called an interval, or the relationship of two vibrating objects together. And this was known about, again, by the ancients, by Pythagoras, who basically got his information from the ancient Greeks. Who came up with numerology as well. Numerology, and basically he's the father of, uh, you know, basically uh, geometry as well, mathematics. And uh, he understood that uh, when you have a, a single vibrating string, it creates other vibrations that occur simultaneously, and these are called harmonics. And these harmonics basically will... They are geometric multiples of the vibrating string, and they're simultaneously occurring so that when we hear a single sound, whether it's an instrument or a voice, we're actually healing and hearing multiple frequencies that are simultaneously occurring together. Let me take it one step further. And different instruments and our voice all project different 
if you like, aspects of these harmonics that are called formants, not getting too complicated. And this is why everyone's voice is unique and different, because the harmonics, the geometric multiples that are happening a little bit differently for each person will basically create this tone or the timbre of the voice. Harmonics, if you like, are the color of sound. I want to talk to you about voice in a minute, but let me bring in Dr. Joe Dispenza on the Gaia program, Rewired, who talked like you did about the heart-brain coherence. Yeah. And as you begin to suppress this part of your brain, the seat of your identity, your personality, and you slow your brain waves down, as you do that and you begin to tune into energy, that unifying field, its signature is oneness or wholeness or greater levels of order or connection. And as you begin to become aware of it and put your attention on it, and as you begin to sense the vastness of that empty void, as you begin to focus on nothing but energy, if you can begin to keep your attention on it, it will begin to create more order or more coherence in your brain. So not only do you change your brain waves, but as you learn, you create more order and more coherence because the brain's attention is on something that's highly orderly. And we could say that the moment you take your attention off your body, you go from a somebody to a nobody. The moment you take your attention off your identity that's connected to certain people and certain things or times and places, you will become no one in nothing, in nowhere and no time. And that is the moment you become pure consciousness and you disconnect from everything known in your three-dimensional reality. And we could say then, if you're no longer in the familiar past, or the predictable future, you are falling into the eternal now. And according to the quantum model of reality, all possibilities exist in the eternal now. That means then, in the now, you're no longer in the known. Now, you're in the unknown. And that's where all possibilities exist. So to get beyond yourself then, means you have to become pure consciousness. Now, I've been saying If where you place your attention is where you place your energy and you take all of your attention off everything material and you began to become nobody, no one, no thing, nowhere and no time and you became pure consciousness. What if then you allowed yourself as an awareness to stay in the unknown? If you can linger without a name, without a face, without a gender, without your pain, without your disease, without all the relationships you have, without your past or your predictable future. It makes sense then that the longer you linger in the unknown, where all possibilities exist, by very theory, the more you would create new possibilities in your life. Do you agree with that? I love it. And sound is one of the great ways to get to that place. Those tuning forks, for example, which are harmonically related, they really... Once you begin using it, they will sort of begin. Oh, amazing. And, you know, uh, it's so interesting. And, uh, you know, Dr. Joe uses some of my music in his uh, guided meditations at times. So music can be such, music and sound can be such a great vehicle to travel to that, if you like, eternal now and that place of uh, quantum uh, manifestation. So, yes, that feels very, very correct to me. You brought us another little thing that the Tibetan monks abuse. Tell us about this. Well, and these are called tingshas. And they are, uh, what I found very, very interesting is that I, 
there's a phenomena called binaural beats. I call it sonic enframement, but using slightly out of tune sounds that uh, would go in one ear and slowly, and slowly out of tune in the other ear so that the difference between the two sounds is uh, basically the same frequency bandwidth as the brain. And so you can basically induce the brain obviously moves in different brainwave things from beta to alpha to theta, etc. And you can induce different brainwave activity using sound. Now, this seemed to be a new discovery, but on a level that Tibetan monks have been utilizing this for years. These are these tingshaws. If you hit them together. What a great sound. And they create a slightly different out of slightly out of tune, little vibrato or wobbly type of sound that basically you can also use to just go into a deep state of consciousness. So it's it's a, it's a wondrous wondrous tool, and uh, I, I like to uh, utilize these. And they're also great for getting people listen up now, pay attention. Every class should do that in school before yeah. they start. Give class blank. I've given them to teachers. That's fantastic. But that's wonderful. And uh, how long do you need to meditate with that kind of sound in order to start feeling better? This is so interesting because I very recently was given a couple of uh, tools of uh, a device that uh, basically is limited to three minutes. And my one. uh, That's all. I said, hey, I want more. I want more. And, and uh, well, that they found saying that you don't need more. Right. On a level on a level. This is so true. Uh, but of course, I prefer more. More isn't better. But by God, you know, this is this, the three minutes is basically for our modern day society where people can't seem to even stop. Take a breath for more than a minute or two. So three minutes may seem a lot of time. I personally like to go for five or ten minutes minimally. That's fantastic. How does sound affect us emotionally? I mean, you hear a sound on the radio, a song, it gets to you. And it's not just because of past remembrances. There's something to the music that just does something to you. Well, this is it makes you happy. It makes you sad. It energizes. This is being studied in a very, very deep level by uh, actually um, the NIH and all these other Groups have now this uh, deep funding to really, you know, understand how music works. So the mechanisms, I mean, there are lots of different theories, but let's just suggest, George, that uh, I think that every person does have their own kind of unique, if you like, Sonic RX, that which works for us that might not work for somebody else. That's why I sing something. Hey, listen to the song. This doesn't sound great. You go, eh. But for you, you listen to it and it brings back memories. It's encoded this and that. So um, I think, you know, on a level, there may be, the, you know, uh, an aspect of the time, the place, and the individual. There's a fellow uh, who's a, um, Dan Levitin is a wonderful uh, uh, neurophysicist who basically, I was talking with him and I said, you know, what is the best music for people that they can use to feel better? And he said, well, you know, Doctors can prescribe things, therapists. He says, but the music that you like really seems to work the best. Period. Psychedelica is another guy on television show. Mm-hmm. You were part of it. Mm. And you guys talked about the shamanic use of sound and yeah. how it can induce altered states. 
But how can vocalizations induce states of consciousness that open us up to the nature around us as the shamans did? Even beyond the words that are being sung, the intention behind them, including how and when they are used, seem to make all the difference in the shamanic traditions. So there's a way to communicate through songs, not only among humans, but to everything that exists. So that's why I say you can sing to the sun, you could sing to the earth, you could sing to peyote, you could sing to ayahuasca. So what you're doing is you're singing gratitude, you're singing love, you're singing appreciation, you're singing the desire for information, you're singing this unifying, creating harmony through music through playing songs, through singing songs. This is this is a, a language. Singing and songs, whether they're with your voice or whether they're instruments, is a vibration of spirit communication. It's a whole different sensory perception. I mean, if you're in a ceremony and you're just sitting there listening to songs, once the songs come from within you and your voice is activated, you're like in another dimension. It's a total new dimension. Then your things, it's like it activates more information. Whether the sounds are self-produced or listened to, ancient civilizations have used sonic manipulation to induce expanded states of consciousness since the beginning. That's fantastic, Jonathan. I love I'm beginning George. to love this stuff. Well, it's so interesting that Phil was um, so correct in terms of the energy of appreciation, of kindness and gratitude. When we work with that and even just uh, George lately, the sound that I've become most enamored with is the simple hum, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. I've gone doing deep. Exactly. I, you know, I, I've worked with all sorts of things from Tibetan deep voice to harmonic chants to mantras to all sorts of different things. But I'm finding that for, as a, if you like, sonic tool that everybody can use. It's just the idea. My wife, Andy, and I created something called the conscious hum. And this is simply taking a nice deep breath and then humming on one tone, a comfortable tone. And you do this around three different, I'll give you an example. Hmm. Do this around three, four, five times. And what does it do to you? Number one, physiologically lowers your heart rate, your respiration, your brain waves, causes the release of melatonin, causes the release of oxytocin. It causes, and this is very big, the release of nitric oxide, which is great for your arteries. And also, it is a wonderful antiviral agent. So a Absolutely. lot of people, so you can hum and basically get all sorts of nasty critters in your sinus cavity to dissipate simply by mm. So this is an aspect, and um, it turns out that humming is a very, very powerful, ancient, sacred, um, yogic technique that is uh, technically called Brahmari Pranayama, where the uh, practitioner will block their ears and um, do a mudra, but basically it's just 
conscious humming, humming on one tone for a while, and it's very, very powerful. That's just one aspect, let alone what is your intentionality for it? What are you doing? You can project the hum to different parts of your body and create an internal sonic massage. That's great. Or you can project it outward as you're doing it to interface with angels, spirits, the trees, and whatnot. So it's quite amazing. The aspect of sound is an all-encompassing, multidimensional phenomena that everybody can experience. We can do it through listening to different sounds. We can do it through making our own sounds. Or And something as simple, once again, is humming. I love humming because everybody can do it. I have not met a person who said, I'm a bad hummer. That's right. Remember the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Indeed, sir. That yes. series of notes. Bom, 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 bom. That's right. What was that all about? Communicating with sound. Yes, well, that that is a great, uh, if you like, uh, model for uh, for the fact that uh, probably rather than language, tonality it was a tonal language that they used. And actually, Peter Guy Manners, uh, the uh, mentor of mine who invented the cymatic instrument, uh, suggested to me that that may have been. Uh, a tonality for the molecular structure of water. I don't know about the truth of that, but that's a great story. But I love the idea. And it's been suggested that Steven Spielberg actually um, was you, like encoded with information of something that happened on another, shall we say, parallel dimension where these beings uh, landed and communicated with us through tonal language, through sound. He understood sound. He put those notes in there, and it was amazing. And that was John Williams, too, who's brilliant. I have seen depictions of Egyptians with horns, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. blowing horns throughout the cities. What was that all about? Um, you, you just really reminded me of uh, Joshua and the walls of Jericho. These that would have been, of course, that just— That was it. That was it. You know, yeah. you know the idea that you, you can—look, you can use sound— I like to say there are two ways you can use sound, constructively or destructively. Constructively is you're using sound to basically encode and enforce and uh, make more healthy a part of the body that's vibrating out of ease or out of harmony. And when it's vibrating out of ease or harmony, we say it's a disease. So if you can use sound to basically put that part of the body back, back in, together. and that's constructive. But destructive is such as John Stuart Reed was talking about, and Royal Rife did stuff like that. And there's another fellow, Anthony Holland from uh, Skidmore, who's actually used uh, specific uh, frequencies to shatter cancer cells. And this is what we call the destructive. And, of course, with Joshua going around the walls of Jericho, and the people were chanting, and they gave a great shout, and the walls came down. So there, if they've been able to figure out the vibrational structure of whatever mortar or whatever that made up it, they could have literally caused it to resonate. It really happened. I it believe. seems to have, yes. On a Gaia show called Sounds of Creation, yes. they talk about the relationship between sounds and megaliths. I want your reaction to this after that. How were these giant stone structures created? And by whom? People who was transforming to higher states of consciousness. And in these higher states, they got understanding what should be done and how they can do it. Or it was using sound technology to create an anti-gravity field or some kind of magnetic resonance. There was a way that they had an advanced technology to build 
these temples and these megaliths. It might have been sound or frequency in combination with technology that at certain frequency would produce gravitational effects. There's no other real, truly scientific explanation for how they accomplished what they accomplished. The ultimate answer has to involve sound. They must have been able somehow to put themselves into some kind of sympathetic resonance with these materials. Many megalithic sites, including pyramids and stone circles and sacred sites around the world, are deliberately located on Earth energy lines or at nodal points of this global Earth frequency grid. These are the points on the Earth that have a particular power to them, that have a particular vibrational quality. And that vibrational quality is actually the energy quality of the original unified field, the singularity state, the one that everything came out of. They seem to be intended for transmuting or channeling the energy for healing or ceremonial purposes. These sacred power spots on Earth function similar to chakras or acupuncture points in the human body. And they will have the ability to help to harmonize energetic fields and consciousness through the energy of that site. Jonathan, it would seem to me that sound may very well be one of the most important aspects of human existence. Um, so I've been in this field for about 40 years, George, and uh, I can only agree with you, sir, because it is just, uh, it's extraordinary. The more um, I'm uh, watching and observing from all, from all sorts of different traditions, whether it's the scientific or the, you know, this is called acousto uh, archaeology, sound and uh, archaeology. Yeah. And we were talking before about acoustic levitation, which is uh, has not gone away. Back in the 1920s, there was a fellow in Florida who built a, a thing called a coral castle. Edward Leed Skelman. And he had these devices, supposedly. No one ever saw them, but they were somehow spiral devices that he would hold in his hand and that worked with some sort of phenomena, probably of electromagnetics or acoustics that literally were able to, he was able to move these gigantic um, by himself. By buildings and all that stuff, yeah. yeah. By himself. And he once told people he knew how the secret of the pyramids were built. Mm-hmm. Well, and my question to you, and I've thought about that one for a If you knew the secret of how to do that, would you share it? Because mm-hmm. there's such responsibility in that, that it's such a great power that if you could levitate and do this and that, would you share it? How much responsibility do we have as humans to uh, basically consciously use a technology that potentially can shift and change molecular structure and levitate objects. And who would you share it with? There you go. That's the big thing, because there are some that would probably try to use this technology for nefarious purposes. They always do, John. They always do, George. They always do. How do people get a hold of you? Uh, best way is my website, healingsounds.com. Healingsounds.com, and it's a got a plethora of everything from sonic tools to information and free downloads, because my purpose is to help initiate people into understanding how sound can be able to use for healing and transformation. Everyone can use it, and let's use it to 
heal ourselves and heal our planet. And it also heals us mentally too, doesn't it? At least. And you heal the body, you heal the mind, you heal the mind, you heal the body, and we heal the planet. We heal ourselves. We heal ourselves and we heal the planet. Jonathan, thanks for being on Beyond Belief. George, it's been a real honor. Thank you so much, sir. Probably one of the most important programs we've done, how sound can heal you. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, my. <coughs> oh, my. Okay, so I think we're going to just, we're going to move to uh, a piece. Uh, it's called, let me just locate this again. Oh, too bad. Yes. Yes. It's it's about Tibet and about His Holiness Dalai Lama and um, a young Tibetan. Oh well, let me just four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There it is. Okay, it's called Sound of Tibet and Peace. The Life of Tibetan Activists and Flute Player Nuang. Uh, the reason I thought of playing this is after listening to him, the power of sound. So... Mm-hmm. I think we're going to get a treat here. Um, Kuchen, Ku, can you read that, Rama? Uh, I can't. Klitsch. The life of Tibetan activist and flute player, Nwang Klitschong who spent years in the Himalayan foothills. Yeah. Under the guidance of the Dalai Lama. All right. Let's just go there. How's that for an idea? Here we go. It'll be about an hour.
through the heart of Paris, weaving together the rich tapestry of Parisian life. The eighth cultural festival of Tibet and the peoples of the Himalaya is held at Bois de Vincennes, a large green belt park near the Seine River. This cultural event is one of the most important Tibetan festivals in the annual Parisian diary. This festival is the best gesture to show the world what an authentic Tibetan way of life is like when its very core is being erased after being assimilated into Chinese authority in 1949 and forced to take the name of Shi Tsang. The world-renowned meditation music composer and musician, Naman Ketchok, has been invited to this festival to express the beauty of Tibetan culture and religion to remind the world that Tibet is still alive. May all be kind to each other. May all be kind to each other. Spirituality, because of being monk and former hermit meditator, so I had this spiritual, little bit spiritual quality within me. And among these, the different spiritual quality, I feel for my music, the most fundamental foundation is universal love and compassion. Mm-hmm. 
elevation of 16,000 feet. Tibet has been called the roof of the world. However, for many Tibetans, including Nalan Kichang, Tibet is their home where they are unable to return to. In the past, the Tibetan plateau was peaceful. Horses and yaks grazed the grass, and the Tibetan people enjoyed their peaceful lifestyle. The place where I was born is called Gizim, and it's an eastern part of Tibet in Karmania, one of the three provinces of Tibet. In the Gizim area, people basically it's a nomads. For centuries, for many centuries, thousands of years, people lived on these high plateaus. I would say in harmony with, with it, in harmony with nature. But when Nawang was three years old, a yogi meditator traveling across Tibet warned the Tibetan people that a dark cloud would soon cover the blue sky, and advised all of them to leave this land of peace. He predicted to my father, the time is going to be uh, very bad, so we should not attach to land, to relative, to anything, but to live. Through much contemplation, Nang's father decided to accept the meditator's advice and to leave his homeland with his family and young children. Never having left their beloved country, together they crossed the treacherous ranges of the perpetually snow-covered Himalayas to reach India in the south. By the time we got to India, my grandmother died, my grandfather was a stepfather to my dad, also died, and then my two younger sisters also died. Even after they have safely arrived in India, Several members of Nauan's family lost their lives due to the scorching heat they have never experienced. They told me basically I was the only one who wasn't sick. Even before they had time to be overcome with sadness from the loss of beloved ones, they learned that the Chinese People's Liberation Army launched an armed invasion of Tibet. The yogi's prediction came true about the impending clouds over the horizon. The Chinese People's Liberation Army entered Tibet in October of 1950. With the pretense of protecting Tibet, the People's Liberation Army penetrated into Tibet and took over the peaceful country. Approximately 6,000 Tibetan Buddhist temples and monasteries were destroyed, and out of 6 million Tibetans, 1.2 million were killed. In 1959, the head of state and Tibet's spiritual leader, the 14th Dalai Lama, had no choice but to escape Tibet and to cross the treacherous ranges of the Himalayas to live in exile in India. Soon after, 80,000 Tibetans followed their leader into exile. Today, the dark clouds still cover the sky and land of Tibet. established the government in exile in Dharamsala with the support of former Indian Prime Minister Pandit Nehru. The Tibetan people have been following the Dalai Lama in protecting their own culture and tradition and carrying out Tibetan freedom struggle. The Dalai Lama 
Buddhist temple in Namgyal Monastery is located in the heart of Dharamsala. The Namgyal Monastery is one of the most important monasteries of Tibetan Buddhism and serves also as a training place for many monks. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the head of state of Tibet and the spiritual leader of Tibetan people. To the world, he is the main spokesperson for the Tibetan freedom struggle and the messenger of peace and compassion. Even today, many Tibetans risk their lives to escape Chinese rule in their own homeland to join their spiritual leader in India. Now Tibetans become a tiny minority in their own land, thereby they are losing their language, cultural customs and uh, the ethnic freedom. So therefore, they are living under a very difficult situation. That is why they are risking their lives. And each year, thousands of Tibetans are taking a political refugee in Nepal and in India. Approximately 2,500 Tibetans annually escape from Tibet. However, there has been a significant decline in refugee numbers as Chinese security along the Nepal-Tibet border has tightened significantly in the recent years. The last now few decades, not one side victory, one side defeat, but a mutual benefit, benefit to both. And also, I believe, right from the beginning, mutually a good solution. That's our main effort. Therefore, they, whenever I manage some, some people who are supporting Tibetan cause, I usually describe them, you are not pro-Tibetan, but rather pro-justice. So the Dalai Lama is our hope. Without His Holiness Dalai Lama, our Tibetan struggle would have been lost long time ago. By 1959, it could have been lost. But because of being His Holiness alive and able to come into exile, so our hope is never died. Not only we never die, but our hope is growing. Nawa Ketchak was six years old when his family arrived in India. At the young age of 13, Nawang decided to become a Buddhist monk. He decided that if his body was not allowed to return to his country, his spirit had to cross the Himalayas to go back to Tibet. Knowing the hardship of a monk's life, his mother tried to talk him out of it, but he stood firm. And I feel that I really made a good choice. Becoming monk led me to a spiritual path. So finally, anyway, my mom really agreed. She said, okay. When Nawang turned 18, he came to study some of the most profound Tibetan Buddhist scriptures, Lanrin and Kunsan Lami Shalom. After encountering these important Buddhist teachings, Nawang decided to become a hermit monk. He made great progresses with his practices, but he felt frustrated with no mentor to teach the sacred texts. From his good karma and merits, 
The Dalai Lama was sponsored offer him spiritual guidance for his Buddhist study and practices for the next four years of his life. Nara also received spiritual guidance from Kyakje Lati Rinpoche and Gen Yeji Topden. Studied so hard, I meditated so hard that even there is a time I wouldn't sleep in the night, thinking that if I die tomorrow, why was the youth sleeping tonight? With his health fast deteriorating, Nang had no choice but to stop his hermit life and to retreat from the mountains where he had lived. Suddenly, I didn't walk. I started breathe very hard. So I had a lot of vomiting of blood. So that way, then that was my last day. ashamed of quitting his Buddhist practices. However, he decided to use music as a tool to create new meaning in his life. Even though he never received any formal musical training, he had no problem playing an instrument he had never seen. Legendary folk singer wrote a short poem entitled Down's Flute after hearing his performance at a dinner for the Dalai Lama, where they both performed. Down's Flute Up above the thunderclouds and beyond the wildflowers, up where the air is thin, Down sat silently in the cave for seven years, occasionally playing his flute at sunset. Before the notes evaporated and were transformed, into an evening mist, they were heard by the mountain goats, which stopped chewing and turned their heads to listen because the godlike melodies filled them with wonderment and made them want to dance. The sound that comes through fruit is through the breath, our life force. And your breath is closest to your heart. So when my heart can be at peace and quiet, then uh, what sound comes from my breath is also quite peaceful. In Tibet, we have a saying, so that means, like, you can't always expect as you wish will happen. But sometimes, karma plays a big role. So you might end up following your karma, then your aspiration. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened to me. No one had taught him how to play music, but music was all he needed to wake up his soul. After he immigrated to Australia to join his family, Nalong started performing at various concerts. 
I first met a band called One Wonderland. That was my first performance in the year of peace, 1986. The reaction from the audience was quite shocking for me because they were screaming and clapping hands and asking for encore and all that thing. I had no idea, you know. <laughs> as he moved from Darnfalla to Australia, his scope of activity as a musician broadened. He married and had two beautiful children. Determined to inform the world about the situation in Tibet, he engaged in various campaign activities. As music ambassador of Tibet and to the Dalai Lama, Nawang decided to spread the Dalai Lama's message of kindness, compassion, and peace. Ladies and gentlemen, in honor of His Holiness, the foremost musician of Tibet, Mr. Nawang Kachok. his art and he becomes an excellent uh, artist and through his art he gives a peace of mind to many people and at the same time he creates the awareness about Tibet and at the same time he gives the uh, the uh, essence of uh, Buddha's teaching the love and compassion so he is one of the uh, uh, great person among the Tibetans the reaction from people was very positive and people really appreciated his music and I think uh, it's because he uh, presents the music in very genuine and uh, he prepares it very well and uh, his motivation is very, very pure. Uh, so I think people feel his uh, heart. While accompanying the Dalai Lama to many countries across the globe, Nawang came across a special person who made a turning point in his life. There was a friend of mine, a monk, ex-monk, there was a shop not far from here, where we are right now, and there was some music playing in a shop. And it was, it was kind of flute music, but it was also kind of Tibetan, it was kind of Western, or it was an amalgam of many different traditions. And I said, who's that? I said, oh, that's Nama Ketchup. He's great. He's a friend of mine. You want to hear some more? So we pulled out a few more and listened to this music. And so where is he? He says, oh, he's in Australia. 
Well, I ended up wanting to bring him over mm-hmm. to work on the International Year of Tibet. His Holiness was doing teachings in New York that I was sponsoring. And I flew now on over. He just did one thing after another. Any event he would play. And he always delighted everyone. Immediately put people into the right mood. And I saw him evolve this music of his, but also his ability to communicate with people. Using music as Dharma. So somebody I know said, Nawam, uh, you are on the cover of Earth Summit Time. It was showing up. So that was uh, quite a surprise for me. During the International Year of Tibet celebration, Nawam toured numerous cities speaking out about the situation in Tibet on all different kinds of radio shows, newspaper journalists, and to live audience. After immigrating to the United States, his musical career was expanded further. Carnegie Hall, the Universal Amphitheater, Boston Symphony Hall, and the Pentagon. He was invited to perform at all major music halls across the United States. It's not just the scope of activity that has been dormant. He collaborated with other world-renowned musicians to introduce a new musical genre that combines old and new, east and west. It's important for us to understand where no one came from. He came from very, very far away. <laughs> and he ended up being able to play the stage of Carnegie Hall to play a numerous times with me in Carnegie Hall and to play with many of the musicians and uh, whether they were from uh, Japan or from Germany or from wherever he was a, he he had that he had that uh, personal the desire and the ability to make those connections. He played flute with a with a Native American flautist in a concert that included Tom Waits and Phil Glass and and, and uh, various other world musicians, uh, Anushka Shankar, various. And to me, these two together was mind-boggling. They took us on a trip with such subtlety, where in the end, they were just breathing. And this long piece they did, which was probably 15, 18 minutes long, all of us in the audience were on the same wavelength of breathing. It was an extremely difficult thing to do as a performer to make that happen. I have you from Beastie Boys started this Tibetan Freedom Concert. Musicians from all over the world played for the freedom of Tibet. Except the first one in San Francisco, I played in every concert. In New York, they sang with me between Alice Morissette and you two. <laughs> that was really funny. and other 
country's ancient ritual sounds to a modern audience. Howard's music is very special because he is using um, that cultural influence and his own feelings about music. Because of my living exile, I've been exposed into so many different cultures, especially being a musician. I've been exposed to different European culture, different Asian culture, different Northern South American culture, that kind of African culture. So therefore, I have this influence of all these different uh, culture, religion, even some extent. So a lot of different influence music. I was in the Hollywood movie seven years in Tibet. At that time, I thought maybe I want to focus on music. But then one time I was visiting Los Angeles and the director wanted to meet me. Most of the roles gone. He said, we want you to be the Tibetan assistant director. The most funny scene, the guy who says to Brad Pitt, these wounds could have been your mother in your past life. That guy who's supposed to do that, he couldn't play that role. So I said, I will try. So I did it, and the director liked it. He asked me to play six, seven different roles, and I did. From jazz and world music to folk music, rock and roll, and pop, his music runs the gamut of genre beyond national boundary, religion, and cultural differences. His music became so popular that he was nominated for Grammy Award and won many international awards. His last album was ranked number nine in the Billboard charts. In the category of world meditation music, I would say Nuan is one of the top handful of artists in that category. So at the very, very top, very, very top. Music is one of the most powerful sounds in this universe that can reach straight into human heart. And not only that reach to the human heart, but it has the power to transform human heart, to make them kinder, compassionate, more loving, more peaceful, 
more enlightened, more wise. Music can do that. Lhasa, or Land of the Gods, is the capital of Tibet. Situated at 12,000 feet above sea level, Lhasa was like a lonely island in the distant ocean. In 2005, the Chinese government built the Qinghai Tibetan Railway, which connected Lhasa to mainland China. However, this railway to Lhasa was just another tool for China to easily transport and to take over the northwest region of Tibet. Amidst China's continuous attempt for integration, Tibetans turned to their Buddhist practices to keep hope. Potala Palace, which once accommodated the Dalai Lama, still serves as the hub that brings Tibetans together. Built in the 7th century, Jokhan Temple, located on Barker Square in Lhasa, was the first Buddhist temple in Tibet. For most Tibetans, it is the most sacred and important temple in Tibet. Inside the temple and on the front yards, many people prostrate to the three jewels. For the Tibetan people, Buddhism is not just a religion, but a way of life. In the United States, wherever you go, you find the advertisement of Coca-Cola or McDonald's. In the same way, Tibet, wherever you go, you find advertisement for love and compassion. Om Mani Pemyo, the symbol of love and compassion, especially compassion. If you go to the mountain, it's carved on the rock. You will find on the rock. On the prayer flag, carved on Mani Pemyo. You go to the town anywhere, you will find again Om Mani Pemyo carved on the rock or prayer wings or how to say, prayer flag as well as for little kid to elderly people, everybody is chanting on Mani Pemyo. This weekend, one protest against China's presence in Tibet continues. Across the street from United Nations headquarters in New York is a man who is on a hunger strike. He is not the first to use this tactic, and it's unlikely he will be the last. His name is Nguyen Kechang, and he left Tibet in 1959. Now you can find him sitting at the base of the Isaiah Wall in Ralph Bunch Park, uh, along with some supporters there. Uh, now, Juan, thanks for joining us. What do you think your hunger strike is going to accomplish? Well, we're trying to regain our birthright, Tibetan human rights, and our religious freedom, and also to release the political prisoners in Tibet, especially Enchen Lama. And also, I want to see China to engage into sincere negotiation with the Son of Dalai Lama and Tibetan government in exile. And also, I want to see when this end of this month, when the UN Human Rights Commission will assemble that time, the world to stand with us, the United Nations members to stand with us 
That commission on human rights meeting in Geneva has not exactly stood with you in past years. Uh, right now, you're sitting. Set the scene for us uh, there on First Avenue, New York. Well, it's been pretty cold. And this morning, it's been snowing. I was sitting here through the snow. But luckily, the snow is gone. What, what do you think, though, this is really going to accomplish? Well, we're trying to make a point. You know, sometimes your body burns with a fire, although you may not completely put it all, but you don't have choice, but do something. That's what we're trying to do here. What do you want the United Nations to do? United Nations has passed resolution about Tibetan self-determination many years ago. It's still in effect. That was in the Senior General Assembly in the late 50s, but there's been very little change by this uh, organization. You suspect that China has a lot of influence, I imagine, inside the United Nations chambers, right? I know. You know, money talks. People are too much into economic and that kind of development. They're trying to put the human rights, human value, freedom beside to make money, which is wrong. Everybody knows that's wrong. They must understand that and stand with us. Have you had any feedback from the public very briefly? Well, we've been really nice people walking by. Time to time they ask, take care of yourself. How are you doing? Why are you doing here? Even yesterday I saw a small kid passing by, a, a Jewish small kid, and he saw some uh, blankets fall off. He was so concerned. He was trying to help for that. And things like that, you okay. know. All right, well, we're going to have to leave you there. You'll be on a hunger strike through the weekend. Uh, Nawang Kechan, a Tibetan composer, musician, along with supporters there, are protesting China's rule in Tibet. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Richard. gave his performance before the Dalai Lama's public address in the U.S. Capitol. In recognition of his efforts for a peaceful resolution of Tibet issues and for religious harmony, nonviolence, and human rights protection, the U.S. Congress awarded the Dalai Lama the Congressional Gold Medal. Tenzin Gyatso. Before the Dalai Lama, other great spiritual leaders, such as Pope John Paul II, Mother Teresa, and Nelson Mandela, also received the gold medal for their noble and courageous deeds. Honorable members of Congress, brothers and sisters, it is a great honor for me to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. This recognition will bring tremendous joy and encouragement to the Tibetan people, for whom I have a special responsibility. Their welfare is my constant motivation. I'm able to be in many venues where His Holiness is teaching in the West. His Holiness would spend like almost two hours just describing the details and the uh, nitty-gritty explanation of how actually having love and compassion is good for your health, good in relationship, good in your life. 
good in all aspects. Following in the footsteps of the Dalai Lama, Nawan established the workshop Awakening Kindness. How I like to be helped and given pleasure and happiness. See other people's sin. Therefore, I should not inflict harm to any other other beings. For over two decades, Nawan has been holding kindness workshops to try to inspire young people and the general public how to be kind to each other. And that is the prayer he gives before his performances. May all be kind to each other. Actually, love and compassion is the very source of peace and happiness. This is the highest religion, actually, if you want to call it. Actually, this is the highest source to combine material or spirituality. It is the most powerful thing that we human being is ready here. We all born with some sense of love and compassion, at least to our own parent or to our children or whatever to your good friend, brother, sister, whatever. There is a sense already there. It's a matter of developing that. something without trying that I'd almost never seen before, and that was he virtually stilled the entire room. There wasn't a a minuscule of noise. Uh, Any number of people uh, had tears streaming down their eyes because I think he connected in some way our mind and our heart together, and it was deeply felt. gives musical performances mostly in the United States, but his scope of activity is broad. Peace Jam, built around 12 noble peace laureates with the Dalai Lama, 
while working for the world peace through the youth of the world. As one of the starting Peace Jam members, Nalan offers his Awakening Kindness Workshop to the youth, and having been performing opening acts for the Nobel Peace Laureate's public talks at Peace Jam programs for the past 12 years. has been a, a, a very strong supporter of the Peace Jam program from the very beginning. I've known Nalan 13, 14 years now, and uh, in September of 2006, when we gathered the 10 Nobel Peace Prize winners at a university here in Denver, uh, Nalong came out with the Nobel Peace Prize winners on stage and played his flute. Peace Jam set out as a gathering of Nobel Peace laureates working for world peace. And this message is echoed by many supporters who have the shared same purpose. contributes his music to Peace Jam campaigns. His expressive tunes spread compassion and peace. Um, we could not think of anybody more perfect to um, be on the stage to, to welcome everyone, to welcome the Nobel Laureates, to set the heart and the mind and the spirit for everyone to receive this message. Um, no one could do it better than Nawan Ketchuk. Nawan Ketchuk is currently living in Boulder, Colorado. He and his wife begin their days with prayers. After pouring clean water in the seven bowls on their altar, they give a prayer to the Buddha and the Dalai Lama every morning. Buddhist traditions, Nalong's daily routine starts with meditation. Though his body resides in a foreign land, his soul remembers the teaching of the Dalai Lama to practice love, kindness, and compassion, and pray for every soul to be free. So, masses, other hand, are basically uh, two things. One is for the Tibetan freedom struggle. The other is, I try to convey the Buddhist essential message. And also, His Holiness Dalai Lama's really main message to general public is love and compassion. So I try to share that. The Rocky Mountains resemble the Himalayas with its perpetually snow-covered mountain top. Looking at the sublime beauty of nature, Nalong finds strength, spirituality, and peace of mind. However, there was another tragedy in his life. In 
2007, on the way to Orissa, India, to visit his parents for New Year's Day, he was involved in a car accident. His son Sanjay saved his father's life, but his niece was instantly killed. However, Nawan was at the crossroads of life or death. It was such a terrible accident happened to him that he has. Huge cut on his forehead too, and on nose, and blood clot in the brain, and fracture on the ribs and knees. Even he have a difficult time to breathing. After two three days back, suddenly I asked him, "Sir, can you give me a pillow?" And I just gave him pillow, and he just put underneath and sit straight and start meditating. I think it was ten to fifteen minutes later that he was so quiet. And so peaceful. Gradually, as he started meditating longer, we saw that his face lit up and started radiant on his face. We were so happy to see that, you know, because we saw that he was mourning and going through all this pain. But we don't believe that he's the same guy which we saw before. So I did the practice called Tonglen. That you take all the suffering of other sentient beings upon yourself, and also us, whatever you suffering, like myself, in pain. So my this pain will help all other sentient beings pain to relieve their pain, and not only that, to take all the pain of the world and the universe upon yourself, all sentient beings pain upon yourself, and also try to meditate that. Whatever good merits, good karmas you have inside you, to send that out to all sentient beings. Circumstance doesn't matter. Wherever I am, I must continue to practice. It is a blessing to have a spiritual mentor. 
And even better to have your mentor by your side. The teacher and student open the scripture together. No matter how hectic life becomes, Nawang remains dedicated in his spiritual practice.
贪欲、忧思，贪欲就变烂了。谢谢。三子，我们先登这个。差满变满，变金，那怎么是我的手，洗得更多水。
Okay. I thought that was very timely, everyone. The message is kindness and compassion, right? Love and compassion. Love and compassion. Love and compassion. For the highest good of all concern. Okay, I'm going to read a little a little story. I, well, no, maybe I'll play this. There's one more thing here that I thought I'd play. Uh, there. I will. This is from Stories from the Stage. We'll all be surprised. This one's called Culture Shock. And uh, we'll just get started is what we'll do. A small Australian town most fearful when a younger And so ninth grade starts, and I go to the first German folk dancing practice, and I discover that Joshua's correct. German folk dancing is awesome. Three years later, I was relocated to the United States of America. I was excited, happy. Everything was new. We pull into the drop-off lane, and over to my right are these glittery cars shimmering in the Florida sunshine. Tonight's theme is culture shock. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. Whenever we cross a cultural border, we are subjecting ourselves to a world of change, surprise, and new experiences. Most often it is positive, but no matter what, it is disorienting and full of possibility. Tonight, our supremely talented tellers are going to share their individual stories of culture shock in overcoming it and growing through it. My name is Michaela Bly. I live in Portland, Maine currently, and I'm a story editor and storytelling teacher. I'm wondering how did you first come to storytelling? My friend took me to a night of storytelling. She was like, you gotta check this out, you gotta see what this is. And it was a slam, so it was a competition. She was really excited to put her name in to tell a story, and she was incredibly nervous. And she said, will you also put your name in? I'd feel so much better if you did. And I looked around, there was like 250 people there, and I thought, what are the odds that I get picked? Obviously, this is going to be fine, so sure, I'll get the credit for being a good friend. I put my name in the hat, and obviously I get picked first. Um, and get on stage and told a story before I had ever seen a story told. I've tried new things a lot in my life. I love being a beginner. And every time I start, I sort of think I'm going to be like Robert Redford in The Natural when he just walks on the baseball field and he's instantly the best baseball player in the entire world. Honestly, the first time I do a lot of things, I sort of think I'm going to be amazing at it. And I understand otherwise about What kind of stories do you most enjoy sharing on the stage? I really like telling stories where both things are true, that I get to be vulnerable, but I also get to make people laugh. I think one without the other is a little scary for me. 
So to just be vulnerable and not have the release of tension when people are like, oh, she's okay now, it's okay, right? Um, that can be really stressful. And um, I tried stand-up. It was one of those things that I thought I was going to be like Robert Redford at, and I was not. It's 1991. I'm going into ninth grade, and I'm nervous. And you may be thinking, of course you're nervous. You're going to a new school. What's going to happen? New teacher is exciting. I was nervous in a very specific way. Um, I had lost all of my friends in eighth grade in a pretty protracted bullying incident. And now bar and bat mitzvah season is over. So no one's parents are making them invite me places. And I'm alone. It's summer. And I'm lonely. And I'm worried. How is this all going to shake out? And then something amazing happens. I meet a girl named Jess while I'm swimming at the pond near my house. And Jess is so much cooler than me. She she has really curly hair and she puts it. She puts so much gel in her hair that her face kind of moves, but her hair does not like that, you know, (laughs) and she wears tights and fishnets uh, over her tights and then jean shorts over the fishnets. Right. It's 1991. You'll understand. Um, And she's a lipstick girl and I'm a chapstick girl. So she knows a lot more than me. And. She's not worried about ninth grade at all. She says, no, it's fine. We'll hang out with my older brother. He's going into 10th grade. She tells me all about him. His name is Josh. He's really cool. He's really bad. And I go over to her house finally, and it takes me about 30 seconds to be absolutely smitten by this guy. He is so tall. He has an asymmetrical haircut. And he also is not worried for us. He says, oh, no, no, it'll be fine. You'll hang with us. It'll be cool. You'll come to GFD. And Jess is like, oh, yeah, GFD. Like, she knows what GFD is. I myself have never been invited to a club that isn't Hebrew school. And so I do not know what GFD is. I say, okay, but what's GFD? And he goes, oh, it's German folk dancing. It'll be awesome. (laughs) Like, not what was advertised, right? Exactly. But there's another problem besides the surprise of German folk dancing being the cool thing I'm going to do, which is... um, I am the grandchild of four Holocaust survivors. We got rules in my family about German stuff. We don't take German in school. We don't drive German cars. I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to learn the traditional dances of Bavaria, right? And I've never broken a family rule, I should say. Um, But to Josh and Jess, who are my new friends, I say, okay. And I do not tell my parents. And it's the first thing I haven't told my parents. And so ninth grade starts. And um, we I go to the first German folk dancing practice. And I discover that Josh was correct. German folk dancing is awesome because we learn how to polka. And the second person I polka with is Josh. <laughs> now, at this point, I have seen dirty dancing several times. <laughs> And so I know that the way you fall in love is through dancing and high stakes dancing, which German folk dancing clearly is. So I'm like, okay, we're in business. This is how it's going to happen. This is so great. However, I am the kind of 14 year old who tells her parents everything. It's killing me. And it's also killing me that I'm breaking this family rule. I got to tell them. And so one night at dinner, 
they're asking me how school is and they're asking me about friends. They knew about eighth grade and all of the stuff that went down. And I say, things are going really great, actually. Um, I got invited to join a dance club. And my mom is like, that's so great. What kind of dance? You know, you love to dance. Modern? Ballet? Like, what are you doing? And I sort of take a deep breath and I say, it's German folk dancing. And there is silence at the dinner table. And my dad looks at my mom. My mom looks at my dad. And my dad turns to me and says, we respect your decision. <laughs> no explanation. And we're not the kind of family that does a lot of explanations and like talking about feelings. So, okay, I got an okay. I'm going, right? And so as the fall progresses, it is so fun. I found my weird group of people. I know all of Monty Python, which is like a big asset with them. And we're just up until really late talking on the phone and quoting sketch. And it's just so fun. And I finally found my little group. And then getting towards December, everyone's talking about the lock-in. Like, are you going to the lock-in? Are you going to the lock-in? And I'm like, I don't know. What, what's the lock-in? And Jess says, it's where you get locked into a church. You play games. You eat candy. It's boys and girls. You never go to sleep. And someone always makes out. <laughs> and Josh looks at me and says, it'd be great if you came. Oh, and I'm like, no. Hell yeah, I'm going to the lock-in. Just tell me what church, like, where should I go? Like, sign me up. And Jess says, you just have to join St. Stephen's Catholic Youth Group. <laughs> oh, God. We don't have rules about Catholic stuff in my family. Like, we have the German rules, but no one's ever gotten to the Catholic rules, right? <laughs> Why would we even have them? But, of course, to Josh and Jess, I say, okay. And now i got to tell my parents. Sitting at dinner. House school, really great. I got invited to join a service organization. <laughs> My mom says, that's so wonderful. Service is so important. Like, what is it? Is it Habitat for Humanity? Is it, is it Kadima? And I say, it's St. Stephen's Catholic Youth Group. <laughs> oh, God silence at the dinner table. My mom looks at my dad. My dad looks at my mom. And my dad finally looks at me and says, don't tell your grandmother. <laughs> but we respect your decision. <laughs> and once again, he does not explain. And once again, I do not ask. Uh, I, I did go to the lock-in. I think I did think it was going to be like when Jennifer Gray shows up at the staff party at Dirty Dancing. Like, that's what the image I had in my head. Like, a lot of, like, a smoky room. That was not what that lock-in was. And I did not make out with Josh, sadly. Um, and we all sort of moved on from there. I ended up joining, with all of those friends, Model United Nations the next year. So it, it all continued. But I never figured out why my my parents let me do this. And I never asked them until a few years ago. I said to my dad, am I remembering this correctly? Did you let me join St. Stephen's Catholic Youth Group? And he was like, yes, I did. He was very proud. And I said, why did you let me join St. Stephen's Catholic Youth Group? Just out of curiosity. And he got really serious. And he said, you know, Mikay, if your kid is crying every day after school in eighth grade, and then they get to ninth grade, and they're having fun, they're having a good time, they're quoting their movies with their friends, you're going to let them do what they need to do. And it blew my mind. This whole time, I was so worried about how worried they were about my Jewish identity, right? But they were being the kind of parents that just want their kid 
to be happy. Thank you. Michigan. I live in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, and right now I'm an assistant at a pharmaceutical company, which has been really exciting. As a newer teller, what did you learn in the process of preparing for this story? I actually learned that the way I thought I was so different from everyone else is actually not true. More people relate to my story than I thought. I still had a lot of fear about telling the story about growing up in poverty. And being an outsider and then telling it and telling other people about my story, even a synopsis of it, people always relate to it and are always very excited that I'm going to tell it. Um, and so it taught me a lot about being honest with yourself and being humble will really broaden your horizons and your network. After the audience hears the story that you're going to share with us this evening, what would you most hope that they take away from that experience? I really hope people take away that there's more than these man-made borders that are drawn in the sand. There's these invisible borders that we walk through. And that no matter what border you are crossing, everyone matters. And everyone deserves a seat at the table. The summer of my sophomore year, my mother gets this grand idea that it's time to move us from the small town in Michigan to the suburbs of central Florida. I hate this idea. I'm 15. I know everything. I know it's a bad decision. And I know it's a bad decision because Michigan is home. It's comfort. It's safety. My mom is the youngest of seven, and my favorite aunt comes over every day and is a second mother to me. We go to the grocery store, and everyone knows my family. We leave our door unlocked every day. Our car keys live in our car. It's perfect. But my mom has a bigger plan for us. Because my mom sees things that are difficult and not traditional. She bears the brunt of going to the grocery store and paying for our groceries with colorful paper money called food stamps. When that limited food comes into our home, it's actually quite common that I eat food past its expiration date or else I don't have dinner. In the winter, we boil water on the stove and I wear blankets inside to stay warm. But all I know is that it's amazing, so why do we leave? But I bear a great face, I put a smile on, and I go with my mom to Florida. We arrive, it's the first day of sophomore year, I wake up, and my hair, the natural curly hair has expanded three times its size, because it's never experienced 80% humidity before 9 a.m., and so I'm pouring gel into my hands and into my hair to look like some sort of person. But I get through it, and I put in my jeans, I put in my best Kmart t-shirt and my sneakers, and my mom takes me to campus. We pull into the drop-off lane, and over to my right are these glittery cars shimmering in the Florida sunshine. And these are cars I've only seen in magazines, a BMW X3, a silver Mercedes, a black Audi A4, all cream interior. And I think, oh, maybe my mom is on to something. Because the whole drive down, she kept talking about how this high school is amazing. 
is go to the number one high school by USA Today. It's going to be great. So I look at these cars and I think, okay, there's not a sunspot on them. There isn't a spot of rust on them. My mom must be onto something. These teachers must be getting paid amazing. In three weeks, they will actually learn that that parking lot is for my classmates, for 16-year-olds who just got their license. But I don't know, it was on my first day. So I walk onto campus, and it's picturesque. It's open air, so there's buildings around a quad with all of these palm trees reaching up through the humidity and these little lizard geckos running around that I'm acutely aware of and my classmates without sweating and in their flip-flops and shorts are just oblivious to. But we make it through. I get to lunch. I've sweated through my T-shirt. And my stomach is in knots. My stomach and my insides feel like how my outsides look. But I make it to my next class, Geometry, with Mrs. Smith. And when she opens that door, a beautiful wave of air conditioning hits me, and Mrs. Smith greets me. She's a bottle blonde with a perfect blowout, the best manicures, and the cutest snakeskin high heels to teach us geometry person. <laughs> okay, I walk in. I choose a seat behind two girls who are sharing about their summer. One took a trip through Spain with her family. The other enjoyed a yacht around the Bahamas. And I'm quietly thinking, I don't know anyone who has a passport in Michigan. But I make it through the semester. During the semester, I do make some friends. And I'll be honest. I keep a very surface level because while I'm too afraid to go and get my free lunch because it's going to be embarrassing, so I eat a single granola bar to make it through the day, my friends are circling catalogs for the gifts they want for birthdays or holidays, knowing with certainty that a Tiffany blue box with a white ribbon will be waiting for them on those holidays. The friendship that I actually do build um, is surprising because I'm actually failing geometry. I've never been good at math. I can't really divide. I'm barely hanging on to a C. And so I see Mrs. Smith actually a lot. I see her a lot after school. And one day after school, I've hit a wall. I'm done. So I go to Mrs. Smith. Mrs. Smith, I'm just gonna fail this class. I'm absolutely done. I can't do this. I can't even divide. I'm, I'm just done. Anita, you can do this. Everyone in this school has had to learn these concepts. At some point in time, you can learn them today. Mrs. Smith, you don't understand. I don't belong here. I don't fit in. Anita, intelligence is not something you're born into. It is something that is earned. And she was right. And I would love to tell you that through high school, the economic divide between me and the people I perceived to have everything got smaller, but it didn't. I still kept my friendship surface level, but what I learned from Mrs. Smith is that I could make it and that I could do it. And she was right. I went on to graduate high school with honors. I got a bachelor's degree in Florida. I have a master's degree in social work. But what she taught me in that moment was that I belong and I have a seat at the table. 
And what my mom dared to dream of was that one day I don't have to worry about wearing a jacket inside. I don't have to worry about eating rotten food. My mom was right. And even though I've never taken me out to the Bahamas, I'm wealthy beyond my means. Thank you. My name is Bian Kohn. I'm originally from South Sudan. I grew up in Kenya. Came to the U.S. five years ago. And while I've been in the U.S., I did graduate from Middlesex Community College in Lowell. And I also went ahead to UMass, University of Massachusetts in Lowell and graduated from there. So since you first started sharing stories on stage a few years ago, how has it impacted your life? It did in so many ways. It gave me confidence to speak in front of people. I remember when I graduated from community college, I was actually nominated as uh, the commencement speaker. And through storytelling, I was able to gather that confidence to actually address over 1,000 students and families. So it did actually uh, impact me to become a better public speaker and get me the confidence to speak in front of people. What do you see as the power of storytelling? You know, you know, what do you think are the strengths of this art? The strength of it is it brings people together and it also connects people. And people tend to learn from one another because sometimes you don't know what other people are going through until you talk to them. And through storytelling, it has the power of connecting people and bringing people together, bringing those stories together, the humanity. At 17, I was ready for the biggest moment of my life, sitting for my national examination. But I've lived in a refugee camp since I was three months old. But now that I moved to Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, I'm excited to join better schools. But that's when I was told, in order for you to sit for your national exam, you need your birth certificate. But unfortunately, for a lot of us who are refugees, we didn't have them. Then the family told me the only way I could retrieve my birth certificate was to go to the Sudanese embassy. I found myself on the busy street of Nairobi, looking for the embassy, asking strangers for direction. After encountering about six strangers, none knew where the embassy was. Although they were polite and friendly and apologized, I proceeded, but then I was stopped by an older woman who looked like she was in her mid-40s with this beautiful curly hair. She spoke to me in Swahili, which is the national language of Kenya, and asked, are you okay? Are you looking for something to eat? Direction or a place to stay? That is when I realized she thought I was homeless. It's not uncommon in Kenya to see homeless people on the street, even children asking for food and money. I smiled and I told her no. I wasn't looking for something to eat. I was actually looking for the direction to the embassy. And she smiled. She said the embassy is down the block. And she offered to walk me there. While on our way to the embassy, we had a conversation. And she told me, the reason why I stopped you is because I'm a mother first before anything. And as a mother, I feel obligated 
to help in any little way that I can when I see a child on the street. That then reminded me of my mother. Even when we were in a refugee camp and had little to nothing, she always shared with those who did not have. Went to the embassy. Told her thank you, went goodbye, got my birth certificate, registered for my exam, and it all went well. Three years later, I was relocated to the United States of America, Massachusetts to be precise. While in Massachusetts, I was excited, happy. Everything was new. However, the weather was different, the food was different, the people were different, and even the lifestyle. In America, everybody's busy 24-7. <laughs> so that's something I had to get used to. One thing I didn't actually expect to see in America was the homelessness. Because it's something that is unthinkable. When you live in a foreign country, America is seen as this beautiful country, one of the best, if not the best. So you would never think to see a homeless person in the United States. So, but one morning while I was going to school, an incident happened when I bought my coffee at Dunkin'. Just like in many Americans, we cannot survive without our, without our morning coffee. So when I got my coffee and walking back to school, I saw a young man who looked very tired and had this work clothes in front of Dunkin' asking this young lady for some change. But the lady, instead of helping him, she was rude and started insulting him. She called him all sorts of names. She called him a thug, a drug addict, and that he should go look for a job. Oh. I was shocked, and the young man had a stony face on because he felt humiliated. When the young lady would walk away, I approached him and offered him one of my dunking. And I told him, I know how it feels to sleep with an empty stomach. I know how it feels to be hungry because I was once a refugee and in a refugee camp, you have to rely on the generosity of others. So he smiled and said, thank you. And he told me that he was once on drugs, but he's clean now. However, he cannot find a job or even a place to stay. And that is when I actually told him that when I was in the camp, I was almost in a similar situation because I didn't know that one day I could be able to achieve my dream or pursue my dreams because there were limited opportunities. So the young man smiled and I walked back to school. But on my way back to school, I thought of the woman. That woman in Kenya, the woman who was so eager to help me, even though she didn't know me, and she taught me a very important lesson. She told me, even though we might not always have the money to spare to other people or the homeless people, we can always give them the most important thing, and that is our time. Because they are human before anything, and then we should always treat people with respect and dignity. That is the lesson she taught me. Thank you. This program is made possible in part by contributions from viewers like you. Thank you. The Stories from the Stage podcast. Huh. Oh my, that was wonderful. Yes. Until we meet again, we will enjoy 
what we have had together today. Thank you so much, everyone. I think I have time. I'm going to make an attempt. There's a story here. And I will start it. Uh, well, uh, this is, uh, Penny sent this and at the beginning it says thanks to one of our fellow travelers. I received this video and today was the day I said was the day to read it. Reiner Fulmick is an example of courage, tenacity, calmness in the storm. The kind of person you can turn to as your own, as your own hair is on fire. <laughs> I was reminded of this as I watched this video. Number one, international criminal investigation calls on every public citizen to recommend indictments for Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, Pfizer, BlackRock, Tedros, and Christian Drosten for pushing everyone to receive the ineffective, high, dangerous, lethal experimental vaccines. And then it just tells you to see the video. I think that's uh, something we were really needed to hear. Um, in order for the enactment of the Nassara law to take place, accountability is required. And that takes care of a big problem we've all had here. So I'm really glad to hear this. Number two, the dam of lies surrounding COVID lab leak is breaking. And I found I had two pieces of synchronicity. Here was number three. The Sorcerer and the Plague, a children's tale. And as you probably, as you are probably unaware of who Tessa is, she is right up there with Naomi Klein, Whitney Webb, and Abby Martin of the Empire Files, just for starters. Tessa links the inspiration of her story to Russian dissidents who convey messages via children's stories. Of course, more than Russians teach via kids' stories. The Brothers Grimm, J.K. Rowling, etc. And then, number four, another name popped up, and with it, some music that started to dance through my head. So, in one email... You get four pieces of synchronicity. Legal updates, research updates, and walloping good tales or two. A walloping good tale or two. And some music to make you smile in spite of what 
in spite of what is being said. I also have some other material ready to send to you. However, this material just just fell together. Took more time to prepare it than to send it. Oh. Okay. Um, so here we go. The Emperor's New Clothes. A transition of Hans Christian Andersen's. Excuse me. A translation of Hans Christian Andersen's. Um, Kaiserens. Nibi. Kleber. Kleber. Yeah, come on now. <laughs> Um, by Jean Hershop Schultz. Many years ago, there was an emperor so exceedingly fond of me, of new clothes, that he spent all his money on being well dressed. He cared nothing about reviewing his reviewing his soldiers, going to the theater, or going for going for a ride in his carriage except to show off his new clothes he had a coat for every hour of the day and and instead of saying as one might about any any other ruler the kings in in council here they always said the emperors in his dressing room in the great city where he lived Life was always gay. Every day, many strangers came to town, and among them, one day, came two swindlers. They let it be known they were weavers, and they said they could weave the most magnificent fabrics imaginable. Now, only, not only were their colors and patterns uncommonly fine, Rather, the clothes made of this cloth had a wonderful way of becoming invisible to anyone who was unfit for his office or who was unusually stupid. Those would be just the clothes for me, thought the emperor. As I wore them, I would be able to discover which men in my empire are unfit for their posts. And I could tell the wise men from the fools. Yes, I certainly must get some of this stuff woven for me right away. He paid the two swindlers a large sum of money to start work at once. They said up to, they set up two looms and pretended to weave, though there was nothing on the loom. All the finest silk and the purest old thread which they demanded went into their traveling bags while they worked the empty looms far into the night. I'd like to know how those weavers were getting on with this cloth, the emperor thought. Yet he felt slightly 
uncomfortable when he remembered that those who were unfit for their position would not be able to see the fabric. It couldn't have been that he doubted himself, yet he thought he'd rather send someone else to see how things were going. The whole town knew about the cloth's peculiar power, and all were impatient to find out how stupid their neighbors were. I'll send my honest old minister to the, to the weavers, the emperor decided. He'll be the best one to tell me how the material looks, for he's a sensible man, and no one does his duty better. So, the honest old minister went to the room where the two swindlers sat working away at their empty looms. Heaven help, he thought, as his eyes flew wide open. I can't see anything at all. But he did not say so. Both the swindlers begged. Oh, this is both the. Let's see. Where was I? Uh, both the swindlers begged him to be so kind as to come to come near to approve the excellent pattern, the beautiful colors. They pointed to the empty rooms, and the poor old minister stared as hard as he dared. He couldn't see anything, because there was nothing to see. Heaven have mercy, he thought. Can't it be that I, can it be that I am a fool? I have never guessed it, and not a soul must know. And... Am I unfit to be the minister? It should never do to let on that I can't see cloth. Don't hesitate to tell us what you think of it, said one of the weavers. Oh, it's beautiful. It's enchanting. The old minister peered through his spectacles. Such a pattern. What colors? I'll be sure to tell the emperor how delighted I am with it. We are pleased to hear that, the swindler said. They proceeded to name all the colors and to explain the intricate pattern. The old minister paid the closest attention so that he could tell, he could, he could, so that he could tell it all to the emperor. And so intricate the pattern. The old minister paid the close uh, uh, oh, and so he and so he did. The swindlers at once asked for more money, more silk and gold thread to get on with the weaving. But it all went into their pockets. Not a thread went into the loans, the looms, though they worked at their weaving as hard as they could, as hard as ever. Okay, second here. <clears throat> the emperor presently sent another trustworthy officer to see how the work progressed and how soon it would be ready. The same thing happened to him 
that had happened to the minister. He looked, and he looked, yet there was nothing to see in the looms. He couldn't see anything. Isn't it a beautiful piece of goods? The swindlers asked him as they displayed and described their imagery pattern. I know I'm not stupid, the man thought. So it must be that I am unworthy of my good office. That's strange. I mustn't let anyone find it out, though. So he praised the material he did not see. He declared he was delighted with the beautiful whoops, and the exquisite pattern. To the emperor, he said, it held me spellbound. All the town was talking of this splendid cloth, and the emperor wanted to see it for himself while it was still in the looms. Attended by a band of chosen men, among whom were his two old trusted officials, the ones who had been to the weavers, he set out to see the two swindlers. He found them weaving with might and and main, but without a thread in their rooms. Magnificent, said the two officials already duped. Just look, your majesty, what colors, what a design. They pointed to the empty rooms, each supposing that the other could see the stuff. What's this, thought the emperor. I can't see anything. This is terrible. And am I a fool? Am I unfit to be the emperor? What a thing to happen to me of all people. Oh, it is very pretty, he said. It was my highest approval. It has my highest approval. And he nodded. Um, he nodded ap- appreciation at the empty loom. Nothing could make him say that he couldn't see anything. His whole, his whole retinue started to stared and his, his whole retinue stared and stared. One saw no more than another. Yet they all joined the emperor in exclaiming, Oh, it's very pretty. And they advised him to wear clothes made of this wonderful cloth, especially for the great procession procession he was soon to lead. Magnificent, excellent, and unsurpassed were bandied from mouth to mouth, and everyone did his best to seem well pleased. The emperor gave each of the swindlers a cross to wear in his buttonhole and the title of Sir Weaver. Before the procession, the swindlers sat up all night and burned more than six candles to show how busy they were finishing the emperor's new clothes. They pretended to take the cloth off the loom. They made cuts in the air with huge scissors. And at last, they said, Now, the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. Then the emperor himself came with his noblest noblemen. 
and the swindlers each raised an arm as though they were holding something. They said, these are the trousers. Here's the coat, and this is the mantle. Naming each garment. All of them are as light as a spider web. One would almost think he had nothing on, but that's what makes them so fine. Exactly, all the noblemen agreed, though they could see nothing, for there was nothing to see. As your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, said Swindlers, we will help you on with your new, new ones, here in front of the long mirror. The emperor undressed, and the swindlers pretended to put his new clothes on him, one garment after another. They took him around, they took him around the waist, and seemed to be fastening something. That was his train as the emperor turned round and round before the looking glass. How well your majesty's new clothes look. Aren't they becoming? He heard on all sides, that pattern, so perfect, those colors, so suitable. It is a magnificent outfit. Then the minister of public processions announced, your majesty's canopy is awaiting outside. Well, I'm supposed to be ready, the emperor said, and turned again for one last look in the mirror. It is a remarkable fit, isn't it? He seemed to regard his costume with the greatest interest. The noblemen who were to carry his train stopped, stooped low, and reached for the floor as though they were picking up his mantle. Then they pretended to lift the and hold it high. They didn't dare admit they had nothing to hold. Okay, we're on the last page here. So, off went the emperor in procession under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, Oh! How fine are the emperor's new clothes? Don't they fit him to perfection? And see his long train. Nobody would confess that he couldn't see anything. For what would prove him either unfit for his position or a fool? No costume the emperor had worn before was ever such a complete success. Yet, he hasn't got anything on, a little child said. Did you ever hear such innocent prattle, said its father. And one person whispered to another what the child had said. He hasn't anything on. The child says he hasn't anything on. Yet he hasn't got anything on, the whole town cried out at last. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. Yet he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever, as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. And that's the end of the story. 
And I think that's uh, something to say the least, a comment on what we've been going through for umpteen gazillion years. And I pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. You get the last word. And um, the emerald serpent feathered one, Quetzalcoatl was with it, and all the angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, and crystals. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. <laughs> oh my gosh, what a fun day. Thank you so much. Lots of goodies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I really love the sound. Oh my gosh. All the flute and everything else. Just really, really good. So thank you. Thank you both of you. Lots of gratitude. And I've passed this talking stick over to you, Ram Ram. Here it comes. How long is that piece? Okay. Four minutes. Okay, here we go. Good night, good night, good night, everyone. We have many stories we can tell after what we've been through here. And good stories good stories and we send more love to everyone and good night good night good night Satnam Ji 13 thank yous honey in the heart no evil live long and prosper much aloha much aloha